everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 364, or our seventh anniversary, seven full years of Between the Sheets. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. We made it yet another year. Hard to believe, isn't it? Very hard, if anyone ever paid attention to my other podcast. <laughs> I, think that, I, think, I think if you add all your podcasts that you've done besides this one, and put the the time together. Uh, I think this show still has eclipsed it. So there we go. Maybe, maybe <laughs> seven years. I don't know. That's a that's a long time. But we we are here, and um, we are glad to be here. And uh, we definitely uh, want to thank everyone for supporting us for these seven years. And um, uh, let's keep going. Let's keep going as far as, far as we can. I'll, I'll tell you, <laughs> some of them, them years in the 20, uh, 2030 to 2032. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be tough. Believe me, it's going to be tough. Hey, that's tough talking about the you know, late 2000s, much less 2020, 2021, 2022. Jesus Christ. But anyway, we are here. And uh, we have a Patreon request to show this week, Bix. And it's a year that we've never talked about before so on that note let's introduce our guest this week for the first segment of the show as he put down the 50 dollars to pick a segment to do and he wanted to talk about world wrestling entertainment for special reasons that he'll get into but we are joined by a longtime patron off and on and maybe the most mentioned name in the halftime segment besides mix of myself we're joined by danny Danny Kukler. Danny Wolf. Hey. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's incredible. I started doing uh, my own stuff around 2014. So this is sort of a trip for me because you guys being around for seven years and me being around for eight years, this is just weird in in sense of like, I started at Monco in 2014 and graduate high school in 2014, which boggles my mind, and I was 12 here in 2008, but at the same time, it's an honor being on Between the Sheets for the seventh year anniversary. Yeah, yeah. You were 12 in 2008, huh? <laughs> I, was I, 20, I was 29 in 2008, <laughs> so yeah. I am uh, 23 Ooh. here. Oof. But anyway, yeah, 14 years ago, hard to believe. But here we are. As we are discussing the week that was July the 20th through the 26th of 2008. And we're going to start with World Wrestling Entertainment. And uh, Danny. Very timely. Yeah, Danny. uh, The reason why you want to do the show is because you had a uh, special moment take place during this week. So talk about that real quick before we get into the show. So I attended the SmackDown and ECW taping that was on this week, and it was my first ever live for a wrestling event. So my parents took all of us down. We were all pro wrestling fans at the time, um, down to the Wachovia Center. Believe it or not, it was called the Wachovia Center. That that venue has had so many name changes. Not more than the the, uh, Dump in Camden that – that that amphitheater in Camden that that's had like more name changes than than God knows. But yeah, I did that in 2008 
and then had a two-year rest period and then started going to Chicago shows in 2011. Uh, 2010. Yeah. Well, hey, you never never forget your first experience at a wrestling event, that's for sure. And uh, we'll definitely get into that as we move along. But we have other stuff to talk about. Yes, very lovely stuff. And we should also mention, as it turned out, I'm also at the pay-per-view we're going to be talking about in this section. There you go. We'll hit, we'll have you first, actually, yes, in, in the order of events. But anyway, before we get into all the stuff inside the ring, outside the ring, and yeah, this did, again, Between the Sheets always finds a way, doesn't it, to uh, be relevant to 2022 or current day culture as we begin World Wrestling Entertainment and this. The official move to Tamer Programming and being a kids-oriented promotion came on July 23rd. As WWE announced, all of its programming will be rated PG instead of the former TV-14 rating for some of the later airing shows. ECW and Raw were rated TV-14, while SmackDown has been booked as more of a kids-oriented show and already was PG. The company says the shows won't become tamer, but they will focus more on characters and storylines and less on attention-getting stunts. The thought process behind this is the attempt to make the shows more kid-friendly. They still will do well when it comes to television ratings with adults, but are having a harder time getting that audience to attend the live shows. Kids are attending in droves. The other reason is the big attempt this year to change the image of the company. By being forced to run more kid-friendly and less risque programming, they are hopeful that advertisers will no longer turn up their nose at pro wrestling. Vince has been obsessed for years with the company's inability to get ad sponsorships from the major auto companies. He's also complained that uh, he's always complained that they have a huge audience and their audience buys cars, but the auto industry sees them as low rent that caters to people without disposable income. Of course, even people without disposable income need cars. Vince's feeling is if he can break through to the major auto companies like Domino's, other high-end advertisers will start looking into the shows. It's a major concern because of the scare of losing CW, even as the highest-rated show, because of the feeling if they can get ad money commiserate with their ratings, things like that wouldn't happen. Of course, he's trying to do this when all the major companies and auto companies, more than most, are scaling back on their ad budgets. In a sense, that would make you question the timing of making this move, but perhaps they're thinking that with their lowest per viewer ad rates on major television, the former big spenders will see the viewer numbers they deliver at low cost and see them as a bargain to reach more people per dollar spent. And yes, as we do this, 14 years later, WWE will be going back to TV 14. Thanks to Kevin Dunn, because he wants to be able to convince people to swear on television. So, um, yeah, here we are. All right, Bix, we'll go to you first. Wait, did that um, get reported as being yes. the reason that it was being coming or might be coming? Pretty much, pretty much, yes. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the story goes is that he's upset that they're able to say shit and goddamn and stuff like that on AW, but these <laughs> people can't say it on WWE. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's not about blood. It's not. It's not about blood. It's not about really risque. It's about mainly the language. So, there you go. All right. So, based on going to you first, um, it's funny that Dave talks about the house shows. You know, the kids are attending in droves. How does he think the kids are getting to these shows? <laughs> yeah, uh, some nebulous force that may or not be guarding guarding them and driving them. I mean, the adults are taking the kids to the shows. Yes, it's appealing, more, trying to appeal more to kids, but the, the adults have to bring the kids there. So you're still getting adults. You're just not getting a bunch of sweaty guys in black t-shirts. 
you know, maybe it isn't as much. That's the difference. And, you know, I went to um, the first modern day WWE shows I went to was, um, I'm trying to remember if WrestleMania was first. I know I went to a, a Raw Phillips Arena and WrestleMania. And WrestleMania, you know, was different because it's WrestleMania. But that Raw Phillips Arena, I mean, you saw a lot of kids there. But you also saw a lot of women there as well. And it was a really diverse crowd from going to the days of the late 90s and going to wrestling shows and seeing how it was. You know, I mean, so they were trying to branch out, not just to kids, but to women and, you know, just the overall deal, not just to guys 18 to 34, you know. So this is them going to a, a broader viewership and it paid off for them because their image started to change and they're where they're at now you know one reason because of them going to this broader scope of people to appeal to you know and it might be a mistake to go back to tv 14 where it doesn't appeal to that audience as much as the well, rating. I think times have changed enough now, though, Danny, that I don't think it really matters. I, right. I'll tell you, I mean, even 2008 is still like a different time. I mean, social media so in 2008, Twitter is just really starting to become a thing, so to speak, because I joined in 2009. Um, Facebook, I joined in Facebook is starting to become a thing. MySpace is already the king, but they're about to lose their throne. So social media and the way people act on social media, you know, it's changed the world. And also the whole political climate is changing, especially at this point in time, because we're in the election cycle in 2008 in the summer. And all the rhetoric gets kicked up more and more and more as that goes on. So that's changing in that regard. So the world is starting to change. You know, to where we're at now, 2008 is a pivotal year in that whole process. So, yeah. And, I, go ahead. Sorry. In no, 2008, it, it was we. It was weird just growing up in that time because you could, you, you still had the slide up phones, like you still had the the antiquated technology, but the social media was burgeoning on big i joined facebook in 2009 when i was 13 and it really just opened the doors for all these gates where you could be friends with anybody well the filters changed i think people people's filters started changing even more Think you got television started becoming even more risque um so things are changing in the media world and so now with WWE trying to go back to what they once were, so to speak, ratings-wise, it's totally different in 2022 than it would have been in 20, 2008. So yeah. that that's basically where it is on that. But Bix, regarding the advertisers, um, it's funny that Vince – I mean, Dave is plainly stating about Vince wanting the auto companies involved. Wanting anything else? Why, why would Vince be – so adamant about trying to get the auto companies on board, you think? 
perception, if nothing else. I mean, but also big dollar advertisers. Yeah. But still, I mean, I don't know. I mean, auto advertisers, they're made, they're a big sponsor in, in, in big time sports. Yes. I think that may be part of it as well. You know, I don't think he, you know, regular television shows like sitcoms or whatever are worried about auto advertisers. But I could see where Vince would be more into that because of WWE being sports entertainment. And, and you uh, who, see how wrestling was perceived in 2008 versus now. And it, it was a totally different world back then in 2008. Um, it was after the Benoit tragedy. Wrestling was at an all-time low when it came to perception. And you look at it now where people are more willing to talk about it if they're a fan about wrestling. Yeah, definitely. And the Mattel, you know, relationship definitely plays a big factor in this also, as we talked about before in this show. So they're, they're with a, a major, you know, action figure company. And, you know, that's definitely part of it as well to, to help that perception get better because they want to sell dolls. I mean, with who's gonna, one of, who's gonna buy dolls, kids, and one with one of the major manufacturers. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't count Jax because Jax became a major manufacturer because of WWE. Um, but even then, Mattel still had a bigger footprint. So it's the first time they've had that yep. since you know 1994, and really most of like even then the stuff that came out in '94 was available on a pretty limited basis so this is really the first time in like 15 years that they've had one of the tippy top toy licensees Mm -hmm. absolutely all right well there's more going on that we officially announced is changes to his talent wellness program most of which has already been reported the major one was the official announcement of dr joseph maroon the team physician of the pittsburgh steelers as the company's new medical director Working under him are Dr. Martha Dotson, who will travel to the Smithsonian ECW Road Tour as brand physician. As noted before, talent is no longer allowed to go to doctors when they're on the road to get prescription medication and can only go through the company doctor. Dotson has worked in the past as a doctor for USA Boxing, Arena Football, Minor League Hockey. Dr. Christopher Amon is the traveling doctor for Raw. He was a team physician for the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. They are joined on the road by trainers Chris Brannon, Larry Heck, and Jason Crivello. Also added to the... Can I get official- a Z-Pack? <laughs> huh? Can I get a Z-Pack? Yeah. Also added to the official medical team is Dr. James Andrews. Dun-dun-dun. Of Birmingham, who will be the company's consultant and surgeon, a role he's had unofficially for years. Dr. Mark Lavelle, who will be heading the company's neuro- neurocognitive testing, testing, testing for concussions program, which began a couple months back. And Dr. Frederick Frabach, in handling the company's heart monitoring program, he will perform heart stress tests and a battery of other heart tests to every contracted wrestler at least once every six months. These are all positive tests for your industry and does show that there was at least some reaction and learning from the deaths of Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, and many others. Well, I mean, at least they have something going on here, Bix, that they're trying to implement a, a policy, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, when do you feel like, because I mean, people had shrunken for a while. This is the era where it's still, a lot of guys are still smaller. 
Um, in the long run, clearly, mo- the heavy steroid doses are gone. Yeah. And that was a that was a big change. You still have people who are, but you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are on, but they're not on unhealthy amounts. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yes. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, the thing with the painkillers and where you could get them, I get why it made sense at the time, but even then, I remember thinking. Is that the best idea to change how to change it to now where company employees are dispensing painkillers to talent? I don't think it was, honestly. Because we saw with the punk situation how that turned out. Well, I mean that you know, that's not a narcotic. I mean it was still indiscriminately prescribing a drug. I mean, you know, but what we learned from that lawsuit though was just how bad the record keeping was. So, I think in the grand scheme of things, this was a bad idea. And honestly, I don't remember if this is in the written policy. Do we have any idea if this changed? I don't know. But, I mean, what I think is this is them setting it up where if you're getting painkillers, at least you're getting painkillers from their personal doctor. And they can track it, yes. And they can track it, yes. You're not getting – you're not using – Dr. Hackett or some people like that to get your drugs. Here's the thing, though. Maroon's still there, right? Maroon, right? Yes. Still there, right? Yes. Um, Here's the thing, though. As far as that, one thing that, granted, it was early in the program, but still, and I don't know if we know of anyone else that ever tested positive for painkillers. Art Angle never tested positive for painkillers. So... (sighs) You know, people who saw it remember when they had the meeting, which they put on WWE.com about adding the drug testing, the only person who asks a question is a panicked Kurt Angle who asks if they can see how much of everything they're taking. Vince says they can. I think history has shown that if they could, they weren't paying attention. So if that was the case... Who's what's to stop someone who's from uh, supplementing their prescription with other painkillers from other sources? Yeah, that I is mean, indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's again. I, I got to I, I, this. They're doing this to keep track of everything. That's basically what it, what it is. Yeah, it's more of a, it's more of a tracking thing than anything else. Yes. Now I forget. Was the had the Waxman thing come out yet? I don't know. What's the Waxman thing? You the uh, Senator Waxman led the investigation into wrestling, where I think they had done most oh, of yeah, the work yeah. in late 07, and it, they released the findings at some point in 08. I think it would have been before this. You know, one of the things I remember sticking out was as far as the uh, therapeutic use exemptions went. Um. I think it was Tracy Ray was the name of the doctor they were using for that at the time. Um, that there was an example where one of the doctors who was, you know, sitting on the committee, you know, to handle the medical questioning, asked them about, you know, names redacted, the case of a specific wrestler. Okay, it was January 08, for what it's worth. So th- this had come out already. So this could be somewhat reactive. Um 
but there was one wrestler who had been allegedly diagnosed as having a severe pituitary dysfunction due to repeated concussions. So they were prescribing all sorts of stuff, you know, anabolic steroids, Adderall, I think growth hormone, other stuff. And the doctor who's doing the questioning is like, wait a second, though. You said I can never pronounce. Oh, I, actually, wait. It, I can never pronounce the short name. I think it's pan hypopituitarism or something like that. The doctor asks doc, the WWE doctor, the questioning doctor asks the WWE doctor, I should say, wait a second. So they have this pituitary dysfunction and they weren't prescribed cortisol. So if they caught a cold, they could die. Did you call this person's doctor to point out that they hadn't been prescribed cortisol? Basically, to try to trap them into admitting that it was a bullshit diagnosis to get them steroids and stuff. So <sighs> there was a lot in there about shady cases and stuff. So I, right. I, I it's months later, but I got to think at least some of this is reactive to the waxing thing. It's possible. And when was the uh, first like big bust? The SI bust? That, that was in 07. That was in 07. That was like yeah. a month and a half after Benoit, the signature pharmacy thing, where yeah. they reported. For some reason, the... I thought that was on sex. For some reason, I thought that was on sex. But no, it was right after Benoit. Oh, it was right after Benoit, yeah. where they had the suspensions and stuff like that. So yeah, where they had so it been was like ten reactionary people. to yeah. that. So hmm. maybe, yeah. All right. Well, let's go to the in ring now. Wrestling Entertainment presents the show more closely resembling TNA because of context issues and overall role confusion. It was Great American Bash pay-per-view on July 20th from the Nassau Coliseum. Hey! The show opened with two minor title changes and created a third championship later, but it was the only non-championship match on the show with Chris Jericho versus Shawn Michaels. That was the highlight. The two tried try to do a more realistic stop match, complete with a blood stoppage more akin to MMA than modern pro wrestling. And real quick... <laughs> if we had if we even wanted to do MMA in this week's show this show is at 43 pages it would have been over 70 but it's post tough so we wouldn't but. oh I uh, know but I'm saying if we if we wanted to if we were wanting to talk about MMA from this era there are so many fucking shows during our week it's like and then one, I think one day had three different major MMA shows around the world. And Dave just was devoting so much space to that stuff. It's just crazy. Um, there's more. Right, because didn't, we, didn't we get the SmackDown report from Brian Alvarez and all the TVs? Well, he's doing that anyway. So, yeah, he's already offloaded all that to him anyway by this point in time. But, right. um, but and this is why I bring that up. There's more and more of an MMA influence in pro wrestling, just like what happened in Japan a generation ago. It works for some and does it to others. There's another example of different fan bases. As a Ring of Honor fans love innovation in this type of match, and with WWE, it takes time to get getting new things over, which a lot of the wrestlers are working at doing, but a lot of the audience, since it's filled with kids and women, are not familiar with it. It also takes some time to accept this type of blood stoppage when you are weaned on the mental idea that every time a major babyface is bloodied, it just means you are biding time before his comeback. In this case, Michaels bled badly, and Jericho continued to work over the cut until he had him down and was pounding on the cut, until the ref jumped in, similar to a ref in an MMA match, and stopped it. Post-match, Michaels did not make a comeback. It was simply a top A face getting the hell beat out of him. And later in the show, Jericho announced Michaels had suffered a detached retina and his career was over. Michaels was booked for shows in a few weeks, and they're on TV 
seemed to be building towards rematch. And with SummerSlam coming up, they aren't going to waste a big push on something that isn't being delivered on the big show. The other key match was Triple H pinning Edge in the main event using the pedigree in a match which saw outside interference from Alicia Fox and Vicky Guerrero. The finish was akin to TNA. In many ways, reminiscent of last week's Samoa Joe Booker T match, where you left confused. Fox interfered first and was giving Edge the title belt. This led to Vicky coming down as a babyface and attacking Alicia. She got a big face pop. Where the confusion is that the winning angle on television where Triple H revealed a secret film from his hotel room where he was hitting on and making out with Fox before the wedding seemed to establish Edge as the heel. But in the poll taken during the pay-per-view, WWE fans voted 55-45 that they felt more sympathy towards Edge. The idea that two heels can feud is okay, but Vicky, in this sense, was booked in a babyface position, and the people, obviously, after initial pop, didn't take to her as one. Then there was a spot right for the finish where the ref, Vicky, and Alicia were all tangled up. Edge would do a spear, Alicia booed, Edge spear Vicky. Jim Ross, the commentary, said that Edge was aiming for Alicia, but Dave had no clue why he would be aiming for Alicia, who came up to help him win, or that he was last seen making out with her. But he speared the hell out of Vicky, who had been wheelchair-bound for months on TV, but now this week was able to run to the ring as a babyface and do roll-around physical spots. But the strangest was the booking of John Cena and JBL. On Raw six days earlier, they went off the air with the visual that JBL had crushed Cena's body as he sat him up by a car and drove another car at, at fast speed, crashing into him. God, I remember this. On ECW the next night, while they showed a clip, no mention was made of exactly what happened. They did on the website state that Cena had only been grazed and was okay. So then on the pay-per-view, Cena, after JBL, thought he had nearly killed them, showed up unmarked, unscathed, and not selling. It's not a critical mistake <laughs> in the sense that during the boom period, it was routine to ridiculous angles. Who could forget Triple H in the car being dropped by a crane, crashed to the ground, him being largely unscathed, involving crashing cars, physical beatings, and not selling in the next week on television. And it was one of the high points popularity-wise in the history of the business. But in doing so, when trying to portray something realistic in a non-cartoon pro wrestling manner, at the end of Michael's Jericho, it's largely undercut due to the context of the product issues. Well, I'm going to talk about something here real quick. I think Dave is sorely misconstruing the fact that fans actually think, well, the fans actually know, that John Cena didn't get run over with a car like that, but the fact that Somebody could a match could be stopped because somebody's bleeding too much. That's more realistic and more believable. You know, I get, I mean, I get every, his point. But... I get, yeah, I get Dave's point, but he's wrong. Yeah. I mean, look at some of the car angles we had. I mean, you mentioned Triple H, The Rock in the NWO, the angle with the tractor trailer trucks. You know, there's there's yeah. been angles. You know, the giant falling falling off the roof of Cobo Hall and coming back in like nothing had happened. I think Dave sometimes looks too deep in the forest for the trees. Those wrestling fans know that giant that falls fucking roof. Wait, these that. car angles never work. Let's let's be real. These car angles have never worked. Nope. And 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 it's just a testament to Vince's love of automobiles. Well, well that and it's them trying to be like a regular television show too, where they did stupid shit like that. Which we'll also be talking about more of later. Yeah. So that's that's them trying to be like a, a primetime soap opera in that sense as well. So, but anyway, uh, the scene angles followed up by a New York City parking lot brawl, second from the top. The entire backstage portion of the match was taped the night before in Nassau Coliseum. 
This allowed for edits and multiple takes if needed. The only stuff done on the day of show was to finish in front of the crowd. The match included Cena being thrown in a car and the car set on fire, and Cena making a comeback from that and having a forklift smash a car JBL was in. Then Cena's forklift lifted the car and brought him into the arena where Cena hesitated while JBL was on his shoulders for the FU. JBL escaped through Cena on stage into the windshield of the car, which was shattered, and JBL won. Apparently, the wind sets up JBL as a challenger for CM Punk at SummerSlam on August 17th, Indianapolis. And now it looks like Cena versus Batista on that show as well. It's also possible to go with a four or five way, including Kane in that position, which would enable him to save Cena and Batista for WrestleMania, as was a long term plan. The main event of the show was Undertaker versus Edge Hell of a Cell, with Undertaker there to get revenge for Vicky. Also, the show is Triple H versus Great Khali for the world title, and Mark Henderson and Matt Hardy for the ECW title. Uh, two this is not a good time. This oh, is no. not a good time for WWE. No. The two title changes in opening two matches saw Shelton Benjamin beat Matt Hardy for the U.S. title, as Hardy's likely to be a move to a program with Mark Henry of the ECW title, and Kurt Hawkins and Zack Ryder winning a four-way attack champions Miz and Morrison, Jesse and Festus, and Fit Philly and Hornswoggle. That one's a lot harder to make sense out of since Miz and Morrison were clicking as WWE's best tag champs since the breakup of Eminem. And then Michelle McCool became the first SmackDown Divas champion, beating Natalia. Yes, Natalia, folks. 14 years ago. Overall, the show from a wrestling standpoint was solid. There were no killer matches, although Michael's Jericho been held in another era, or perhaps now in another arena in a different week. Mausoleum. It likely would have been very well remembered. Triple H vs. Edge was a good main event, but not a great one. But the only bad match was the ECW title match with Mark Henry against Tommy Dreamer. Featured a match that may have set the record for the least of heat for any heel turn in history with a Colin Delaney turn on Dreamer. The show drew a legitimate sellout of announced at 14,126, about 12,000 paying 800,000 on gate. The observer's response level was down 19% from last year's show, which ended up doing 250,000 buys worldwide. And with Cena versus Bobby Lashley promoted a slip the special, although perhaps tipper, but being the first preview after the Benoit tragedy, and with ratings down badly in the key preview buying mail 1834 at the time. Being down a little wouldn't be a shock. All right. Let's talk about the matches. Dark match. Umaga pinned Mr. Kennedy in four minutes in a squash using a Samoan spike. Really surprising to see Kennedy book like this. Is it, though? Not at this time. No. Not at this. at this time, Kennedy was still coming off that money in the bank when he was still coming off that, that, that hot period where he was being groomed to be a star. It just never happened. Well, he fucked up. He said he said the wrong things. Yeah, he said the wrong things. Yeah, his yes. mouth got him in trouble. And okay, he paid for it. Yeah, just refreshing my memory. He came back. Well, okay, not from the. Okay, no, it wasn't the injury. He had been filming behind enemy lines, Columbia, yes. and then came back after that, and was drafted to SmackDown on June twenty third. Okay, then uh, the big shoulder injury is right after this. And then it's April, and like, 09 is when he, no, is, or April, May, 09, something like that, is when he nearly hurts Randy Orton and gets fired. But he also had said some things, too, that didn't help himself in the process in this era. You mean, like, because... saying how the wellness program got him off steroids, knowing that the uh, shady pharmacy he was using already had been busted? <laughs> that's part of it but also didn't he piss Triple H Shawn Michaels off uh, I'm sure he did I mean that sounds or they like enough. buried him on television oh yeah I remember that they buried 
the crap out of him on television on a raw because he, he must have said something that pissed them off. Yeah, so a heat seeker for damn sure. So yes, yes. and his latest uh, heat seeking has been. Uh... Apparently, taking money for uh, his wrestling school, despite the school not have it physically existing anymore. Shocking that something like that would happen. College hog. Can't believe it. All right, uh, the main show here. We got Kurt Hawkins and Zack Ryder winning the four way to win the tag titles over Miz and Morrison, Jesse and Festus, and Philly and Hornswoggle nine hundred five. Hornswoggle did a tope early. Jim Ross and Mick Foley were trying to compare Morrison with Rick Rude. Except Foley said that Rude couldn't grate cheese on his abs, and he seen Morrison do it. Did he ever see Rude try? Philly used shot on Ryder, but a save was made. Finished off Festus going crazy and knocking Miz and Morrison out of the ring. That set Ryder up for the rocket launcher, but Hawkins tripped Festus from outside the ring. Ryder got up and slammed Jesse off the top of the pin. Good opener, two and three-quarter stars. Bix, any uh, live thoughts on this match? It was nice to see the local guys get a moment at least yeah there is that they are uh from that from that neck of the woods so to speak so there is that i mean they're they're both i think not far from from not far from the coliseum they're both from like i think like central to south nassau county so that's their local building although they're heels here but still they got their big local win the highlight of all these matches was Festus. Uh, you know, he's involved. That's the thing. Yes. Yeah, Festus was amazing. The character work was very good by Doc Gallows, a.k.a. Festus, back in the day. I forgot, I just forgot how novelty that act was. It was different. And it just, <laughs> that look he would keep on his face was, was always hilarious to, to people that I, yeah. around at the time. They just thought that was the funniest shit. But I watched right. this pay-per-view, and this was very fun opener. Yeah, for WWE shows, yeah, yeah. Yes. Also, uh, we're in the brief window where McFoley's SmackDown color commentator. Yeah, exactly. Him and Ross are the announcers. Yes. All right, Shelton Benjamin pinned Matt Hardy nine thirty-three to win the U.S. title. They really put the title over by mentioning people like Harley Race and Ric Flair as former champions. Notice they never mentioned anyone who has held in the last twenty years. Okay, I know Flair beat Conan in the 90s, Flair said. I mean, Dave said, but you know what he means. This match had a ton of noise because you had the dueling chance with the girls screaming for Hardy and a lot of guys chanting for Benjamin. They didn't react at all to the changes in the flow in the match, but we're making probably more noise than any other match on the show. Shelton went for a stinger splash, so Hardy kicked him on the way in. Hardy used a leg drop on the middle rope for near fall. Hardy went for the, the espresso top rope, but Shelton caught him and powerballed him into the turnbuckles. Hardy came back for a side effect for a near fall. But at this point, the crowd was popping big. It never ceases to amaze Dave how Hardy never wins with a side effect. But 9% of the time, he, he do, does it, the crowd pops. But I think he's going to win with it. Finish saw Hardy miss the moonsault, and Benjamin got his knee up. Benjamin used to pay dirt, which is a jumping version of the downward spiral for the clean pin. Three and a quarter stars. They really should have given him some wins with the side effect over time. Yes. I agree. I agree. That's side effect. That side effect move was very effective. And sometimes I would, as a kid at least, I would bite off the side effect move because it, it looks like a devastating move. Honestly, yeah, it looks I mean, more like a finisher than the Twist of Fate does. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. 
I mean, twist the face just a another version of a diamond cutter stunner. You know, side effects at least a different type of move. So yeah, and the way to do it is like it, how AJ Styles has had in WWE, where he has like four or five different moves that can be legit finishers. Always good. Yes. Mark Henry pin Tommy Dreamer in 529 to retain ECW title. Crowd, die for this. Dreamer got near a fall using a DDT. Finished saw Dreamer on top rope and Delaney. Calling Delaney, grabbed his arm and snapped over the rope. Henry used the world's strongest slam for the pin. Nobody cared about the turn. Quarter of a star. Well, Bix, Tommy Dreamer's a local guy, but fans didn't give a shit about him here. Well, he's not local, local. Well, still, but... He is from the New, New York, York metropolitan area. He's not from Long yes. Island. Um, no, he's New York. And the call and turn was fun. Yeah, fans didn't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> this but, crowd died. This crowd died when this happened. And I I, I was just so gassed when rewatching this. Like watching like things that the crowd would react to that these days crowds would not bite for. And then then people that would react big to stuff would would get nothing for this crap. I mean, this is a in Diamond One ECW at the time, anything else, because obviously these people were not watching ECW, so way it looked. True. Or just didn't give or just didn't give a shit, either or, so I don't know. Mark Henry is a great world ECW champion, so there is that. Alright, next we get Chris Jericho beating Shawn Michaels by rest stoppage TKO in eighteen eighteen. Jericho used springboard drop kick his first big move of the match. Michaels just dim up spot early, but Jericho counter putting him in the wall to Jericho in the middle. Michael struggled to make the ropes. There was a surprising amount of booze on Michaels made the ropes. They traded forearm shots back and forth. Lance Cade came to the ringside. Michaels threw Jericho over the top rope onto Cade, and then Michaels did a moonsault the top rope onto both guys on the floor. Jericho gave Michaels a backward elbow in the eye, and, Jer- and Michaels did a quick hand movement to blade his eye. Michaels was bleeding all over the place. Jericho worked over the cut. And then working, make every punch mean something. Jericho also headbutt the cut. Michael's made a comeback in our cross face, but Jericho made the ropes. Referee Marty Elias teased stopping it, but Michael's wanted to continue. Jericho kept pounding on the eye, finally getting the side mount, throwing a punch at the punch, as well as palm blows to the cut. Michael's was selling like he was out, not defending himself. Finally, Elias dived in like an MMA uh, referee to stop the bout. Three and three quarter stars. This was easily the best thing on the show even if the finish didn't yeah. really get over live. Um, but I have not watched this back, but I remember at least live and, you know, beyond thinking, I think this is one of actually Michael's best, best performances of the comeback run. Because yeah, um... he's making this work, but he's so much more understated while still getting the Shawn Michaels selling and stuff in than he is in a lot of his other big matches. It was versatile by Shawn. It was very versatile. I watched this back, and it it was very versatile by Shawn. I'm a bigger fan of the latter match they had later on in this feud, but this this match was a good complement to that latter match. Yes. I mean, they had a a, a very strong feud and run here. Um, Hell of a match. You know, and hell of a feud. All together. And even though it didn't click for the live crowd, Michaels did do about as good a job as you could trying to get that finish over. As did Jericho yes. and how he, how he was attacking him. But, 
you're doing it for the first time. So, I mean, it, I get it. I, I wouldn't even consider it a failure that it didn't necessarily get over live just because it was new. Yeah. All right. Uh, Michelle McCool. we got to cool, cool off now. Michelle McCool beat Natalia at 441 to become the first SmackDown Divas champion. A little rough going in spots and crowd wasn't much into it, but they were put in the position to take the crowd down between a match expected to get over big and a match they wanted to get over big. Natalia used the upside-down surfboard, the Rita Romero special, also known as La Tapatilla, and later a sharpshooter by Michelle made the ropes. Michelle went clean with a heel hook. Cherry and E. Torres hit the ring to celebrate McCool. Torres was wearing heels so high she could barely walk. Jericho didn't interrupt the celebration so everyone to save their ticket studs because of a historical night. This is the last match Shawn Michaels will ever wrestle again because he claimed he had the attached retina star on three quarters. Brian Danielson would laugh at that. <laughs> Cherry was still on the roster? Yes. Okay. Um, I remember thinking this was fine. I mean, you know, you could tell McCool was wanting to try to be a good wrestler. But, you know, it didn't get any time and they hadn't really gotten over the heel. It's that that generation, you know, of of WWE thought process when it came to the women in in the wrestling ring. Your divas do diva shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, McCool would have fit a lot better in that 2015-2016 era than this era. But she she really does do well with what she had here with Natalia with the with the green Natalia. And Natalia was pretty good for what she did. Romero special was really impressive. How different was Natalia looking in 2008 compared to 2022, Natalia? Mid. <laughs> because, I mean, she's changed a lot in 14 years. <laughs> but you know what? She's open about it. I know she is, but I'm just saying it. 14, I mean, 14 years. That's wild to think about. But yeah, and she's still plugging along. She's in a title program right now on SmackDown. So, yeah. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Yeah. She's a lifer. So, God bless her. All right. So, next we get CM Punk retain the World Heavyweight title. Go to the contest with Batista in 11-10. The crowd seemed to cheer Batista more, but they did not boo Punk. Early in the show, Punk did an interview about how everything he, everything th- everyone thinks he's a flute champion, not a worthy champion. And he was so hard on people thinking he can't win. That pretty much was a lot he couldn't lose. Punk hit a tope early. Batista, much of the match, working over Punk's back. Punk did a great high kick for a near fall. He also used an armbar of the ropes and a springboard clothesline for a near fall. Batista later missed a charge to the corner and his shoulder at the post. He was on the floor. Punk came off the apron with a tackle. Batista caught him and planted him with spine burst on the floor. At this point, Kane came out and ran Batista to the ring post. Kane then got in the ring and laid Punk out with a choke slam and left. After he left, including Lana's cameraman with a high kick, and the match had been ruled no contest, Punk and Batista were left in the ring both selling. As they got up and started jawing, Batista laid Punk out with Batista Bob. It's funny because they act like they want to make Punk into a worthy champion, and he got laid out twice by Batista and once by Kane here, three stars. Here's well, you, where... could only get, you, you could only get so high, Bix. Yeah, and here's where they, on top of all this, where they really missed the mark. That punk cash-in is one of the best angles they shot on TV in this era. Just how it came together with Batista coming out and beating the shit out of Edge. 
and then the fans kind of collectively realizing what's about to happen and punk cashing in and being the first babyface to do a surprise cash in but doing it on edge who is the guy who's done the big surprise heel cash ins all of them up to this point <sighs> outside of that initial show they didn't really do enough to push him as the guy who gave Edge's comeuppance. Yeah, that was bad on that behalf because they should have put him opposite Edge in that feud. But at the same time, they wanted to do different things with Edge at the time. Um, Recollecting to when they, to the TV, it was more like Edge was the center of the program. And I don't think they felt like Punk was ready to be the center of the program. Well, I mean, they move Edge on to the different to the program for the other title, like we, you know, we're going to talk about later too. It was just it was weird booking. And then <sighs> Batista and Punk would become friends, but uh, I don't think they were at the point in their lives to click here. You know, the match yeah, is fine, punk, but it's Punk. Punk, Punk was just fight, he was fighting a huge battle. I mean, they they wanted to do something with him, but again, it was the there were powers that did not want to do something with him. So he was he was just caught in the middle of a, a conflict with people in power. You know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make him into something, but he could only go so far. It was weird watching that 2009 run, even just just seeing how far he could could have gone, rather than waiting till two years later with the summer of punk. But I, I think I think they learned what they had in him, though, in a lot of ways when they turned him heel. Yeah, I agree. I agree yes. with that wholeheartedly with that Harding view. Because this punk right here is still babyface punk. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't turn heel until the second cash-in, which also very well-booked program with some, you know, really strong angles. And also, I just realized we're at the midpoint of the two, between the two summers of Punk here. Yeah, we are. You know, three years after one, three years before the other. Yeah. Right. JBL beat John Cena in New York City parking lot brawl in 1436. <laughs> most of this match was done on pre-tape, and there were jump cuts and changing angles to avoid showing how some of the stunts were gimmicked. JBL came out in a three-piece suit from his newly, newly, new, freshly clean white limo. So he worked the match in dress shoes, dress pants, and a button shirt as he removed his jacket and tie. Cena tried to run him over. Then Cena took the jumper cables out of his car and connected them to JBL's groin, then hooked them to his car. You can see that one coming a mile away. Live in, the build, live in the building, the crowd was laughing at the match, not taking it seriously at all. They also did this match not only with no crowd noise, but no announcing. With no ring and high spots, it's apparent to make something like this look like a fight. And like nothing like a fight. JBL whips Cena into the gimmick open car door and Cena knocked the door off his hinges. JBL gets Cena DDT on the roof of a car in a low blow and rams Cena's head through a side window. JBL puts Cena in the back seat of a car, pulled out gasoline from his limo, lit a match so the car went up in flames. The ref was screaming about, about a fire and a bunch of guys came out with a fire extinguisher to put it out. Cena opened the door unharmed, started his comeback. He threw JBL in the back seat of the car, got into a forklift, and impaled the car. Then he used the forklift to lift the car up and bring it to the Coliseum in front of the fans. At this point, the people popped seeing the car guys live. They started brawling on the stage. Cena put JBL on the shoulder and got this brilliant idea of doing the FU off the stage. 
We took so long in doing it, JBL skating through Cena off the stage onto the car, shattering the windshield. Cena's wearing a t-shirt through all this, but his elbow got cut up and he was bleeding. The next night on Raw, the arm was all bandaged up. Dave hates when guys use glasses for their match because glass doesn't know how to work and it breaks in an unpredictable fashion and it's not worth the injury risk. Anyway, JBL pins Cena. Dave gets the win. Makes sense. Earn JBL a touch like a punk at SummerSlam. But he just can't see being Cena unless it's really informed by a guy who is on the rise. JBL isn't going to draw any more buys against Punk by beating Cena. Granted, most of Cena's fans don't watch pay-per-view, so beating him, beating him off TV isn't that big of a deal. But you should still only beat your number one guy if it's to build something more important than a match that isn't going to draw. They worked hard, but all they could think about while watching this was how stupid it was. One star. Oh, this was a chore live. Um, I bet it was. This was stupid. <laughs> this was stupid. Um, they would execute this type of match better in NXT a few, like a decade later with the, uh, what was it, Adam Cole and Redacted. Um, Built to the uh, team dream. Yeah. Yes. Um, 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 parking lot brawl, backlot brawl. And, but this, I. I couldn't take this seriously at all. Looking back on it, like the no crowd noise, no announcing, that was a mistake. Um, and then bringing it back to the crowd, and then the announcers just go right level up. And I'm like, bruh, come on now. One thing I've always wondered did they anticipate the crowd reaction since they decided to go with zero crowd audio? The thing is, is that. I mean, if you're going to do this, you need to have the audio. I mean, you need to have the audio sweetener. I mean, you're going to use it on everything else. Right. They didn't sweeten yeah. it. There was just no crowd audio. Yeah. Sweeten audio up. Make it seem to the crowd there's something reacting. Yes, we know it's fake. But hell, what we're watching is fucking fake as shit. So that's why now I have fake crowd noise too. Uh, I. <sighs> It's not like I asked people around me, but I can never figure out if most of the laughter was thinking it was supposed to be comedy or thinking it was terrible. I mean, I think most, it's like, whatever, you know I mean? But at least you were able to watch it. You know, I'll tell the it story. It was about, terrible. That, I, that fire spot. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell the story about, you know, that Nitro in Columbus in 96, the, the parking lot Nitro where most of the show was in the fucking parking lot and there's no cat, there's no monitors in the building. So the fans are sitting there wondering what the fuck's going on. And they're running up the steps, trying to look out the windows of the building to see them stuff going in the parking lot. That now that's the worst. When you're doing a TV show or something like that, where you got all this shit going on and nobody knows what's going on. So at, le- at, le- at least, you know, you got to see, what was going on. Maybe you didn't want to see it sometimes. At least you got to see it. But yeah, it was just, a, it was just stupid shit. It's, a, it's for people to laugh at and stuff like that, which that's not kind of not the point. You know, I don't think, why would you want to do something like that where, you know, people going to be laughing at it. So. And this was supposed to be the big feud ender for John Cena and JBL too. Even though they already had it in 2005 with the, uh, I quit match. But at the end of the day, this sucked. <laughs> I mean, they're 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 making movies. What can you say? I mean, that's what this is. It's like make it's making movies. It just didn't work. All right, Triple H pinned Edge. 
1646 to retain the world title in the main event of the show. Hell of a performance by Edge in every aspect, particularly facials and bump taking. Triple H was there, but Edge was doing almost all the work. Edge missed a spear and flew out of the ring. Um, Dave meant he flew out of the ring. Triple H posted Edge. Edge used the implant DT for near fall. Edge came out the top to a catapult spot by Triple H, which was pretty cool. Triple H got near fall to DDT. Edge missed a spear, and Triple H used the schoolboy for near fall. Edge tried another spear, but Triple H reversed it to a spine buster. Triple H tried to pedigree, but Edge reversed it. And at this point, Alicia Fox came out and threw the belt to Edge. Then Vicky Guerrero ran down the aisle and attacked Fox, and they brought him the ring. Vicky got a big bad face pop at first, but as then as she was fighting with Fox, the crowd turned on her. Edge gave Vicky this tremendous spear when the ref and Fox moved. Triple H got the clean pin with a pedigree. Very good match, but something was missing. It was there for your top level and pay main events. Three and a half stars. Match was there. <laughs> as Dave would say, the different era. Um, and it's a Triple H and Edge thing, too, which everybody was, you know, wondering what kind of what when that feud ever happened, how would that look? Well, eh. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. the Vicky thing, like Dave mentions, was weird. Because outside of her tackling Alicia Fox, which got the biggest pop of the night, too. Oh, I don't even want to try to remember what it was. They were chanting all the usual awful shit at Vicky the rest of the time. But she also got the biggest baby face pop of the night. It was weird. Of course they were. (laughs) It's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, you know, what really mattered? You know, in this in this era of WWE, you know, as we get to the TV, it's just like, what is this? Going back and watching all this stuff, it was a slog. It was certainly not fun. And, and, and you got Cena in his prime here. You got Big Dave, who's pretty much in his prime here. You got Edge in his prime here. Punk is starting to get on the rise. I mean, they had guys. They had talent. And it's just like, what? Like, there was no basis for anything. There was no plan to make anything good, except for to make, to make Edge like this big superstar that he really isn't. Yeah. All right, well, the Torch had this. Two fans at the Bash preview on Sunday tried to steal chairs backstage after the show concluded. A W worker spotted the 20-year-old hooligans in the parking lot with his custom pay-per-view chairs. Then one of them tried to throw a bottle at the worker before he was apprehended. They were charged with burglary and assault. Cool against that's a Vince word. That's your people, Bix, trying to uh, take these chairs. So it was fans who spotted where they were keeping the unused collector's chairs? I guess so. It says backstage. Huh. I don't know. Yeah, but don't don't the fans in like the first like live rows get to take those collector chairs home anyway? Well, that's what I'm wondering. How many extra would there be? Were there chairs that fans didn't take? That, that That's what I'm trying to figure out. I don't know. But anyway. All right, let's go to Raw. The next night in the Mohegan Sun Casino in Uncasville, Connecticut. Overall entertaining show with a good ending of Cena and Batista squaring off. Show with Batista coming out in all black, which makes you look smaller on TV. That may be cool for people who are heavy. But Dave always thought the gimmick of Russell's on TV is to dress where you look bigger. Don't worry, Dave. Batista will be changing his uh, attire soon enough. Uh, Batista said he was putting himself in charge since it was still anarchy. 
So the stage collapsed on Vince. Oh, yes, we're in that deal. He said he wanted to talk to Shaq at Pump to down the show. Why ever wrestle on the roster when announced they were in charge? But the subsequent pump was never explained. <laughs> he said he's looking for Kane first because he had a title one when Kane screwed him on pay-per-view. JBL then showed up on the screen saying he was in charge and he was getting next title shot at SummerSlam against Punk because he beat John Cena. But he told him to come out right now. But JBL said he was banged up from his match at the Bash and he wasn't fighting, which made no sense. They advertised ahead of time a trio match with him involved. He told Batista to go find Kane. Punk came out and said Kane screwed him as well. As Batista, because he wanted to prove he could beat the unbeatable Batista. One thing Batista is really underrated in this program with Punk is how he basically smirks at the very notion of Punk being in his league. Then again, since he's already established and so much bigger, maybe that shouldn't be the way he's playing it, but he's great at whatever he's doing. Anyway, Batista said he was in charge and told them to cut off JBL's mic. JBL's still on the screen talking. That was pretty funny. I mean, Dave pretty much just the, you know, the nail on the head there about how Batista was acting towards Punk. I mean, that's basically the way it was. Yeah. 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 Also, we are a month removed from Paul. I can't feel my legs. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. That, that, was, that was some of the most funniest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, yes. Good Lord of mercy. All right. Uh, Lance K cut a promo. He uh, asked Sean to come out. He brought this Sean, trained him, and then Cape in Paul London, another trainee in 247 to stop Well, they never, they ne- Well, they never brought that up, though. <laughs> well, because London's not a Sean student. I know, but still. It's part of the academy. Uh, London this far where he missed the crossbody that because of Cape's growing up position, they looked completely horrible. It made London look like an idiot. Cape caught out Michaels again, but when he didn't come out, he caught out Jericho. Jericho did a promo that was best to take out the show. He basically put heat on the fans for Michaels having cracked ribs and attached retina, saying he went to the match hurt, but he because he didn't want to disappoint the fans, he wrestled anyway and got hurt real bad. He told the fans that Michaels' blood was for your sins. Jericho turned the corner as a heel the past few weeks when the audience didn't want to boo him. Jericho came off as a cross between 1997 Bret Hart and Mick Foley's ECW heel turn. Cases were popular babyface's turn when the fans didn't, really didn't want them to and had to basically create a situation where in their minds being right, the fans were the heels. Yes. One thing you can say about Chris Jericho at this point in time was he was fantastic at his character. And he's not trying to be a cool heel. No. Oh, no. He was so fantastic at being that smarmy, sanctimonious, that's the word, um, prick. Um, He was so good at that. And watching as a kid. reasons for that. (laughs) Because he has one. It mirrors real life sometimes, they say. Just saying. But anyway. All right. Uh, so, Beth Phoenix beat Kelly Kelly with a double chicken wing in 301. Tons better than you think. Kelly did a lot of acrobatic spots, hit them perfectly, and Phoenix did a good heel offensive power stuff. Again, a WWE Divas match, three minutes. So, in another good segment, Axel Jim Dunn came out close for the first time in forever. About a two by four. He said he'd been thinking about what Cody Rose Ted DiBiase said, and that wrestling is a young man's business. He had a great 30 year run and was considering retiring. Lawler came out and gave Doug on a pep talk, saying there's no age limit in wrestling. And not just wrestling either for Lawler. Lawler got this angle over so well. DiBiase and Rose came out, and Rose noted that when Duggan won the first Royal Rumble, well, the second, but they tried to pretend the first never happened, he was only two years old. 
And that one Lawless left Andy Kaufman on Letterman. Neither of them were born. He also noted that Lawler dates women younger than both of them. <laughs> Lawler then noted that he never saw what he did with Kaufman. It was so obvious he was slapping Rose. But the place popped big when he did because fewer is good when it comes to getting an angle over as Lawler. It looks like they're building up to a tag match. They just have to do interviews back and forth for a few weeks because the interviews are going to be a lot better than the match. I did enjoy Cody Rhodes with Ted DiBiase in this era as the sons that are so fucking, you know, prickly, you know, about who they are, you know, throwing at everybody's face that, you know, our dads are this, that, and the other, and this whole dynamic with veterans. I thought that that was really good stuff. Yeah, they were schmarmy and they were assholes and it was it was really trying to cave in on some truth, but at the same time, Cody and Ted DiBiase Jr. were very good at their roles at this time. Bix, where would you rank uh, the handling of legacy as uh, among the major W fuck ups of the last twenty years? Hmm. I don't know because they made everyone too similar to Orton. I mean, they already had the similar looks and stuff, but honestly, I think they probably should have gone with uh, Cody and DiBiase as a team without Orton for longer. Well, I, I mean, they shouldn't. They shouldn't have broke them up. Well, uh, no. I mean, the, no. well, no, that's, no, they were finally picking thing. up steam when they broke them up. And then they and then they break them up and they do like the worst breakup possible, and I mean it's just it's terrible because Legacy was started out so great, and then they just fucked it up. This hour of WWE will give you brain rot in in the terms of what potentially could have been with a lot of these pushes. Yes, yes, absolutely. And speaking of another fuck up, CTC. Cena and Crime Time, Crime Time Cena, excuse me, beat JBL and Cody and DiBiase in 9.54. Good match. JBL, again, didn't work much. He was either doing a great job of selling the match for the night before, while Cena, who actually lost, wasn't selling it at all, or JBL's really hurting. Well, he, it really is hurting if he's even selling. Again, he barely got in, was bailed by leaving before the finish. Cena ended up getting both Rose and DiBiase on his shoulders at the same time. He first dropped Rose with FU, then dropped DiBiase and pinned DiBiase. Yes, CTC. I mean, they do they do the deal where they kind of link up Cena and Crime Time, and they do a few things. But Jesus Christ, what what could have been here? You know, Cena and Crime Time as his buddies. There's so much that could have been done with that. But baby faces can't have friends. They were so over back in the day. Like Cena and Crime Time, they were fun. They were. They were interactive. It, it was it was it was a slam dunk, and they fucked it up. Yeah, because yeah, but just baby faces cannot have friends, and it's just fucking stupid as shit. Mm-hmm. And also, it gave us JBL as poopy. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Yeah, that late limo, um, <laughs> the graffiti. graffiti thing. Yeah. Yes. There's your PG right there, Bix. <laughs> All right, uh, next, Paul and Katie Burchell defeated Kofi Kingston and Mickey James. Talk about your careers going in many different directions in 323. Kofi went for his Trouble in Paradise kick on 
Pirate Paul to the ring, but Paul moved and Kingston kicked the post. In the ring, Paul used a net breaker to pin Kofi. That keeps their IC title program going. Okay, so we are at the point of the Pirates of the Caribbean gimmick, but he's still with Kate. Yes. After they moved on from never, thankfully never pulling the trigger on the brother and sister who do it uh, <laughs> gimmick. Well, Vince that was, in, that, was, incest. that was a thing? Oh, Vince yeah, that was the planned gimmick yeah, Vince, for them. Vince loves his incest, yes. It, it it never got further than them maybe seeming a little too close for brother and sister, but like subtly, like they never got close to actually shooting an angle or anything. But that was the plan when they showed up. Yikes! Yeah. Yikes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't surprise anybody. It's Vince. So, but anyhow, all right. Uh, backstage, Jamie Noble was again hitting on Layla. Considering the percentage of times that scripted wrestling romance has become real, Dave wonders who Noble's guardian angel in the writing team is. Of course, the flip side is he has to play butt for all Vince Smallman's bullying fetish stuff. <laughs> well, if you, it, I don't even know what I should say to that. The, the phrasing there. Um. But Jamie Noble, hey, J- Jamie Noble was in lucky positions a couple of times, so there's that. Yes, and um, I mean, if you get fired for trying to file a on-the-job injury claim for an infection from shooting steroids, and then you get brought back, you kind of have to expect that you're going to be made into a joke at times on TV. Yeah, Jamie, no- Jamie Noble won more than he lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he did. All right, so let me move on to Batista coming out and asking where Kane was. Jamie told Batista, you can't see, can't you see I'm with a woman? Batista picked him up and choked him against the lockers. If only nobody had grown up in the 70s, he'd be reading his wrestling magazine and probably send away for those Charles Atlas deals on the back pages. <laughs> there's your bullying thing, Vix, that uh, Dave's talking about, so there's that. Uh, Punk and JBL did a face-to-face promo where JBL again said he won a title shot at SummerSlam, and that Punk would have an asterisk by his title run or whatever would forever be known as a transitional champion. Punk noted that his first title defense, he beat JBL. So there you go. Ha ha, JBL. Jokes on you. All right, Santino Morella did a promo. Said things got screwed up last week because when he made his open challenge, it was for a man. He didn't want anyone with a fallopian tube, and, and it's only someone with an Adam's apple to come out. So D'Lo Brown showed up. He got a nice reaction, and Pimarella in all of 91 seconds with a lowdown. Beth Phoenix came out. The two started trading go-behind, so they both got a weird look on their face, stopped, and kissed in the ring. They both got the weird look on their face and left. Time will tell, but Dave's not sold yet on Phoenix being the one best suited for the girlfriend and the guy in the job or comedy role. Well, you know what? They made it fucking work. <laughs> they made that shit work, and it worked to glorious Comedy gold. <laughs> yes, Glamorella definitely worked. And, I mean, who would have thought that Beth Phoenix would have shined like she did and all that, you know, the way she was portrayed. So, absolutely. Props to both of them. Uh, Jerry Lawler, and not on camera, Jerry Lawler teased that Shane and Stephanie are both looking for... No, in and on Raw. camera. Why did you say in, in and on not camera, on camera? Geez. I don't know. I missed... In an on-camera, Lola teased that Shane and Stephanie are both looking for a new general manager on Raw. Batista was in the ring waiting for his match with Punk. When Kane came out, laid Batista out with a choke slam. 
Batista sold a big and Punk came out. The idea was Batista was in no condition to wrestle, but he refused to postpone the match. Punk beat on him for several minutes until Punk tried to springboard cross body, but Batista caught him and turned into a spine buster. Batista similarly had the title won again after laying Punk out with a spear, but this time JBL did the run in to make it a no contest in 901. JBL was beating down Batista until Cena made the save. Cena went for a punch, but JBL moved and hit Batista. Batista tried to Batista bomb, but Cena escaped. And Cena tried to F you, but Batista escaped. And they had a pull apart and showed off the air. Both did a good job and came off something more than just your typical pull apart. After the show was over, Cade did another run in. But Batista laid him out with a spear. Cena gave JBL the F you. Bump must disappear in all this. Actually, he was on the floor selling. And when he got up, he tried to blend in the spear. Cena on the mic said they threw the first punch, but he wasn't going to apologize. It just said that maybe it's time for a Cena Batista match. And that's SummerSlam, right? Uh, yep, yes. yep. I was trying to confirm that, and it was a SummerSlam match. So, again, Punk just disappears from the scene, huh? Mm-hmm. I would have liked if in an alternative world they did the five-way, just to see how they would have booked themselves out of that mess. Yeah. But, again, you know, Punk's the champion. But he can't be around for uh, all the big players. No, he's not a real star. Yeah. So, there you go. Raw did a 3.32 rating and got 4.74 million viewers. The show drew a 2.84 in males 18 to 49, with 68% of the males in the average viewer being 35 years old. It was the highest rated show in primetime on Monday night among male teenagers, a 3.4. Or 366,000 total viewers, well below the 4.0 usual level. And males 18 and 34, 2.9 or 819,000 total viewers. Also, the 2.8 and 754,000 viewers, males 35 to 49. It was only number three for the nine on cable behind TNT's The Closer and Saving Grace. Holy shit, The Closer. What, what a day that would have been if they got to number one beating The Closer and Saving Grace. Yeah, but. Again, look at these look at these ratings here and compare to now. Again, yeah. they they would have killed for these numbers. They would kill for these numbers now. Well, of course, anybody would. And everyone loved Kira Cedric and Holly Hunter too. Oh yes, that was a very 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 popular show. Very popular show. So, in the segment by segment, Kate in London in the beginning of the Jericho promo lost two hundred fourteen thousand viewers. The climax of Jericho promo and Kelly versus Phoenix. Gained 260,000 viewers. Days guessing K London lost a lot. The promo picked up considering how the next quarter increased like that with the women's match. The Doug and Lawler DiBiase Road segment gained 149,000 viewers. At that point in the show, that's really nothing special. CTC versus JBL Road's DiBiase gained 343,000 viewers, which is usual levels for that point in the show. Kofi and Mickey versus Burchills lost 206,000 viewers, which is actually nice. better than usual. Well, that's better than usual for that point in the show. Morella promo, Dilo Morella, Morella Phoenix gained 34,000, which is strong for that point in the show. Punk and Batista lost 86,000, which is certainly not what Ooh. you want out of it. The post-match was seen in Batista JBL outgained 756,000 viewers and drew the show's peak rating at 3.89. Punk's not a draw, brother. If you would book him like one, maybe he would be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a possible situation there they need to resolve. But, uh, yeah. They would resolve it um, three years later. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> interesting to look at some of these quarters, absolutely. 
All right. At these raw tapings, Charlie Haas worked a tryout as a baby face against the former Quebecer Pierre and Jean Lafitte going by his real name of Carl Willette. He some <laughs> I mean, it seems like he, we do these shows, and he just shows up at different places. It's amazing. And Tyrone Evans worked a dark match, putting over Jamie Noble. Tyrone Evans. Six. Remember who Tyrone Evans would become? No. Really? Danny? Um, no, not without looking it up. Michael Tarver. Oh, yeah. Tarver was a good prospect at the time with the Nexus, and then he just fizzled out as soon as that angle ended. Yep. So, yeah, that's him. We'll talk more about him in a little bit, though. We got, we got some more on him coming up. All right, Danny, it's your turn. Smack done each oh, and yeah. from the July 22nd tapings in Philadelphia. Ron Killings, with his new name of R Truth, pinched Seamus O'Shaughnessy. In the dark match with an axe kicked as his finisher. Yes, so I do Seamus. remember. So I do remember watching this dark match, and I was so excited because I was a TNA viewer at the time that Killings was coming in as our truth, and I, I was just perplexed at how hasty Sheamus was. It, that that was my first time ever seeing Sheamus because I wasn't watching FCW TV at the time, and and. Seamus was a big deal down in FCW, but he, he, this was my first time seeing him. And the crowd was just playing along with it. They did not take Seamus seriously. They were like, go to Seamus! Seamus! You know? Sort of like that deal. Making fun of his name. Yeah. Um, and just think, I mean, both these guys are still working and on television in 2022. So, there you go. And Seamus... Looks pretty much exactly the same. That guy. Our truth looks exactly the same. Our truth looks exactly the same too. So these guys haven't aged. So props to them. All right, ECW came came first here on the tapings. Opened up with Tay Long and building a new ECW title belt, and called out Mark Henry, who came up with Tony Atlas and Colin Delaney. Henry looked positively thrilled that he was getting a new belt. And the things that never ceased to amaze your department. Tony asked the entire interview for Henry, even though Henry is three times the interview Atlas is. Well, this is the company that put a DVD proclaiming Ric Flair as the greatest ever, the master talker, putting over woo and a landmark expression, yet for years banned him for using the th- phrase on TV, and for the last two years of his career, never would almost give him more than 20 seconds to talk. Atlas tried to put over the history of ECW, and then long talk about Philadelphia being the home of ECW, which people pop for, although when he tried to tie this ECW to the old ECW, that line fell flat. Yeah, that line did fall flat, and it was like no one was having this ECW. Was the old ECW? There were a lot of bands there that were were there probably for the old ECW at this point. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the crossover at this point in time was pretty low. Yeah, the crossover there was pretty low, and like I was the reference because I watched like all those documentaries and stuff like that. Um. I bought. I was a regular DVD buyer because um, Rise and Fall of ECW was like one of the first DVDs I've ever bought. But I was interested in that because I was a Philadelphia sports fan, and and like the history in Philadelphia was intriguing to me. Well, you were four years old when ECW died. Yeah, I was four years old. <laughs> four years old. I know it. 
I know. I five two thousand one. Well, it was in January yeah. two thousand one. When's your birthday? March. So four. So you were you were still four. <laughs> you were yeah. not five just yet, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, yeah, I mean, and that you're trying to draw kids in, and kids were not around when ECW was in existence, basically. So it always felt weird when they try to do something like that. But especially uh, in Philadelphia, because yeah, because you had some people who were there for ECW, but then a lot of a lot of this crowd was families, and I went with my bro- two brothers, sister, and my mom and my dad, and my and like probably my mom, my older brother, and my sister never went to a wrestling event again, probably because they grew out of it, and like my mom hated wrestling, but my dad would take me to future wrestling events and. Chris would go to wrestling events with me. And Chris, my younger brother. Um, and it, it, it was just stark to see, like, the progression of a crowd, even back then. Yeah, times are changing. Uh, Bix, your thoughts on Tony Atlas as Mark Henry's uh, manager in ECW? I liked his laugh. <laughs> he was entertaining. I will say that. All yeah. right, so... Um, Delaney started talking about why he turned. He did a much better promo than Dave expected. The gist was that being with Dreamer, all that happened was he got his butt kicked every week. He got a job with the company, but he's also a laughing stop. And now he had Henry as backup. Long then made Dreamer versus Delaney. You know, it's funny. They did the angle with Colin Delaney that Paul should have did with Mikey Whipwreck years earlier in ECW. As far as eventually turning. He had a thing. As far as that whole st- the story here where Mikey was the guy taking beatings and stuff and he got tired of it and, and turned heel because of it. Mm. They, they did the Mikey turn too late in the game. Yes. yes. And then that, that even, and then that didn't stick. So, all right. Um, even, even though his turn got no reaction, the, this interview got a lot of, got a lot as they played it on dreamer and his Philadelphia past. Well, I missed I, I missed up. I forgot some stuff here. Long day major versus Delaney. It's a squash match. Dream went in DDT in 256. Big spot came early. As Henry and Atlas left ringside. Delaney thought his new crew would be there to protect him. Not sure we can go with Delaney from here. Uh, Evan Airborne pinned James Curtis, the one-time Casey James in 420 with a shooting star press. And boy, is it funny that Matt Sidal won a match in 420. They changed look, Curtis's oh, look again. Bro. Although he looked more like a star with the look he came to the company with his last two makeovers. Yeah, um, I remember Casey James and Idol Stevens from the 05 SmackDown era, and James Curtis did not impress. Um, Evan Airborne, um, and and I saw like Matt Sidal on TNA. Like I discovered TNA pretty early on in my fandom. Like me and my brother were, my brother Tom were watching like the. With the impacts on Fox Sports on Comcast Sportsnet. So I got to know AJ Styles. I got to know R-Truth. I got to know all the TNA guys. And Matt said I was one of them. So I was looking forward to Evan Airborne coming to ECW. And the shooting star press is just beautiful to watch anytime you see it live. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys that you definitely uh, want to see in person. You know, he's he's one of those those sets of wrestlers. We're probably better to see him live than it is see him on TV. 
still to this day, he's still very good. I saw oh, him absolutely. on a couple AEW tapings um, and when they've been here at, at the Lear Chorus Center. And, man, he, he's just a crisp wrestler. Yes. He's always been like that. But he is maintained yeah. funny how he's very well. Funny. Yeah. There are a lot of things I could say about that right now that I don't want to. Because... <laughs> Well, Let's just, anyway, we'll save that for off the air. Chavo Guerrero and Bam Neely were at ringside. Chavo did commentary now that his loss to Bourne was because his mind was on the wedding. After the match, Chavo and Neely surrounded Bourne, but he escaped. Luckily, they didn't do another lame inset Bourne babyface interview. Bourne looked good in the match. Tiffany was backstage with Ricky DeBone. His gimmick is taken from a wrestler in OVW who a few years back was constantly thinking of catchphrases, t-shirt ideas, and gimmick ideas. He hadn't even learned to wrestle yet. Ricky Ortiz now. Yes, See, the former Atlas DeBone. Yes, that's why yes. I called him Ricky DeBone. Ricky Ortiz said he won his in to be the Latin Assassin. Long that he only won one match so far, and that was more of a loss than a win. And next week he'll wrestle on the show. Oh, he yes. was a geek. He was Ricky a geek. Ortiz. Yes. Not a good fit here. Not at all. He was not a good fit. And even as a 12-year-old, just knowing, just learning about the inner workings of the business, I was like, this guy, I cannot take seriously. Yeah, his hair and all this other stuff. He just, it, it wasn't good. Main event was four-way with Matt Hardy over Finley, Miz, and Morrison. Let's get to SummerSlam on top side of Henry. It was the best match on ECW in a long time. Over the possible section of Michaels at Jericho, well above any match on the bash. Main store was Miz and Morrison working together as a unit. They beat down Philly on the floor. Double teaming Hardy. Morrison told Miz to go to the ring, and he tried to sneak a pin on Hardy. It was the Miz and Morrison had problems, although they ended up working together. They went to a near fall, to near fall with Sage, and everyone looking great. Morrison used a shining wizard on Finley, but Hardy threw out Finley and went for the pin, but Miz saved. Hornswoggle distracted Miz and Finley hit him with a shillelagh. Morrison then laid out Finley with a moonlight drive. Morrison went up for the springboard move on Hardy, but Hardy met him with a kick and he used twist of fate on Morrison for the pin in 1638. Three and three quarter stars. My thing at this time was this guy just lost on the pay-per-view. Why are we putting him over here? So Yeah. But he's Matt Hardy, so he's Teflon to a lot of that stuff. He is Teflon, and he is – this was a very good match. I watched it back, and this was very well worked. Um, you have four good workers in there, Miz Morrison, Finley, and Hardy, who all are professionals. And I don't have any memories of this. <laughs> I don't have any memories of this because it's like it's like you, you get sort of in a malaise after a while, just being at wrestling, just like – well, ECW isn't 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 ECW? You know, they're live at this point, right? Yeah, I so SmackDown had already been taped. So SmackDown had already been taped. We stayed for ECW. I remember that because yeah, that's the whole thing. SmackDown's already taped, which we'll talk about SmackDown in a minute because they're doing the show in runtime and you know time of airing. So SmackDown's already happened. So yeah, so what is that like? You know to. Watch, you know, a SmackDown taping, and then see half the building leave for the for the ECW show. Me being the wrestling fan in the family, I, I just wanted to say for ECW because ECW was 
pretty cool back in the day, and I never got to see it. So, and my parents weren't gonna let us go in, go into school late on a Wednesday, um, and sort of, sort of knock the cobwebs out of our system. So, um, I think, I, I think it's sort of the same feeling you get when Rampage is taped on the same day as a Dynamite. Um, sort of like Dynamite, but that's different because Dynamite's live, but the crowd's still hot for Rampage. Well, AEW fans, you know, and, and Rampage, it's, it's a much different environment than WWE's ECW. Oh, yeah, it certainly is. This was a lot of kids, a lot of families. Um, if I recall correctly, I saw a lot of kids my age there, uh, my age at the time there, um, versus, versus, um, versus AEW, which is basically the demographic they're trying to get away from. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, it's just a different deal. All right, ECW did a 1.47 rating and 1.99 million viewers. Best rating of this show this year, and the highest is a 1.6 rating for the Halloween show with a heavily pushed Monster Mash Battle Royal. I have a question. Um, yeah. Are the ratings calculated differently now, or why are we seeing lower numbers or lower standards now for ratings in television? Because less people um, watch. Is it real? Is it really because of that? Because it's, yes. Well, it's not just that. Because okay, so it's two things. One, we never see the two plus rating anymore. We see the eighteen forty nine rating and some other demo ratings. The other thing, and this was not something that we all became aware of until fairly recently, the ratings we see now are not done as cable coverage area ratings they used to be for cable. They're taken out of all U.S. Oh, households. Okay. So I know Meltzer did the math on this recently. Brandon Thurston might have too. But even if we just went as far as demo numbers, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison because the demo okay. numbers we're seeing now are out of all U.S. households and not just homes that get the network for cable. Right. Right. That's why I'm confused. Uh, that's why I get confused on seeing like these demo numbers and these viewership numbers versus the viewership numbers we have now. Well, again, but I was just asking the, that the, the main the main thing is, is more people less people watch TV now. No, no I do accept that fact, but yeah. I was just confused on like how how it's actually calculated nowadays. All right, as far as what's causing the increase in ECW ratings in recent weeks, kids under 11 are up 46%. Hornswoggle Matt Hardy. And male teens up 58%. Dave says it's hard to one to peg as to why. Everything else is up with males, so the women are down between 12 and 34. Showed it a 1.0 in males, 18 and 34, 1.2 in males, 35, 49, but a whopping 1.9 among teenage males. In the 7 by 7 Bourne versus James Curtis gained 204,000 viewers. Bunch of backstage stuff with no wrestling, lost 148. And then uh, the four-way main event gained 546, which is pretty great for ECW, peaking at a 1.80. The highest rated match ECW since the Monster Mash Battle Royal. I wouldn't know why the teenage male demo has gone up in ECW, because it's not the women that, at that time. So it's, it is interesting. All right, SmackDown. And let's go to Brian Alvarez. Another great show, thanks to more fantastic performances by Edge and Vicky Guerrero. Jim Ross and McFarlane opened up the show to explain what happened to the pay-per-view as opposed to showing the footage. 
this is probably a good decision early on because of footage of Edge spearing Vicky as he was, apparently was going for Felicia Fox made absolutely no sense. It was never explained, by the way. We didn't got one of those stranger segments of the year with MVP and Jeff Hardy. This is one of those TNA-like deals where they assume that everyone watching knows everything when the reality is that most of the people watching, especially nowadays with so many kids tuning in, have no idea what's going on. MVP was talking about how Jeff had been suspended twice and would be fired if it happened again. But the wellness policy is common knowledge to your average SmackDown viewer. Jeff claimed he'd been open up front with the fans about what happened, and they respected him for that. Problem is, he's been anything but open and up front about all this, only ever saying he made a mistake and paid for it. MVP talked about his house fire and how his dog had died, and, had Je- and how Jeff had to feel awful about it. Jeff noted that MVP had problems of his own in earlier life. You know, the time spent in prison for armed robbery that nobody in the crowd could possibly have known about. Jeff finally lost it and knocked MVP out of the ring, screaming at him that made him sick. That he made him sick. All right, well, Danny, you're <laughs> you're in the crowd for this. I mean, Chico's talking about how nobody knows what the hell's being talked about here. Well, did you? Um, sort of, because I'll give you some context to the way I viewed wrestling at the time, because YouTube was a wild, wild west back in 2008. YouTube's very different before Google owned it. Um, I was watching anything and everything consuming wrestling. Um, and so I sort of knew about the wellness policy, um, because I was obsessed with the Benoit coverage, because... Like, because I have autism, I get obsessed with, like, coverage like that. Um, so I got wrapped up in that coverage very easily. Like, I remember, like, when Benoit died. Um, he, like, we, I went to camp the next day. I, I told my friends, I was like, Benoit died, and we don't know what happened, blah, blah, blah. And, like, people were like, oh, so, so. And I was like, oh, <laughs> And, and that's when the first disconnect came with wrestling for a lot of my friends and me, because I stuck with it and no one else did in my area, in my school or in my household. Yeah. It's just, it's too inside fix. I mean, do you agree with that? This is just too inside for their fan base at this time. Yeah. When they do the thing with punk, they actually explain it. Yeah, and then mentioning the dog and how, I mean, good lord. Well, the dog I did not know brought about up on the, TV. Yeah, I did not know about the Jeff Hardy burning down the house thing at the time, even though I was pretty online in 2008 for a 12 year old. Yeah, it's just too much. Too much. Alright, Shelton Benjamin beat Jimmy Wang Yang. Nobody cares about Shelton because he hasn't gone to any high-level superstars. Probably since that Shawn Michaels match was, was in fact, the last time he was over to E-Major Degree. It's cash 22, and he needs to attempt to get over. Needs to attempt to get over, but they probably don't feel they can go that direction because he's not over enough. Poor Shelton. So many damn start stops, you know, stuff. And uh, But, hey, he stuck it out. He's coming back and forth. So... Still working, although he's injured at this time, but still working. And you could see, like, with Shelton, he had potential to be, like, this smash-out star, but something was missing. Something was missing. It it wasn't even that promo ability or that, 
or in ring, it was a bit of an if factor that was missing. I think if they would have kept him as a baby face and kept him doing that type of thing, it would have been different. But I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with you with keeping him as a baby face versus a heel. He was never a good heel. Yeah, I mean, he could have probably had that Kofi Kingston type run. So, yeah. All right, Kurt Hawkins lost to Festus quickly. The whole story was that Hawkins and Ryder were trying to ring the bell during the match, but Jesse continually cut them off at the pass. It wouldn't be a DQ if they rented the man docile in the middle of the match. Anyway, they managed to beat him up after he won. Edge met with Alicia Fox backstage and said that she needed to blend into the background and that they should meet at the hotel later to discuss things. This man clearly has a problem. <laughs> Bam Neely was shown snooping around. Vladimir Kozlov beats Stevie Richards. Kozlov needs to learn to sell, but he should be doing it off TV at the house shows. Stevie running wild on him is not going to help his case at all. Kozlov hit his big headbutt for the pin. Oh, yes. Good old Kozlov. And I was marking out for Stevie Richards because he was from Philadelphia. There you go. They recapped the wedding reception angle again, which was still awesome. Next, we get the great Kyle Lee winning a battle royal, which also featured Mr. Kennedy, MVP, Umaga, Jeff Hardy, and the Big Show. No idea how Kennedy got in here since Umaga just killed him dead and dead last week. Match is pretty bad, especially when, say, Big Show and Kali were squaring off. Jeff Lee made MVP to get revenge for the opening segment. Came down the Hardy, Kali, and Show. Show had Jeff in the powerbomb position. Jeff gave him a Frankenstein over the top for elimination. At this point, the crowd was going nuts, wanting so badly for Jeff to win. Boy, were they sad when Kali just manhandled him out of the ring. Probably for another reason. In fact, between the WWE Magazine with Jeff hanging over the belt, the opening segment in this match, feels to Brian like they're doing a long, slow build to Jeff getting his next title shot. Probably a good idea, since you, if you take your time, you can also monitor him in case there are issues where he could screw up again. Anyway, Hunter came out to stare down Kali, who would be his giant Gonzalez, and that is a match that Brian is not looking forward to. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Well, I mean, Brian, talks about the crowd in this battle royal. What are your memories of how they were reacting to Jeff here? Uh, people wanted Jeff to win so badly. It wasn't even like the bad MVP segment cooled off Jeff at all. It was more like people who wanted Jeff to win, people who so badly wanted Jeff to win, and when Kali took the air out of this crowd until the uh, final segment where we'll get to where Vicky says one word. Yeah, I mean, no matter what, Jeff and all of his problems, you know, he's always going to be over somehow, some way. So we get our... I I wasn't necessarily a Hardys fan at the time either. I gravitated more towards Kenley. I gravitated more towards hard-nosed wrestlers, but Hardy was certainly connected with a broader base. Yes. It's definitely the women. All right. uh, We got a Ron Killings video package that was really good. He'll be our truth. Then Michelle McCool beat Maurice quickly with a heel hook. It was okay, though Maurice did have one one of her random clumsy falls at one point. Yes, that happened a good bit earlier in her run. Maria debuts next week. Well, there's there's that. Uh, Edge told Bam Neely he needed to apologize to Vicky, but this is something that needed to be done in public. Bam ended up going in line to Vicky. Chris Jericho would not approve. Said to Edge that told him that he wanted Vicky to apologize. 
Brian Kendrick beat Shannon Moore. To add to the cocky persona, they now have, they have now renamed his finisher the Kendrick. It's a good little addition. Well, he wanted to name it the Final Solution, but he thought that was exaggerated for some reason. Ka-ching! Ka-ching! So then we got the awesome last segment. Edge called his wife down to the ring for the big apology. He tried to claim that Alicia had come on to him too strong, and no matter what he did, he just could not escape her clutches. Essentially, he was claiming that she raped him. He said he could have left, but he was more concerned with making their big day something special. Vicky finally burst into a big smile and said, of course, she forgave him, and they had a big hug. The look of relief on Edge's face was great. He tried to move in for the makeup smooch, but she turned her head away. She has something to apologize for herself, she said. When she was really, really mad at him, she did something that he might not like. He said, it was okay. What is it? She said she reinstated The Undertaker. The reaction from the people must not have come across as well on TV because they got a big but not monstrous pop. Although you can see fans jumping down and cheering and pumping their fists in the air. Edge was all flustered, but then regained his composure and said, that was cool. It was good business to bring him back. He said they should go on their honeymoon and let Hunter and The Undertaker ballot out, and then he could return and pick the bones. She said that was a good idea, but the problem was Undertaker's already booked for a match at SummerSlam. Terrified, he asked who the opponent was, and of course she screamed, You! That got a huge pop, and then to take the whole thing to a new level of awesome, she added it would be in a hell in a cell. Then erupted into the greatest diabolical cackling laugh you've ever heard. A woman scorned. Everything about this was great, from Vicky to Edge to the fact that it ties the Undertaker storyline together without making it seem like such a blatant killing of a stipulation. Like William Regal, for example, who was just back on Raw with no good explanation whatsoever. Now, by the way, are we going through both Ryan Alvarez recaps of the show? Oh, yeah, I noticed that. I put you had both the Brian Observer recap and the Brian Figure Four recap. Yeah, I didn't. I pasted one before the other one. So, yes, I will delete that out. Thank you. I cut the notes down, too. How about that? Uh, all right, so... Danny, you're there live for this. I mean, this is one of the great Vicky moments in WWE. Yeah, this has, this has. So, what what are your memories of this? Um, when she said Undertaker, the crowd erupted. <laughs> the crowd erupted when she said "you." Um, it it was like it was like perpetual glee. <laughs> I was like, I hated that at the time, man. It. It was like Edge was a sleaze ball, and and like no one could get to him, and he's finally gonna get beat up by the Undertaker. It's gonna be fun, and in Hell in a Cell, hey, hey, we we gotta win here, and that was one of the better Hell in a Cell matches of that era. Yeah, I mean, the, this whole feud was done right, and uh, fix it, you know. I guess we're not going, we don't have any this for a clip, do we? I mean, I forgot to pull up the VPN, but also, do we really? I don't think we need any of this, do we? I don't. I don't know. I mean, it is kind of an interesting moment. Let me see. I might could find it on YouTube. I mean, they would have the YouTube upload, so I would think there would be. Okay, they're they're up here. I'm just trying to figure out uh, which one to use here because there's a few of them up. All right, here we go. Is there an official one? No. Not for what I just searched for. Anyway, here's one. So. Okay. 
Am I queuing this up to anything? Uh, just let's see. I guess just let it play. It's, it's two fifty-eight. It's all right. Oh, okay, I didn't open this one yet, so I thought it was longer. I wanted to come out here. I wanted to apologize publicly to my wife, Victoria. Vicky, Vicky, please come out here. Vicky, please hear me out, okay? Oh, it's, the, it's like an it's the edited old edited like WWE.com version or something. Yes. Which probably helps. Yeah. I know. I know that what I did was horrible. And Vicky, I won't live without your love. I can't. I can't live without your love. Oh, baby, I mean, I, I understand. I, I do understand. But you need to understand that hell hath no fury over a woman scorned. When I was really, really, really mad at you, I did something that you might not like. Okay, I, I understand that. I understand. I understand what, 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 what did you do? I reinstated the Undertaker. Okay, all right. I, uh, you're a businesswoman. This, this is a business. That, that's, that's good business. You know the recap didn't really a good job didn't really do a good job getting across that she's playing it straight and not as vengeful at first. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Even I... though she talks about the hell half no fury, which yeah. honestly is a little bit of a weird way to format the promo, but yeah. And uh Oh boy. Um besides we can go on our honeymoon. We can go on our honeymoon and then the undertaker and Triple H, The Undertaker and Triple H, they can destroy each other. We'll come back from the honeymoon, I'll pick the bones, and whoever wins, I'll take back my WWE Championship. That sounds great and all, but baby, I've already scheduled an opponent to face The Undertaker at SummerSlam. Oh, okay, um, who? Baby, you can't mean that. You don't mean that. You can't mean that, right? Yeah. Oh, baby, I do mean it. And it will be hell in a cell. The you facial know, there when she says hell in a cell is fucking phenomenal. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Edge and Vicky definitely, you know, had fantastic chemistry. It's his and best work as day. a personality, I think, in a promo. Yes. 
We know he comes off like here and this whole thing, right? Hmm. Triple H. A young Triple H. Hmm, kind of. And like the Triple H, like a Triple H in this Stephanie era, the beginning of Stephanie era and stuff like that. Yeah. He comes off in that, in that type of fashion. And, um, yeah, I mean, really good stuff. Absolutely. All right. Um, so on the Fast National ratings wise, we get the full report. It was down 13% from the wedding show the week before, but the preliminary national number was a 2.4, which is the same as the wedding show with a final number next week's issue. And I don't think they I ever saw the final number in next week's issue. So there, there's that. Uh, because he, Dave sometimes would do that. He would he would miss the he would forget to put SmackDown tape ratings in there sometimes. Uh, and um, just to give you a note here, um, Triple H and Edge did fight for a street fight in the w, for a WWE title um, match. Um, Triple H retained, of course. Um, in a dark match, I remember watching that. It was just your standard, right. um, standard fare there. Dave does not have that because he did not get the. So yeah, so yeah, so yeah. Even at the ECW, they still had the dark match. So there you go. <laughs> well, the dark match is there in part to keep people in the yeah, series. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now Dave has thoughts about SmackDown. Today, SmackDown has become easily the best wrestling show on TV due to Edge and Vicky. They've been so incredible the past two weeks. Having said that, and Dave doesn't know it's being on Friday or not, but SmackDown is one show that hasn't benefited from the draft as far as noticeable ratings upturns. It's interesting about SmackDown because when things go bad and Raw and ECW shows noticeable drops, SmackDown also doesn't. It seems like, good or bad, they're going to be at a certain level based more on seasonal viewing patterns, like a network show, while Raw and ECW go up and down based on star power and segments, angles, and overall company momentum. Edge is the company's MVP once again. That's an all-around performer, and it's pretty amazing watch how much Vicky has improved. The Edge-Alicia Fox deal where he seduced her seemed to be a spoof of the Edge-Amy Dumas thing a few years back, which in its own way, because it forced the heel turn and put Edge with Lita, really put Edge's career into overdrive in the first place. The opening set with MVP and Jeff Hardy was weird. It reminded Dave of the TNA segment that MVP had better delivered than most of TNA would have. The whole deal is they have lost focus of their audience and assume they're more into the product than they are. There's a hardcore audience that knows Jeff Hardy was suspended twice and that his trailer burned down, this dog died. But if you just were a casual viewer, which is the vast majority of the people watching, you would watch the MVP Lounge segment and not had a clue what they were talking about. Suspension? Termination? In WWE, they have the announcers completely lay out the, their new segments, but at some point, whether it's the wrestlers or the announcers, they have to give the background for the fan who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. Jeff Hardy tells MVP that he made his mistakes. MVP spent years in prison before training to be a pro wrestler, but they guess left that 5% of TV audience would know that since it's never been pushed on TV. MVP is also the first person of a non-Samoan heritage on a wrestling show that Dave's ever seen correctly pronounced Samoan. <laughs> the deal is that we all grew up in school and listen to wrestling announcers and football announcers pronounce it wrong, so the American pronunciation of the word is actually the wrong one. It's interesting to watch Richards come out of Philadelphia. He came out all enthused. Nobody knew who he was. And then when they announced he was from Philadelphia, the people popped. It really showed Dave how much Giannis has turned over in recent years. They had cause off some more for Stevie for anyone to date, and it sure been a good idea if he hadn't sold much because he looked downright lost at times. Jim Ross told a story about Kozlov being recruited as a young boy because of his size and being groomed for athletic stardom, actually saying Kozlov was large for his size, meaning large for his age. By the way, none of that's true. Dave, 
guessing Ross used to story about the real life Alexander Carellin, who was schooled from childhood by the government in Greco Roman wrestling because he was so large as a six year old. They also did the Ron Killings vignette with his new memoir, Truth. They show where he grew up. He mentioned hanging out with a bad crowd, winding up in prison, learning from his experience, and not blaming anyone but himself for his problems. He showed a lot of charisma in the vignette, but you never know what'll happen. They filmed eight different vignettes. So it could be long as two months before he starts on television, or it could be next week, knowing how quickly things change. Dave can recall how Monty Brown locked a superstar waiting to happen in TNA, and then when he jumped, people thought he'd break through, and then he came here, and they were so adamant about not having to do anything that got him over at TNA. They ended up being lost soul to everyone anywhere. Boy, is that fucking true. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, Brian Kendrick's getting a shot as a heel. This is a real indication how much WWE's changed because a guy of Kendrick's size, even a year ago, would have never been able to do anything past the Jamie Noble level as a heel. The idea for Kendrick is to be someone and create a Michael's Diesel element, and that is who Kendrick and Big Zeke are patterned after. Zeke has a good look. Jim Ross is trying to push that Kendrick reminds him of the late Brian Pillman. Kendrick is now the Brian Kendrick, as his sure no eyes, slice bread number two finishers, now the Kendrick, which is a spoof of the Taz line by Mike Adamley. <laughs> Mike Adamley was so bad. Mike Adamley. Oh, God. Well, I cut Adam Lee some slack now that it turns out he was probably having a seizure each time he made a mistake. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. People, I mean, I don't, it gets forgotten. I don't, I don't blame you for saying that, but it's like, it's, it casts a cloud on all that, I think. Um, I, I Didn't it come out that he has CTE? I mean, he's still alive, so you can't fully diagnose it, but he ha he has slash had a seizure disorder from football concussions that the belief is is that the reason he became such an error-prone live broadcaster was from small seizures he has. Because, you know, I want, God knows, I watch a lot of live sports. I mean, not live sports, a lot of classic, well, live sports and classic sports. And Mike Adamley um, was a major player on NBC in the late 70s and oh, early yeah. 80s. As far as NFL coverage, he I mean, him and Brian Gumble were the studio host, and then he started doing you know a couple of different things. But all of a sudden, he just faded away. I mean, he left national NBC and then became more of a Chicago only guy. But you watch him, and he's one of the more, most polished guys doing that type of stuff. So it just you know? manifested later on. It just manifested as time went along. Yeah, and he was a a you know multi Emmy award winning sportscaster in Chicago. So. I guess it's one of those things the older he got, the worse it got, which leads me to believe it's, you know, possible, you know, CTE type stuff. Yeah. All right. The original booking idea come out of the wedding and split was for Vicky to go babyface, which is why we had noted that it would likely be evaluated because everyone in the company was amazed at the level of heel heat Vicky had been getting the past few months, and there was no fan groundswell for a change. Because of that, the actual plan was to do a Kurt Karen like one week split, which actually would have been the second time repeating that angle in a one month period. Vicky would risk the Undertaker when she was mad at Edge, so it wouldn't be that they were working together sort of the audience. But then the end, Edge and Vicky would have gotten back together like they did in the previous split. Thankfully, that would have changed because one of the reasons, because simply being in a more major league setting and doing better paced angles, the Edge and Vicky are so much more open than Kurt and Karen. Now, the audiences haven't been burned out by all the fake turns and swerves. The problem essentially is they want to keep them together, but they decided to postpone the wedding a week because of New York preemption. So they need an angle there and still need the angle to get Undertaker back to headline SummerSlam. About that Brian Kendrick <laughs> there before you um, went off on the uh, Vicky thing, um, 
I, I really liked the Brian Kendrick character. Um, it was it was interesting for that time period, and it really Kendrick Kendrick really leaned into it really hard, and he 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 got the best out of it. He well, got it was short. his best WWE work. Yeah, it was by far, and he even got a short twenty second WWE Championship run. Well, kind yeah, of. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're kind of right. I always thought the Pillman comparisons were heavy-handed, though. It was because he had curly hair in that jacket. That's all. Yeah, it was. It, it wasn't. I mean, that, the Pillman thing. I mean, should have been. They should have been comparing Sean and Dean. So, anything else? Yes. Yes. So that's a rightful comparison. Yes. Right. Uh, and and the Vicky thing. Um, it really was about. It was. It was about time for Vicky to go babyface, but. It really, you you should never turn Vicky Guerrero. It's it's really hard once she's really good in that heel role to turn her. Yet I think they did a good job to a certain point of turning her baby face without losing the annoyingness of her character. Yeah. Eventually, yeah, yeah. All right, let's go to the torts. CM Punk did an interview uh, with the Winnipeg Sun, where he sees born to be a champion, and WWE fans haven't seen everything he can bring to the table. I always believe this will happen. I'm not trying to be cocky, but it was something I was born to be, Punk told Tim Baines of the Winnipeg Sun about becoming world champion. I don't think WWE fans have really seen anything out of me yet. I think I'm going to be able to uh, talk to people in the buildings. Just give me your microphone and let me go with it. That sounds like code for I want to turn heel and they will not let me, but obviously I can't do that right now. <laughs> Yeah, ain't that the truth? But he was confident he, in his talking, which he, you know, should have been. Yes, and I mean, he also, was confident. Go ahead. Sorry, he was confident in his talking, and he was very confident in his abilities in the ring too, because he was a very sound worker at the time. Even in that 2008 run, he was trying to trying to have good matches and stuff like that, and it was very. It was very interesting to me just to see him lean into that a little harder in this interview. Yeah. All right, Jim Ross, Sam with the torch, it responded to rumors of an announcer switch with Ross possibly returning to Raw. Best as I know, this is nothing more than a weak rumor, Ross said on JRSBarbecue.com. No one from WWE has mentioned the possibility of this matter to me in any shape, form, or fashion. He had that he's happy with his current schedule on SmackDown and wouldn't want to return to Raw. I'll be reluctant to leave a more wrestling-heavy SmackDown to return to my old address, he said. Regarding working with Mick Foley, he said, I'm personally proud of Mick's efforts and certainly hope the multi-talented former wrestler with so many skills and talents will continue to work with me on SmackDown. I know I'm having fun and would like to think our team is improving each week. Ross liked the Bash preview on Sunday. He wrote, overall, thought the Great American Bash was a solid show and had some good moments. No athlete mailed it in, which is something I personally always look out for. Noah's pay-per-view a talk fest. I do wish some of the bouts had more time for them to transact their business. That seems fair. Um, what was the other thing I noticed here? Mick Mick is gone, what, on the SummerSlam Go Home show is where they write him out? I think so, yeah. Right, because it's, it's Edge putting him through a table, I think because he's talking about Undertaker and Hell in a Cell, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. He did not like Vince yelling in his ear, and particularly for Mick, it was this big departure because he did not have that kind of relationship with Vince previously. No. Plans for ECW knew their statements on Monday had been dropped. From the start, it was virtually unanimous to everyone who we spoke with that that is and was around that it was a bad move because Mondays are so much more stressful than Tuesdays. 
Plus, for the ECW guys, it'd be far harder to get on house shows because Raw has a greater roster depth. Yeah, yeah, that, that would have been a bad move. Yeah, yeah. Florida Championship Wrestling second team for a TV show that, as of right now, still doesn't exist. Took place on July 24. Brian Kelly replaced Todd Grisham as the announcer, working with Dusty Rhodes. Dave wonders when they'll give Timothy Baltimore a tryout. Oh, Timmy Baltimore! There we go. Yeah, I never saw any of the Timmy Baltimore. He was the OVW lead announcer in the latter part of the developmental era. He's one of Dusty's guys and became one of Cody's guys. Oh, you would know Uh, him from, um, he was the guest announcer on Cody's match at All In. That guy. He didn't. Oh, that guy? Yeah. And he also also worked with uh, Cody here when Cody ran his two shows here. And where I live, and in fact, they did the angle where uh, they did that angle with Timmy in uh, Florida. Oh, where he got you super kicked. What? Yeah, right. So uh, right. So yeah, I just that. Not, didn't recognize the name. That's why I asked. Yeah, I, I forget. It was his real name on All In, but it's Tim something, I think. But I forget what it was. Yeah. Vic Adams and Charles Evans are there as two big African Americans who are working as heels in shirts and jeans. Alpha Jr. continues to be an Umaga copy. Batista was confronted by Seamus O'Shaughnessy, which ended up at a spinebuster on you-know-who. Maria was there as a guest. Then announced Mickey James, Kane, MVP, coming on July 29th. Can you imagine if they gave OBW this kind of weekly support? Tyrone Jones, should be Tyrone Evans, who's about to be called up as an MMA shoot fighter gimmick. Joe Henning is wrestling just like Kurt. Things could be worse. He even uses the perfect plex as his finisher and takes the overdone bumps. Alicia Fox, the wedding planner, worked a women's tag match team with former Diva Search competitor and longtime developmental wrestler Melena Roca. Jake Hager beat TJ Wilson in a very good match. <laughs> That's the swag and TJ. Uh, Hager's doing the Goldberg Win Street gimmick as FCW champion. In a trivia note, he was a rival of Cain Velasquez on both were in college. And then Matt Hardy and Jeff Hardy wrestled the main event, beating Nick Nemeth and Sean Spears. Ooh, what a tag team there! What a name! What a what a what a group of names at this taping too. Good Lord of mercy! Yeah, but it was certainly the FCW days, all right. And Milena Roca would become Rosa Mendez. So that's right. There's that. I always forget that's her for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, yes. no no TV deal yet. They don't have the deal with what was it, Sun no. Sports or whatever? Yeah. No, not Sun Sports. It was uh, Lighthouse. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, Lighthouse would air these FCWs um, like further into 2008, 2009, 2010. And like it was, it, it was interesting watching the, back those TVs and see how starkly different the FCW stuff is from NXT even. And from OBW. Yeah. All right. This is <clears throat> this is gonna be a fun one for Bix. In the just being nasty department, WB Legal sent a threatening letter regarding an Ultimate Warrior autograph section section that took place on July twentieth at the Marriott next door to the Nassau Coliseum on the day of the Great American Bash. About hundred and fifty people came for the fifty five dollar per autograph session. WB complained about the timing of the event. Jeez Louise. That's just being smart. Now they threaten if you book something near their show. They also complain Warrior was advertised appearing with his WF championship belt. That one they have an argument for, since title belts have legally been ruled as owned intellectual property of the organization. 
It was the belt the company gave him for being a champion. Make sure you remember this? Vaguely. Because um, this is the era where he's starting to do a little bit of signings here and there again. Um, I guess if the... Well, I'm curious what the photo and stuff in the ads looked like. Like, or were they just advertising that he'd have the belt there for the photos and stuff? I guess. Still, this is just... <sighs> this is why they start getting there all their weird injunctions and stuff for whatever mile radius near WrestleMania. Yeah. Although that's, re that's really about bootleg merch, but still... You know, they also get the thing written in where as many buildings, like if it's the Mania Weekend City, like getting the publicly owned buildings to not rent to anyone else that does wrestling. But like, what are you sending a legal letter for? I'd love to know what this looked like. Because it's warrior. I know, but I, I want to know what the letter looked like. I want to know what they actually said. What did, like... Well, I'm surprised you don't have a copy of it, knowing you. Well, if... <sighs> and your friend Jerry... Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm trying to think if the DVD lawsuit was still going at this point. Let me see. I'll I'll look, but this is just weird. Also, can you imagine? Okay, I got to pull out inflation calculator because I'm curious. Um, so this is 2008, and they just said autograph, so we don't know exactly. So let's just say 55. Seventy-five, sixty-nine. That's still less than a someone like Warrior would be charging now. Yeah, different so, times. Yep. Fans, fan culture is totally different now than it was then. So there's that. All right. Uh, the company's expected ex expanding and changing their WWE films division, including a name change to WWE Studios. According to an article in Variety, the name changes because they're going into the business of producing TV shows. Of comedy and drama. The idea of a WWE produced comedy is really scary. Although Dave supposes they hire good people and Vince is a hands on and rewriting things, maybe it isn't all that bad. Dave just sees Vince McMahon mentality of what makes for a good comedy TV show would be ungodly bad. Because with a TV series, you don't have that kind of a condition based audience you like you have of wrestling. A new movie the company is doing is called Sucker Punch, which stars Paul White in a movie about bare knuckle fighting. Yes, big show. As an MMA-style street fighter. And I don't think that one happens, right? Nope. Nope. The new goal is to do two theatrical release movies budgeted from $10 million to $20 million per year and five to six straight-to-DVD movies with $5 million budgets. The first straight-to-DVD release is behind Enemy Lines 3, starring Ken Anderson. Kennedy. I guess the people doing the movies don't have any hatred for Ole Anderson. <laughs> uh oh A second DVD project... A second DVD project would be a sequel to The Marines starring John Cena. This one is being handled by Morgan Lake, who took over after Joel Simon headed the division, was let go after the massive losses incurred by The Condemned. The movies from this point forward would be less violent and not aimed at the adult audience, but at the kids' audience, with PG-13 and PG ratings. Lake said the division would concentrate more on producing new TV series with 30-minute comedy shows and 60-minute dramas. If they produce TV shows, they would use retired wrestlers like Flair, Foley, Dusty Rose, Piper, or Austin as starring roles since the current stars couldn't do a TV series without being taken off the roster for several months at a time. While with a movie, you can do it in a month or two. A big problem here would be an attempt to do too much. WWE can use this TV to market wrestling, but when it comes to appearances by wrestlers, history has shown the first time WWE pushes, say wrestlers doing a TV series, WWE audience follows the wrestler and boosts the ratings, 
But when it started happening frequently, the wrestling audience stopped following the wrestlers. The idea of one or two movies a year is actually more than it's worked in the past. In the first run, by moving them to three over a few-year period, they hit two mild successes and one huge money loser, which put the whole division deeply in red ink. The idea of a two-a-year plus several on DVD and doing TV shows will dilute the novelty of the guys appearing on outside projects. Now, if they could put on shows and movies of the quality and with the ability to market and sell them to a non-wrestling audience and not have it connected with wrestling, they had the same chance as any studio. But they count on the wrestling fans supporting multiple projects that will burn out when the novelty of such a thing ends. <clears throat> this wasn't successful. Um, uh, no, no. They're, they're in and over their head on this one. You know? Yeah. And I pulled up the Variety article. There's one interesting little thing that's not covered in Dave's summary that I got to read. Um, yeah. Projects won't necessarily star the WWE athletes, but rather feature them in guest roles as secondary characters or in cameos, as the grapplers already have hectic schedules appearing on three shows per week and live events year-round. Instead, projects might star former WWE wrestlers such as Stone Cold Steve Austin, Mick Foley, Roddy Piper, and Ric Flair. And then there's this quote from Lake, which is why I'm reading this. Current stars can't be everywhere. The legends are a real asset. Kind of interesting, given the way they shift WrestleMania and some of the other major shows and stuff, too. Yeah. But, yeah, this did not go well for them. And now... No. I forget, did they just completely get rid of the division with the pandemic? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this did not go well. I remember when Legendary came out, which was a few years later, and they were trying to make this into like this big critical acclaim deal, and it really wasn't. Yes. And it only made $200,000 at the box office. Well, it was a limited release, but yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, just, it just, they, they had a, some, a few successes, and then, like Dave said, fans just got tired of them and didn't work no more. So. May 19th being like one of the bigger successes. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. And to close, Don Ostroff of CW at a press conference for the Television Critics Association talked about the decision to drop SmackDown. WU on Friday night was really all men. SmackDown does about 67% men. There's no duplication in our audience at all for any of our other shows. We look at the viewers who came to us from WWE. They didn't watch any other show on the CW and vice versa. We need to have taken something like WWE off, which is a very strong performer, but have impact on the schedule. The question is, will we be able to compensate in other places? But I think what's really important is that we have talked about building a brand and having flow. It was a really tough decision and a bold decision to take WWE off. It was not easy. The strategy of being able to brand this network was what we were thinking about. Basically, what she's talking about is that they decided to go just completely all in on teen girls as their audience. And it worked. Yes. It did. <laughs> Vampire Diaries. Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls. Later Vampire Diaries. Um, because Vampire Diaries would air on CW. Um, and And then they started doing the superhero type shows. Yeah. Doing so, so many of them. Yeah. And yeah. we should know, too, Ostroff was the UPN executive that then – was in charge of CW after the merger with WB. This is not the yes. WB executive canceling SmackDown. This is the no. UPN executive canceling SmackDown. But, re I mean, it's interesting reading these quotes because 
Boy, doesn't it sound like ECW on TNN. Here's the difference, though, and what makes this kind of extra interesting. SmackDown was the whole night of programming on the network. Yeah, because they were 8 to 10. So there's no lead or no lead out to benefit from it. Yeah, so, so it, what she's saying doesn't make any sense. Not in the way we usually think of it, no. Because, I mean, because what, it, what, what are you going to watch on follow-up? I mean, there's no CW follow-up at 10 o'clock. Let me see if I can find the lineup. Uh, okay, I here think, we go. I mean, basically, basically what she's saying is the male demographic that, that watches SmackDown doesn't watch any of her other shows that we yeah. advertise on SmackDown. Yes. That's what she's saying. And then the, the female demographic that watches our other shows doesn't watch SmackDown. Yeah. Yes. There's no trade-off there, so it's not worth yes. it to have SmackDown on even though it's a highly rated program. Yes. Exactly. Uh, so that's, that's what she's saying. Actually, Gilmore Girls had just ended the previous uh, season. Already? As, yes, and Veronica Mars was canceled at the end of the previous well, season. Well, I remember that. But uh, uh, Gilmore Girls? So for 0708, uh, your returning shows were Next Top Model, Beauty and the Geek, Everybody Hates Chris, The Game, Girlfriends, One Tree Hill, Pussycat Dolls Present the Search for Next Doll. One Tree Hill was still in the air? One Tree Hill was on for like 10 seasons, wasn't it? I can't even remember it being... What season was this? Let me look. You keep um, going. I'll look. Um, okay, maybe not that long. Okay, it's... And the Vampire Diaries will be the next year. Nine seasons. Nine All right, seasons. so I'm looking, I'm looking to see which season we're... Okay, it's season five, which... Yeah. I don't see... Season six is about to start up. Okay. Okay. Oh, so Smallville, Supernatural, SmackDown. The your new shows that season... Go, you know, oh, okay, okay, okay. What? See, I, this is when I tuned out of One Tree Hill. Okay. okay. Aliens. It's the, and... it's the last season of Lucas and uh, and uh, Peyton. And then what okay. season was the time jump? Uh, that's already happened. Oh, okay. So your new your new shows going into that season were Aliens in America, Crowned, The Mother of All Pageants, CW Now, Farmer Wants a Wife, Gossip Girl. Yeah. Life is wild. That's what I was saying about not. Yeah, I was saying about Gossip Girl, not Gilmore. There we go. Okay. Life is wild, which was what was that? The Sunday show with Lori Laughlin or whoever. Yes, her life is wild. And nine hundred two one zero will premiere that fall. Not yep, nine hundred two one zero, the new version. Yes. Yes. So also, Online Nation and Reaper. Yeah, the nine, the um, One Tree Hill reboot started in January two thousand eight, where they went four years into the future, and I, I mean, I watched that, and I it lost me <laughs> because I thought that was the stupidest fucking idea. So, mm. but yeah, anyway, like any of these other shows, like Gossip Girl, Nine Hundred Two One, the rebooted Nine Hundred Two One Zero, and Vampire well, I'm watching you 90210 on there, and I watched it for a good little bit, but and Lori Lawton was on that. We should <laughs> note, too, that Don Ostroff did make some other miscalculations and stuff with the first year or so. Of, I mean, this was the first season of CW that we just came out of, because, I mean, the yeah. big one that everyone points to, and it was obvious watching at the time, you understood like where the logic was coming from as far as making uh, Gilmore Girls the Veronica Mars lead in because of the quippy dialogue and stuff. But the themes of the two shows were very different and they were not compatible. 
And that sh probably should have been more obvious to an experienced television executive, but it was not. Yeah. No, it was not. All right. Well, that's it for WE, Danny. So, uh, so it's my time to... Yeah, you're time to go. So we won't let you plug anything you want to plug, my man. So what what you got going on? All right. So follow me on Twitter at DJDCooks. Um, Instagram, D-K-U-C-H-L-E-R-31096. My podcast, Great Match Generator, with Adam Yeary on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. And I'm recording another Meet the Press Slam. I think both should be up by the time... Um, this comes out with Tom Batista with the Military Industrial Suplex. Um, and then me and Adam Yeary are going to be covering in this week's episode of uh, Great Match Generator. Sasha Banks versus Charlotte Helena Cell. Um, Minami Toyota versus Shinobu Kamidori from 98. Kiyoshi Tamura versus Tuyoshi Koshaka from U Style. And Butch Reed versus Dick Murdoch from mid 1085. All right. Interesting stuff there. All right, Dan, we appreciate you uh, being on with us. And uh, me and Bix will be back in just a second. All right, me and Bix are here to take on the rest of the show. And, boy, we got a lot to talk about. Let's go to Japan first. Land of the Rising Sun. And we're going to, you know, preface this. This is a time period where I was either had stopped. I can't remember when I exactly stopped covering Japan. Uh, for the new stuff on Death Valley Driver, or this was a time where I was quitting doing it, but this is the towards the end. So I'm not watching this stuff on a regular basis. Bix isn't watching this stuff on a regular basis. So we, I mean, we got stuff to talk about, but we're not going to be as uh, verbose possibly on the on this show as we were as we are on other shows. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe I was still getting major Noah shows at this time. But that's about it. And I don't think we have any Noah this week. So, Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with All Japan Pro Wrestling. The new tour opened up on July 20th at Cork and Hall featuring a return of Satoshi Kojima. After being out for 15 weeks after right elbow surgery for damage for all those years of lariats. Yes, you can hurt yourself throwing lariats. And uh, as they like to do, when you come back from an injury, it's protocol in Japan. Not an absolute rule, but a cultural thing passed down. This is how you do it. For realism, that the guy is coming back from an injury, he should lose his first match back because of ring rust. Usually the idea is for them to look good and all fired up. Anyway, Keiji Muto and Osama Nishimura beat Kojima and Taru when Nishimura rolled up Kojima in 1831. Kojima used many chops, elbows, and lariats with the right arm to show he's healthy. Main event saw tag champions Minoru Suzuki and Taiokea win a non-title match over Suwama and Akira Raijin, when Suzuki pinned Raijin. They also began their junior weight tournament with Kazayashi, who's working even with a broken rib, pinning T-28, and Shuji Kondo pinning Kai. Americans on the tour are Taiokea, listen to this group, folks, Taiokea, Antonio Thomas, Phil Atlas, Zodiac, Aaron Aguilera, Plus, Silver King's in from Mexico for the tournament. All right, let's go with the results. We have Nasawa, Mazada, and Katsushi Takamura. Tokyo Gurantai over Masafuchi, Nobutaka Arai, and Nobukazu Harai. We have Hiroshi Yamamoto's return match as uh, Ryuji Jakata Manabu Soya defeated Seiya Sonata. Yes, that's Sonata. And uh, Hiroshi Yamamoto. 
Then we got Zodiac, Silver King, and Brother Yashi. So let's look at this. Aaron Aguilera, Silver King, and Brother Yashi over El Samurai, Phil Atlas, and Antonio Thomas. And that's New Japan's El Samurai, too, here in All Japan at this point in time. And what a fucking match. And we should note, because of his whole makeover and stuff, Antonio Thomas is Thomas Santel. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so Thomas Santel, Phil Atlas, and El Samurai. Lost to the team of Aaron Aguilera, Silver King, and Brother Yashi. Yes. Next, we get the Junior League, Block B, Kaz Ayashi over T28, Shuji Kondo over Kai in a Block A match, Mudo and Nishimura over Kojimataru, and then Kea and Suzuki over Suwama and Raijin. This does look like a heck of a fun promotion at the time, though. Yeah, how about, you know, last week we had Suzuki and Noah as one half of the GAC Tag Champions with Marafuji. This week we have Suzuki and All Japan as one half of the Tag Team Champions with Tai Okea. He was in New Japan, you know, for a while there as tag champion with Yoshiro Takayama. <laughs> but Nora Suzuki's second life has been quite the life, hasn't it? And this is a guy that when he started pro wrestling again, everyone was like, eh, it'll be a little bit of a novelty run. He's too brain damaged to do anything. Yeah. You know, and broken down in general from, you know, years of constant training and fighting and all that. But he... Can you imagine how good he would have been if we had him in his athletic prime with the kind of wrestling brain this guy has? Oh yeah, well he spent a lot of years, you know, a lot of years in Pancrase, you know, just lost in time, so to speak. But I uh, mean, to think of the degree this guy figured it out, given his physical stain and everything. Yeah, and knowing what an athlete he was when he was younger. And, you know, in the little bit we have of him in older works, I don't think we have any New Japan, but we do, you know, UWF and early Fujiwara Gumi. Like, who knows how good that guy could have been, you know, in his athletic prime. Yeah. All right, New Japan. Also, I just realized you kept saying Hiroshi Yamamoto instead of Hiroshi Yamato. Yes, right. Sorry. Yeah, we were not talking about Tenzon. Yeah. All right, New Japan Pro Wrestling. They ran the Taisetsu Arena in Ashikawa on July 20th in front of 1,300 fans. Yujiro, Tsuyu Naito, and Kashika Okada as your opening match over Super Strong Machine, Taichi Chikari, and Nobu Yoshihashi. Yes, Yoshihashi as well here. Wataru Inoue, Tiger Mask 4, and Yusuke Taguchi over Great Bash Heels, Jado, Gato, and Carl Anderson. Then we had the... Uh, Junior Summer Struggle number one IWGP Tag Title Preliminary Skirmish, Akira over Minoru Tanaka. And then uh, the number two skirmish, Jushin Liger and Prince Devitt, over Prince Devitt, excuse me. Then we have Takashi Izuka over Mitsuhita Hirasawa by referee stoppage. Then we had Shinsuke Nakamura, Hiroki Goto, Giant Bernard, and Rick Fuller over Great Bash Heels, Togi Makabe, Toru Yano, Tomohiro Ishii, and Tomoki Honma. On a landslide by Nakamura and Hama. And then our main event, Riki Choshu, Yuji Nagata, Manaba Dakanishi, Masahiro Chono, Hiroshi Tenzan, and Shiro Koshinaka. Hmm. Now, the tour, in, the tour ended on July 21st in Sapporo before reported 5,700 fans for the Keiji Muto Manaba Nakanishi IWGP title match. We were told they were very happy with how it drew. Muto retained the title in 2350 after surviving the torture act, German suplex. Muto used eight shiny wizards and a moonsault for the pin. Nichiren Nakanishi had done a strong job in recent weeks in making him seem special. 
He was booked to look strong at the expense of everyone that built it, that building his title chase. Plus, he was doing more than he done in years, like he was motivated to undo the tag of an underachiever, or a.k.a. the Japanese Lex Luger that has followed him most of his career. Maccabi and Yano retained the IWGP tag titles, beating Giant Bernard and Rick Fuller when Yano pinned Fuller in 1848. They had booked Bernard and Fuller strong the entire tour and trying to make them a new powerhouse foreigner tag team like a modern version of Gordy and Dr. Death. Then Prince Devitt and Minoru captured the junior tag titles, beating uh, Liger and Akira. In 1744, when Devitt pinned Akira to schoolboy, it's Devitt's first championship. Results. Takamas 4, Ishikari, and Yoshihashi over Yujiro, Naito, and Akata. Jado, Gato, and Hama over Koshinaka, Strong Machine, and Taguchi. What's our underway of Takashi Azuka by DQ? Nakamura, Goto, and Milano Collection AT over Riki Choshu, Yuji Nagata, and Mitsuhide Hirasawa. Chono and Tenzan over Tomohiro Ishii and Carl Anderson. I, and then the junior tag title match, Renor and Devitt over Liger and Akira, Makabe over Bernard and Fuller, and Muto over Nakanishi. We're seeing the building blocks here, especially on the foreigner side. Devitt's yeah. getting his first championship. Carl Anderson is starting to get more involved. Giant Bernard, if you forget that Carl Anderson's original partner was Albert. Was Matt Bloom? Yes, and, we've, we've got yeah. Rick Fuller here, obviously brought in by Matt Bloom. Yeah, so New Japan's undergoing something here, and I mean, it takes time, but we see what we saw what happened. So they're trying to rebuild, you know, post Enochism at this point in time. And given how bad things were in this era, this is a this is a legitimately good house for them. Yes. All right, Shiro Koshinaka has said he wants to bring the old high Seishin gun group back for one night on August 26th at Corican Hall. He said King Okamura would manage him. The other skinhead members were Akito Saido, Great Kabuki, Tetsu Shigoto, and Michi Ohara, but no word on which one's be on, on the show yet. And we should know, too, that, of course, Dave Meltzer put skinheads in parentheses next to high Seishin gun. Yes. Why? Who knows? Because only two members were bald. <laughs> All right, zero one max. Asushi Anita appeared for this group on July 20th in Amori in a trios match, teaming with Shinjiro Tani, Masato Tanaka, Emblem, beating Koei Sato, Kamikaze, and Katara Kanemura. Onita did his brawling all, all over the arena spots here. Uh, the results from this show at Tonyamachi Big Site in Amori Osamu, Nak- Naman- uh, Osamu Namaguchi over Ken Saito, Yusaku Ubada over Shito Ueda. Hikaru over Saki Memora. Ruji Sai and Tetito Takiiwa over uh, Takara Mori. And Tengu Baron. Is that Tengu Kaiser? Tengu, yeah, he went from Tengu Kaiser to Ten, Tengu Baron. Then we had an international lightweight tag title match as Minoru Fujita and Takushigawara beat Okoto Daka and Mununori Sawa. Having trouble saying stuff. And then uh, Masato Tanaka and Shinjiro Otani team with Esushi Onida. Beating Katara Kanemura, Koei Sato, and Kamikaze in your main event. Well, of the Japanese wrestler names, uh, Munenori has always been one of the more difficult ones to pronounce. Munenori, sorry, yes. So, Junior tag awesome. title sounds like a hell of a match, at least. Yes. Um, otherwise, I'd be curious to see the main event, because your FMW-inspired stuff in Zero One was always pretty fun. Oh, yeah. You always had a little bit of that flavor there, so 
you know, having Kanemaru on one side and Onita teaming with Tanaka and Otani. I, I, I think that could be pretty fun. Oh, yeah. And yeah, the thing with Zero One, of course, always that made it so fun, especially at the peak, was that it was such a variety show. Yes. All right, Big Japan Pro Wrestling. They ran a show at Cork and Hall on July 25th. No, you skipped something. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I went. I scrolled down too far. The wedding of Wataru Sakata and model Aiko Koike took place on July 24th. Koike is more famous than Sakata. And actually, the main reason Sakata, who was a journeyman wrestler MMA fighter for most of his career, is now a star because Koike was his girlfriend. Koike was so famous that every major TV uh, station in Japan covered the wedding, and TBS aired the wedding in a two-hour primetime block. Sakata isn't all that well-known in Japan as anything other than Aiko's boyfriend outside the pro wrestling audience, but that is the relationship that's made him the key main inventor in Hustle. Above former cult star H.G., and uh, Hall of Fame pro wrestlers like Tenuka Nichiro, Toshiko Kawada, and huge, huge cultural figures like Akabono and Bob Sapp. Yes, this was uh, Sakata's rap. I mean, he was he was a famous uh, boyfriend. <laughs> well, he, he was a boyfriend for a famous singer, so to speak. And a uh, famous model, excuse me, not singer. And um, it got him over, because I remember him becoming a bigger star in Hustle. Because of this, because Hustle is that type of promotion that's going to play off of something like that, you know? Yep. That was what got him his big Hustle push. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's really about it. I don't know if there's much else to say. He, he had, you know, all of those rings guys that crossed over in that era turned out to be surprisingly good at traditional pro wrestling. And I feel like he maybe gets lost in that conversation a little bit compared to the guys who were in... New Japan and other more visible places. Yes, because there was um, why am I forgetting his name? All of a sudden, the guy in the in the light blue. Uh, zero one. No, in New Japan. Um, oh, Junior no, Rusei. If there was Nurusei, there was Nagai. Is there anyone else I'm forgetting? Um, would you count Kakihara in that? Well, he wasn't in rings, was he? No, he was, but he was in UWFI. Um, Kosaka, who you know. Maybe that's what it is there. You mean as far as the guys who weren't pro wrestlers long in rings, at least? Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like those guys kind of overachieved relative to what your expectations would be since it was the shoe style group with the least pro wrestling-y style. Yes. All right, Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Now let's go to them. July 25th at Cork and Hall in front of 11.20. We have Masashi Takeda and Shinya Shikawa over Katsumatsu Inoue and Yuki Akabayashi. Yuchi Kanaguchi and Toshiro Tsuyoshi over Takakuba Benkei and Atsushi Ohashi. Men's World, Shinobu, Satomu Osugi, and Hercules Senga over Men's Teo, Onro, and Yuki Sato. Hardcore match. Yes, in Big Japan, they had to specify it was a hardcore match. Takashi Sasaki and Yuko Miyamoto over Isami Kodaka and Kankuro Hoshino. Big Japan tag titles, Daisuke Sakamoto and Mama Sasaki retained their titles over Yutaka Yoshie and Taishi Takizawa. And then a no-rope barbed wire board, false count anywhere death match, Shadow WX, Yuji Ito, and Abdullah Kobayashi over Jun Kasai, Jackie Mazawa, and American Masada. So yes, Yutaki Yoshie in Big Japan here at this point in time. Great. Yeah. I for some reason with him, I always forget who was that like celebrity they booked him against on that one show where they had the weird press conference interaction where the 
guy he was going to wrestle kept calling him Dave. <laughs> oh, God. I'm you remember, remember what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It was like he decided that because he, he was blonde that his name was Dave. It was very weird. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if there's much to say other than this. but I, I do wish, though, that Big Japan, I guess, was a little more available. I mean... I guess all the Japanese stuff was equally available in this era. But I feel like the kind of renaissance of the Big Japan Deathmatch style kind of went by quietly as far as Western impact because, you know, they had finally rebuilt the native roster as far as the Deathmatch guys, you know, and gotten past the CZW feud era where those guys were too green for the spot. But people didn't really get to see it. Like, can you imagine, like, if a... If Ryuji Ito came along in a time where there were semi-regular imports of Japanese deathmatch guys, yeah, I know, right? I mean, he would have been a much bigger star if he came along in in, in different in a different era, you know, either earlier Big Japan or even later Big Japan. Yes. So, but anyway, all right, DDT. They ran a big show at Shinkiba First Ring on July twentieth in front of three hundred ninety-five fans. We had a number one contender tournament for the KOD Open Weight title. Quarterfinal matches. Kudo over Hiroshima. Tanama Sakutoba over Daichi Kakamoto. Kodobushi over Hoshitango. Mikami and Yashiro Yorona went to a double countout. And then went to a double countout again. And then Yorona beat Mikami by countout. Then we had Sei Morahashi and Yukihiro Abe over Daisuke Sasaki and Keisuke Ishii. Then we had a T2P Hexagon Ring Lucha Libre Classico Rule match for the DDT Extreme title as President Sanchiro Takagi defeated Masa Takanashi to retain the title. Nuru brothers, Michael Nakazawa and Tomomitsu Matsunaga are poised to water Julie and Mitsuyunagai. And then the semifinals of the tournament, Kudo over Tanama Sakotoba and Kodobushi over Yashiurano. Metal Vampire, Toruashi and Ku over Denshoko Dino and Muscle Sakai. Nikoto Bushi over Kudo in the finals of the number contender tournament. And then a delay Chuke match, whatever the hell that means. Dick Togo over Antonio Honda in one hour, 25 minutes, and six seconds. What a show this is here. I do remember that match. I do remember that match going almost 90 minutes. What can you say? But here's Kota. This is when Kota's really starting to become you know, a guy in DDT, a top guy. So there's that. And we got more Coda that same day. Hard hit. A little sub-promotion. They ran Chikiba first ring in front of 316 fans. We had Masanori Ishikura over Shigehiro Irei. Hiroyuki Nozawa over Masato Shibata. Isami Kodaka over Shimamoto Sokan. Tanama Sokotoba over Masashi Takeda. Hiroshima Akigomori over Shujishikawa Mitsuya Nagai, and Kodobushi over Hikaru Sato. So there's uh, your Shinkiba First Ring shows for the, the, the week here or the day, whatever. All right, Dragon Gate, Hakata Star Lanes, July 20, in front of 2,200 fans. We have Anthony W. Mori, Dragon Kid, and Pac over, or Pac, excuse me, over uh, Taku Uwasa, Kenichiro Arai, and El Generico. Kness over Jackson, Florida. Cyber Kong over Akira Tozawa. Naoki Tanazaki and MCKZ over Super Shisa and Shisa Boy. 
three-way dance with Sakamoto Suzuki and Don Fuji over Susumu Yokosuka, Ryo Saito, and Yasushi Kanda and Yamoto. Then Naruki Dwai, Masato Yoshino, and BB Hulk over Shingo Takagi, Gama, and Genki Horiguchi in your main event. Okay. I, this just hit me. Um, were the Florida Brothers the first meme wrestlers? And I don't mean that in a negative way. Here's what I'm saying. There's no memes back then. Well, that, I know, but here's where I'm going with this. I feel like in an era where barely anyone was watching Japanese wrestling in the West, if you were online and you knew Japanese wrestlers, the Florida Brothers were probably among the people you had heard of. From Dino gifts and D stuff D like that. Dino more than them. Yes, but you get my point. I mean, yeah, I mean, people knew, you know, some people knew about them, but Dino more than them. Now, how much of that do you think was gifts, and how much do you think of that was Fire Pro? Oh, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be able to tell you. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we've got early Japanese work for Pack, which, just how many years do we get that wrong, anyway, and Generico? <laughs> A lot. A long time. Because it wasn't definitively, like, uh, yes, Wait, time, his pack until AEW, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I always called him pop back then. So, I guess, the, I guess the person to ask about this would be Lenny, right? Because I'm curious if he was told to call him pack or anything during Dragon Gate USA or whatever. I mean, I always, well, I always remember him calling Pac. So, I mean, not Lenny and Jim, but I remember announcers calling that. So, I don't know. Yeah. But I could be wrong. El Dorado, one of the Toriumon offshoot. They Is this Ultimo Dragon or something else, though? Um, he's involved, but so it's not say. necessarily his promotion. Mm, I wouldn't say it was his promotion, no. Okay. All right. Uh, they ran Shijuku Face on July twenty-four. Manitou Kishiwada and Go over the speed of sounds. Susumu Osugi and Hercules Senga. Takuya Shigawara over Mosugu Shimizu. And then with three-way, Brahman K and Ken45 went to a no contest with Jumping Kid Okimoto and Chango and Muninorisawa and Yuki Sato. Then we had a Battle Royal won by Muninorisawa with everybody in, er, in the, er, earlier in the show involved. Greatest Golden League, Block B, Brother Yashi over Kinyo Yanagi, Brahman Shu over Kota Ibushi in Block A. Toruwashi over Barefakud in Block B, and Kagatora went to a 30-minute draw with Shuji Kondo in Block A. So there's your El Dorado show. Michinoku Pro. They ran July 21st at Yahaba Townsman General Gym in front of 1,039 fans. Kissing the Majira over Takayuki Aizawa. Jinen Hokai over Subo Genjin. Super Delphin and Jin Seishinzaki over Yoni Genjin and Taname Toku Tohoku number 8. Fujita Hayato Jr., Shu Sato, Sato, Ken45, and Magura Oma defeated Kagatora, Takeshi Minamino, Shinjishu Nohashi, Rase, and Ri Hijikagi. Hiyugaji, excuse me. Kayantai DX, Dick Togo, Minsteo, and Shiru went to no contest with Great Sasuke, Grand Hamada, and Yoshitsune. And then, which led to Great Sasuke, Dick Togo, Minsteo, Shiru, Jinsei Shinzaki, and Grand Hamada. So your Michinoku Pro Golden Age over uh, Fujita Hayato Jr., Shusato, Fujita Jr. Hayato, excuse me, Shusato, Keisato, Ken45, Maguro Oma, and Takeshi Minamino in only six minutes, 21 seconds. So there's your novelty of all your Michinoku Pro legends teaming up here in a match. 
Yes. Have we started uh, Jack Sosuke era yet, or is he still wearing his pajamas? I wouldn't know. I really, I really haven't seen a lot of Michinoku Pro from this time period. All right. So I don't, I don't I have no idea. All right, Team Vader. Yes, there was a time when Vader was running a deal in Japan. And Shinky would first ring here on July 25th. Wait, wait, wait. Wasn't it Vader time, not Team Vader? It is listed as Team Vader here, Bix. Okay. So, but you're probably right. You're probably right. All right. So, um, anyway, uh, Hino and Mr. Gonsake went to a no contest in your opener. TLW World Women's Single Title Match. Haley Hatred retained over Yu Yamagata. Then we had Passion Red, Kana, Asuka. Nani Takahashi and Natsuki Taya over Io Shirai, Mika Mizunuma, and Mio Shirai. Big Bang Aruda over Hiroshi Kozakai. Hiroki Takashi and Mike DiBiase Jr. over Kazuma and Masato Shibata. And then Angel Williams and Michael Faith over Super Uchu Power and Tomohiko Hashimoto. Angel Williams, of course, being Angelina Love. Michael Faith... I remember that uh, name. He was he was a guy who was a Vader guy. Okay. That's about that's about it. He was one of, of you know, he wasn't trained by Vader or anything, but he was a Vader guy. Gotcha. How weird is it that of all the people on this show that I've seen live, the only one I've actually seen have no, excuse me. I phrased that wrong. Of all the people on this show, the only one I've seen wrestle live is Mio Shirai. <laughs> Yeah, even over Angelina Love and, uh, you know, that. And, I, well, yeah. I think Angelina, I've only seen on the ROH MSG show where she didn't have a match. Yeah. Um. By the way, <laughs> I know Mike DiBiase Jr. was the troubled of the DiBiase sons. Uh, these days, I think I'm going to take a guy with problems over the shit that his brother did recently. <laughs> right I, I'm going to take the guy dealing with uh, his personal demons over the guy embezzling money from the state for his personal gains yeah yeah I, I can understand that <laughs> yeah how about Haley Hatred of all people getting booked here too yeah interesting show also I, what is even going on here that that Vader is doing Vader booked shows that he's flying in for that draw a hundred people at Chinkiva first? Or oh wait, isn't this also the Vader gets in trouble with the Kuza era? Never mind. Yeah. Well, hey, <laughs> he's trying to make some bucks. What can you say? All right, Daily Sport. They had their first women's show take place in Osaka on July twenty first for seven fifty three fans. The Jumping Bob Angels, Izuki Yamazaki and Nuryo Tatano, both now 42. They one time the number two big-faced women's tag team during the real TV boom period, returned for the first time in close to 20 years as the team. They were a big hit when they toured WF together against Leilani Kai and Judy Mar and regularly still in the show of house shows. Yamazaki ended up moving to New York and getting out of pro wrestling after their run ended, while Tatano still wrestles in Japan. They did a 10-minute draw against the original Dynamite Girls from actually early in the 80s, Jumbo Hori, now 45, and Yukari Mori now 46. Uh, the main event was Daily Sport Tag Team Title Tournament. Spots Kurakagi and Keiko Hariyama beat Arisano Kojima and Yoshiko Tamura. On a legend team of Yumiko Hota and Manami Toyota beat Chikai Nakashima and Sonoko Kato. 
Kirk Hagen and Hariyama versus Toyota and Hota headline second show they'll promote on August 3rd at Cork and Hall. Devil Masami and Dup Matsumoto, two other legends from the 80s, appear on the show, as well as 90s stars Takako Inoue, Karu, and Karu Ito. Well, there you go. Nice way to get uh, get some of these ladies' uh, you know, bookings and stuff. They're in their 40s. Yeah, and Jumping Bomb Angels reunion was a thing that had not actually happened before. So, nice little novelty there. Um but Japanese women's wrestling is not in a good place at this time. No. Not at all. No. And also cool to see Jumbo Hori and Yukario Mori get a moment, too. Yeah. Because, you know, two of maybe, you know, I don't know how they're perceived in Japan, but in terms of Western fans that keep up, two of the most underrated in-ring wrestlers of all time, probably. Yeah. You know, all of, like, your... He, your when I say second tier, I mean in terms of push... Like, your, like, second-tier heels of that 80s boom. There are so many great wrestlers that people never talk about. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, Kazuhei Nagahori. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the other one that really comes to mind usually. But you get the idea. Like, all that stuff's on YouTube, by the way, everyone. If you want to watch, like, late 70s into the 80s All Japan Women, take your pick because it's all there. And that's stuff that that's stuff people need to watch because, you know, we talked before about, you know, watch Japanese women's stuff to see moves that you might not see other places. Even, you know, knowing people stole from it in the past, there's stuff from 80s shows that, that you won't see anywhere else. You know, and, yeah. it's, and there's so much heat. It's, it, it's something more people need to watch, especially now that it's so available. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So some great 2008 commercials. Well, great might not be the word. We're pivot to halftime where we'll talk about Patreon. We'll hit the plugs and then we'll come back and go to Canada for a couple of interesting stories there that I don't want to spoil at the moment. And we got uh, some news on AAA, some moving and shaking going on there, and TNA wrestlers and CMLL. All that and more after the break. person there's a Dell powered by Intel processors. Go to Dell.com or call now to find yours. Dell, yours is here. Hey, Mr. Opportunity here, and I've got some really good economic news for you. It's Honda clearance time. The perfect time to get your hands on a brand new Honda. Why Honda? Well, because they last a long time and have better residual value than other cars. True. Look at that legal down below. And that means you can keep more of your money. I live for this stuff. The 2008 Honda Clearance. For plenty of ways to keep more of your money, go to shophonda.com. I missed opportunity, and I approve this message. How it feels to chew five gum.
here's your Gotham City pizza. And uh, could you tell the Joker he owes me a car? Introducing the Gotham City pizza with 50% more pepperoni for $9.99. Domino's, you got 30 minutes. Personal foul? Inactive activities on a glorious day. Huh? Let's get out there and play! Sweet. There are lots of great play ideas online, but don't stay too long. Olivia Dunham. Yes, sir. I'm on my way. How is that even possible? Is it a cow? and bones on marriage. Cheat on your spouse, you get what's coming Anthropologically, 83% of societies are polygamous. Now you sound French. Wednesdays this fall, Bones is back. All new and going all out. Thanks a million. All new Bones, Wednesdays this fall on Fox. You're the folks that bought the old Miller place. In spite of what happened there. Excuse me? It's a dead zone. Calls have been getting lost in there for years. The last residence went completely insane. We have the Verizon network. You're good. Well, you've got crabgrass. We test our network every day to be America's most reliable. Verizon Wireless. Now get the new NV2 for just $99.99. People really like you, bud. Swingvote is a landslide comedy winner. It's smart, witty, irreverent, and so inspiring you'll stand up and cheer. America needs someone who's bigger than their speeches. Oh, boy. Swingvote. Rated PG-13. If you're going to eat $5, shouldn't you get more meat? Quiznos Large Deli Favorite Sandwiches are now $5 with more meat than similar Subway footlongs. Mmm, Quiznos. Yankees look to spark a second-half run when they battle the Red Sox. This week on Fox Saturday Baseball. We're back. Hope you enjoyed those great 2008 commercials. That's the fifth to the halftime segment of the show. Where we'll begin talking about Patreon. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. And we haven't started recording yet as we record this. But yes, this would be the final edition of Titan Gate 92. It'll be up this week. Before the fourth edition, so uh, be on the lookout for that as it comes out, and um, we'll be just you know tying up all the loose ends and finishing up with Pat Patterson coming back into the company. So, before good parts of it, folks. So if you haven't listened to the first three, you get on that. Five dollars a month, Patreon.com/slash/TwinTheSheets, and. Uh, you can listen to all that and all the other shows that we've done in our near six full years of the Patreon, covering all sorts of topics. And uh, yes, we'll be going in a different direction in August, and uh, we'll talk about that on the Patreon show. Well, that's it there first. So uh, I think everybody will be happy with what we do for August. So uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that. As just look, as we've done the other shows, it'd be just like those. So uh, if you love our Patreon shows. Then tell people about it. Let them know what we do. It's the best stuff we do. So tell them. Just get let's get them in the in the group, the group of patrons here. Now you can put a dollar month down, and that gets you access to the Discord. Thanks in this segment, which we'll do in just a second. Twenty five dollars allows you to pick a show for the week. Now um, make sure you probably 
for the best, you probably didn't have two shows in mind because the week that you picked, somebody else could have picked on the calendar already, or it could be something we've already talked about on a previous show. So uh, you need to, need to make sure that you uh, have two shows handy just in case. Then you have uh, the 30-day timeline. Of course, we get this uh, information into us. And if there's any questions regarding the shows that you uh, that you want to do, then ask us, and we'll uh, get with you and make sure everything works out for the best. And other things, of course, you Wednesday to Tuesday on the timeline, 10-year rules in effect, all that good stuff. And uh, you should be able to get your show taken care of once we get everything lined up and get you on the calendar and good to go. And follow the protocol on the Patreon website for our other information. $50, as you said, in the first segment of the show, as Danny Kukler did this week. And 100 as you said, for the whole show, like Keith Harris did last week. So, um, yeah. Good stuff at patreon.com slash 20 sheets. Everything well worth your money. All right, Bix, who, who do we have to thank this week as our new and or returning patrons? All right, we'd like to thank Michael. Thanks, Michael. We've got an annual subscription from Joe Larkin. Thanks, Joe. And the annual is, what, 5046? 5040. 5040. And for the $5 tier, yes. 16% off. There you go. And there's a 600 somewhere. Yes. 5040, you know, the, the percentage off. Yes. All right. We would also like to thank, let me make sure I'm pronouncing this name right, Tony... Uh, I'm guessing Chieri Chetty, because it begins with a C-H-I. So I think Tony Chieri Chetty. Thanks, Tony. Or maybe Chieri Chetty. And, we, and finally, Brian Jackson. Thanks, Brian. So we thank all you new patrons, all you old patrons, patrons coming along the way. We thank all of you f- for your support at patreon.com slash between the sheets. And again, tell some friends. Get, get, let's get more in the fold. All right, IWTV, Bix, what's going on there this week? Not as much this week. Not much has really gone up on demand other than last week's live streams. But, yeah, well, and, you know, the live streams that are going to go up after this weekend, this past weekend, as of this coming out. But as far as, where did my tabs go where I had this open? Oh, I see. I had two browser windows open. I didn't realize it. That's why. Um, there we go. So there are two live streams coming up, you know, this week after the show comes out. On Monday, when this comes out, Monday night, we got Uncharted Territory Southeast First Presents, which, was it the next to last episode of the season, maybe? I think it's 13 weeks or something like that, right? Going for a little bit, yeah. And that features, uh... Main event, fans bring the weapons, AC Mack defending the Independent Wrestling Championship against Atticus Kogar, who had become number one contender by winning The Masked Wrestler Season 2. Also got Anthony Henry versus Tank, Jaden Newman versus Derek Neal, Kevin Koo in action against Carly, it says Car- Carly Bravo. Is it Carly or Charlie and it's a typo? It's Carly Bravo. Okay, that, I wasn't sure. I'm not as familiar with Carly Bravo. And also the Discovery Gauntlet, so that's that. And then Southern Underground Pro has a show Friday night at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. Because of SummerSlam weekend, I presume they are running a different venue from usual. But that show includes 
Adam Priest versus Billy Starks, the Incarnation Gauntlet, Isaiah Broner versus Tank, Jaden Newman versus Austin Luke, Fred Yehi making what is somehow his sup debut against Brandon Williams, plus Violence is Forever, Marcus Mathers, Eric Royal, and more. So those are the only live streams this week. That, well, and Wrestling Open. You know, but they don't they don't announce a lineup more than like a day or so out. So that's really that for uh, IWTV this week. If you're not already a subscriber, use code BTSPOD, and uh, as long as you stay a paid subscriber, we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. And SCI is coming up, and I mean, so there's, August is going to be a lot of interesting stuff coming up on uh, IWTV. So, yes. Uh, yeah, let me actually look at it a little more on the schedule then, real quick. Yeah, what do we have past this week? Oh, yeah, SCI is the following weekend. That snuck up on us, didn't it? No, uh, it's always first weekend of August, basically. First full, first full or weekend July, of August. July yeah. 31st or some shit like that. I think it's always the first full weekend of August, like how Memorial, excuse me, Labor Day is always the first... Well, no, I'm not thinking of Labor Day. It's a... Uh, yeah, Labor Day is always the first Monday, but then I was thinking of uh, Election Day. How Election Day is ne- is the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. If November starts on a Tuesday, then the then Election Day is the second Tuesday. So it's always the first full weekend of August, I believe, is uh, SEI. And yeah, there's the TWE the night before show that week as well. I'm guessing there's not going to be a sub show this time, right? Doesn't look like it on schedule. Probably not, since they're doing one this week. Yeah. Going to be freelance stuff coming up, of course. Oh, also the Action Scenic City Future Showcase that weekend with SEI. Following weekend is going to have the Kirk's Couples Invitational from Atlantic City. So there's a lot coming up in August on uh, IWTV. Oh, and the West Coast Cup, too, as well. So two different two-night tournaments uh, in August on IWTV. Plus American Rana and other stuff. No, excuse me. Three two-night tournaments, because J-Lid is also in August. That's right. <laughs> it's tournament month on IWTV. Uh, yeah, they should probably market it around that. Well, there you go. I guess I gave them an idea. All right. Let's talk about private internet access now, shall we? Today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps, browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PCMag. They're all slow compared to Private Internet Access. If you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's talk about that, shall we? We have three things. Three tiers. Monthly. Straight monthly tier, you get eleven ninety five a month. If you want to go yearly, three dollars and thirty three cents a month, or thirty nine ninety five per year, or 
you get the big one. 83% off. The best damn deal there is. Three years. Plus four free months. At $1.98 a month. Or $79 for three years. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And that's just so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. So if you get private internet access right now, you could take their 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it for 30 days. See if you like it. If not, just turn it for a full refund. So, how do you get this, you might ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. So there you go. Tons of five-star reviews. Just the best. The best of the best when it comes to VPNs. Private internet access. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we're going to go back to the 90s after uh, being the 2000s for this month. And we'll go to 1992, where we'll talk about uh, SummerSlam. And that's getting going. The, the build's getting hot and heavy, so we'll talk about that. Possible plans for Ric Flair after SummerSlam. We'll talk about that. Plus, Randy Savage on our Arsenio Hall show, talking about his match Ultimate Warrior and other things. So we'll have that. We got uh, the Metroplex, GWF, and Big D in action there. Always a highlight for picks. Then we got um, some Smoky Mountain stuff. Talk about Ricky Morton turning babyface again. Well, he's done in Memphis, but now it's Knoxville. So talk about that. We'll have uh, some clips from Memphis as well. As, uh, they're having a hot summer there. We'll have other assorted uh, indie news. We got Mexico. We got Japan, of course. And we got World Championship Wrestling, where it's the 30th anniversary of Ron Simmons becoming the World Heavyweight Champion. So we'll talk about that historic moment and Jake the Snake Roberts making his shocking debut in WCW. So all that and more next week on Between the Sheets. Should be a fun show. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod, Bix at David Bix. And Bix, anything going on in your world this week? May have something or two coming out at Fanbyte. Um, otherwise, I've been spending a lot of time on some behind-the-scenes stuff recently. So, let you know when anything's out. All right. Yeah, Bix has projects in the ether. Up to you, yes. So there you go. All right. Well, that's it for this half of the show. Let's start the second half, shall we? Well, let's go to Canada now. The honky-tonk man suffered a serious injury to his right index finger in an angle of a guitar that went wrong on July 26th in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. The finger was able to be saved. He continued on the tour, but only performed singing his theme song to the crowd as he couldn't wrestle. Well, that's not good for Honky. Yeah, he was doing a lot of those Canadian tours in this era, wasn't he? Well, I mean, he had a lot of experience working in Canada, you know? Mm -hmm. Honky Tonk Wayne. So, yeah, and then, you know, he's a Honky Tonk man. He's going to get a payday. People remembered him, so yeah, why not? Mm Mm-hmm. All right, staying in Canada, Savon Grenier said in Slam Wrestling he decided to take time off from wrestling and not work indies due to injuries and because he started three businesses in Montreal and doesn't have much free time. 
He's got a security company that he started before wrestling and teamed to run while in WWE. A supplement company, and not sure what the third company is, although he did say he's thinking of opening up a gym. And after all that, he's going to start taking any bookings. His claim for appearing on the signature pharmacy list of clients is that WWE told him he needed to get an American doctor instead of a Canadian doctor. That bullshit! Yeah. <laughs> and this name says, yeah, that makes perfect sense. WWE's trying to get wrestlers away from drug supply and doctors. Tells a guy living in Montreal to get a doctor who lives nowhere near Montreal. One of the biggest red flags that should be known at this point is having your personal physician more than, say, a 30-minute drive from your home. I mean, how many people routinely drive two hours in each direction to see their personal doctor? Let alone a guy in Montreal needing to have one in the U.S. He asked around about a doctor, and lo and behold, the doctor he picked ended up being with Signature Pharmacy. And thus, when the bus came, his name was out. He knew he did nothing illegal, and technically, that would be correct, as it's the doctors who are filling the prescriptions without visits from the patients who are the ones in trouble in that case. <laughs> uh, oh, Sylvain Grenier. Yeah, I'm pulling up the actual article on Slam to see if there's anything as far as actual quotes uh, we can see here. Is there anything? Or is the article not here? It's not on the Sylvain Grenier tag, or is it? Yeah, no, it's not. Okay. So... I yeah, we know. got the gist of it. Yeah. Which, by the way, I do believe that the old archives are now up on the new Slam Wrestling. So, you know, everyone's old links are broken, and it's not helpful because um, canoe.ca has Wayback Machine blocked. But I believe if you're looking for something that was on Slam Wrestling in the past, other than the stuff that Sun Media owned, like the Bret Hart columns, you should be able to find it. I think Greg has gotten everything back up there. Now let's go to Calgary. There's a new movement that preserves Stu Hart's home in Calgary as a local historical monument. The city aldermen are voting on the move, which would mean the city would ban the home by the be abolished or any major alterations allowed. The 5,600-square-foot house was built in 1905. Stu purchased the home for $25,000 in 1951. Uh, are we assuming this is Canadian dollars, though? I would probably. So let me see. Is there a Canadian inflation calculator? You know, let's see, Canadian inflation. Okay, yes, we have one. So it was 25000 Yes, 1951. Okay, $25,000. Okay, would you like to take a guess what that is now in Canadian dollars? Hundred grand. Uh, $279,227 and change. Well, how about that? So I'm curious then... In USD, wait, wait, oh, sorry, I didn't put Canadian. CDN in USD is, <laughs> it's still a bargain. <laughs> it's, okay, so with inflation and then converted to American dollars, it's a little less than 217 grand. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> let's... <laughs> You know how people uh, talk about how uh, housing costs have greatly outpaced inflation? Yeah. There you go. Because think about the size of that house. Yeah. All right, let's go to Mexico and AAA. And Tocable said he was going independent, but said he was willing to still work for AAA, but not full-time. AAA considers him gone. It's going indie gave them enough reason to consider him persona non grata after they kept him after he beat up Joaquin Rodan last year over a payoff. He said he loves the idea of working when he wants and where he wants. Oh, I remember that story. 
Uh, yeah, Ito Kable, uh when Antonio Pena died, yeah, he even though we talked about the other, you know in the recent show about how he was you know extremely well liked by everyone, not by everyone. <laughs> it's not, not you know especially Rod, Joaquin Rodan. They had issues and uh, came to a head, and he beat him up. Not the not the best thing to do to beat up your boss. So, yeah. But anyway, all right. Uh, July twentieth, TV tapings in Monterrey featured a gauntlet match where the winner would become number contender for Cibernetico's Triple A Mega Heavyweight Title. Chesterbad eliminated Macias to win, which means that the battle of the Hell Brothers likely is the Verano de Escandalo main event. Cibernetico came out to congratulate his longtime tag partner, but Chessman blew him off. Uh oh. They'll start a tournament for the Triple A Minis title with first round matches having Mascarita Sagrada, not the original one, but the one that works the Indies these days, meaning Mini Isteria and Mini Abismo Negro over La Parquita. These tapings were described as almost an old style Toronto like environment where the fans had a mind of their own. That was a bizarro world. Zorro and Conan were both cheered as Technicos, and Conan was limited from the Rumble, determined to talk to for Triple A title. The crowd booed his elimination. When Chessman won, which is well-received, and Cibernetico came out to build their title match, which we talked about, uh, Chessman blew him off, made Chessman the rudo, but the crowd cheered Chessman. Apparently, the way the show was going, people were starting to figure what happened. It'd be interesting to see if they sound, sound edit this television show. Never done it before, but apparently there was concern, and they don't want to show on TV that their biggest draw in Technica was booed. All right, let's go over the results from uh, Arena Solidaridad. Aguila Extrema in Virtual X over Euphoria in Guerrero Blanco. Baby Rap, Javi, Kevin, and Ricky over Escoprion Negro Jr. Rio Bravo, Tigre Cota, and Tito Santana 2, i.e., the uh, Northern Mexico Tito Santana, not. WWF, Tito Santana. Mascarita Sagrada, 2007, over Mini Hysteria. Perato Morgan, Io de Perato Morgan, and Perato Morgan Jr. over Aerostar, Elijo, and Gato Ever Ready. Killer Clown, Ciclo Clown, and Zombie Clown over Brosa de Plata, El Brije, and Ellen Hell. Electro Shock, Jack Evans, and Teddy Hart over Chessman, Crazy Boy, and Ultima Gladiador. And then Chessman won the Mega Rumble. And uh, to be the number one contender, other participants were Macias, Alan Stone, Oles, LaParka Jr., Conan, Kenzo Suzuki, Black Abyss, Joe Leader, and Headhunter Number One. The July 25th tapings in Carretaro drew a cell of 4,000 fans, where Jack and Teddy lost for the first time against Nicho and Joe Leader when Leader and Teddy were the La Magistral. LaParka Jr., Otagon beat Kenzo Suzuki and Electro Shock in a Bull Terrier match. That's a chain match. Parker drags Suzuki all six corners of one. Halloween and the Street Tiger beat Chessman and Cibernetico, with Chessman fouls Cibernetico. And the main event was Vampiro against Macias in a match that went 25 minutes, i.e., a 25 minute draw. Yeah. The rest of the matches on this show Octagoncito over Mini Chessman in the mini tournament match. Otomi Boy over Mascarita de Bramuete in another tournament match. We have Fabio Apache, Mario Apache, and Sexy Star over Cynthia Moreno, La Diabolica, and La Hechicera. And Joe and Nicho over Jack and Teddy, Parker Ontagon over Electro Shaka Kidzo, Extreme Tiger Halloween over Chessman and Super Deco. But the 25 minute draw main event. Any thoughts, Bix? 
I can't think about early uh, Teddy Hart and Jack Evans in AAA without thinking about how before they showed up uh, on TV, they had announced the impending arrival of Teddy Jack. Teddy Jack, yes. Well, they already had Bobby Jack, so... Mr. Yacht. Why not a Teddy? Yes, why not Teddy? Yeah, and but Triple is still pretty and if good they're going with it, Oh, go ahead. And, the, and it seems like they're going... His name's a Kennedy brother, so Jean-Jacques. Teddy and Bobby and John. Why not? Was there a Rose but, Yacht? <laughs> Would John Yacht Jr. be coming to uh, coming back to life in Dallas for <laughs> QAnon? <laughs> But anyway, uh, I was sad, by the way, that no one tried to track any of the QAnon wrestlers around Dealey Plaza during Mania Weekend. But go on. Go on. Yeah, that is an interesting point. Um, yeah, Triple A was interesting at this point in time. You got a uh, some strong other car guys and you got main events like Vampiro and Macias going 25 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, they still stayed on a pretty good run for a while. But this is the era where it starts to become not era, well, era is going too big. But this is when it starts to become clear that they're running out of the things that Antonio Pena pre-booked before he died. And Bix is saying era, as in like the actual era, not doing a Kennedy's joke. Era. All right, Triple um, A ran a show in, in California. They had two shows, one during our week. San Jose at the HP Pavilion, the Tank, in conjunction with Promotiones Marquez on July 26. And they ran Los Angeles the next night, which we'll talk about that down the line whenever we do that week. Bobby Apache, Pepe Escalara over it. Well, went against Escoria and Mario Apache. We don't have results here. Even though, I mean, you would think San Jose Dave would be at the show? Didn't go. You know why? Because all those fucking MMA shows. Escoria Escalara, 2007, Rodrigo winning against Mini Bizzo Negro and Mini Charlie Manson. Aerostar, Crazy Boy, Superfly over Desness, Hysteria, and Psychosis. Alan Stone, not the going Super Porky against Cuervo, Alls, and Macias. And then Cibernetico, Chessman, and La Parker Jr. went against a replacement for Zorro. I no show. Electroshock and Kenzo Suzuki. So there's that. And they did a write up on the whole Los Angeles show from what he heard and stuff like that. So I guess we'll talk more about that again whenever we do that week down the line. All right. As I go on. is the latest to quit the work, go independently. Sam Hassan Fielder to Jack Evans and Teddy Hart, as well as several others. They would have been interesting as CMLL at this point in time. <laughs> Planning going against Mystico, Voldemort Jr., those guys. Yeah, Teddy would not have lasted. Uh, he would have got the shit kicked out of him. Yes. Somebody would have kicked the shit out of him. Yes. <laughs> yes, they would have. Um... Uh, Jack and Tate talked with the office about using X-Pac as a third member of their team, but X-Pac hasn't appeared on TV tapings in a while. I think he did work with them off and on. So. Yes, but uh, Sean is clearly going through some shit at this time. Uh, Well, yes. Yes, he is, sadly. All right, let's go to CMLL. Using 16 wrestlers on the annual World Grand, Peace, Grand Prix Cybernetico, and it was CMLL re- repaying the favor for when TNA put TN Metzko over in the World X Cup. The July 25th show in Mexico drew 16,000 fans with both the World Grand Prix Supernetico and the finals of the annual Leyenda de Plata tournament. That's the Ia de Santo tourneo. The former was won by TNA's Alex Shelley in a match that went 57 minutes and 37 seconds. When Shelley pit Ultimo Guerrero with a small package in a final elimination. 
The finals of the four-week lead into the Plata tournament ended with Mexico taking home the trophy for the third straight year. Beating Pedro Aguayo Jr. in two out of three falls for 13.55, a good match that was said to have been off the charts heat-wise. All right, so Dave has the uh, World Cup stuff here. So let's go over the uh, eliminations. The first elimination happened at 18 minutes and four seconds when Ripa Cunero pinned Alex Kozlov with a Puka bomb. Then Sanjay Dutt pinned Neverno at the power bomb at a 5.40. Jay Lethal pinned Bodo Jr. after the lethal combination at 26.29. AJ Styles said he the most over the TNA crew pinned Ariba Canero with Styles Clash at 28-22. Edgar Garza beat Sanjay Dutt at their spear in 30-11. Garza has been reported in the magazines as being the most impressive of all 16 men. That dude was so fucking great in the ring. Just had his problems. Ultimo Guerrero over AJ Styles after a foul behind the rest back at 35-05. Marco Colleone, who also got good reviews, pinned Dos Caras Jr. after the Ero Italia in 36-08. Chris Alberto. The Aerotalia has Corleone running down the entrance ramp like Kujimuto used to do with the wind sprints clothesline, but then diving from the ramp over the top rope to the ring with a crossbody for the pin. A, a very impressive spot for a dude that size. Then Dr. Wagner Jr. beat Lethal with a Mitch Nucker driver, Wagner driver in 39-14. Shocker then made Johnny Devine submit in 40-59. Marco then pinned Garza in 42-24 after the Aerotalia. Shelly and Chris Saban did a double-team superkick on Dr. Wagner Jr. and Shelly pinned him in 47-22. Early in the match, Wagner did a dive off the ramp to the floor and cracked his skull on the floor. Nobody knew if he was okay, but he got up and did the rest of the match with no problems. He's okay. Shulker and Rotomo used a double splash on Marco and, and Shulker scored a pin at 48-46. Saban and Shelly used a double-team superkick and Shelly pinned Shulker using the ropes in 51-59. Guerrero pinned Saban at the Guerrero Special in 53-05. And Shelly twice kicked out at a Guerrero Special. By the rest back, Shelly unmasked Guerrero and covered... Ultimo Guerrero covered his face. Let us be pinned rather than let his face be exposed. Big in-ring uh, celebration for the foreign team, carrying Shelly out on their shoulders. Marco, who is probably about 6'5 or 6'6, looks like a monster next to all the TNA guys. The finish leads to attend the plan to build Shelly against Ultimo Caballero Contra Mascara match. Match had a lot of heat. Similar had two hour television shows, all the problems for a few weeks ago have been settled. As evidenced by Dr. Alfonso Morano's bad doing the voiceover for the highlights on in Acción. Now, Guerrero had won the Grand Prix the last two years, pinning Johnny Stamboli in 2006 and Liger in 2007. The tournament started in 1994 at Reno with Arredi Lisco Jr. beating King Haku in the first finals. It was held annually from 94 to 98, then dropped, brought back in 2002, wasn't held in 2003, and has been annual since 2004. The initial name who won in 1997 was Steel, pinning Arredi Jr. Steel, who was a world champion in CMLL, left the promotion that year to join WWE as Val Venus. All right, Vic, so, yeah, this match went almost an hour. Cibernetico, TNA guys against similar guys, or foreigners against natives. Uh, sounds like a hell of a fucking match. It's been a while since I've seen it. So, I remember it being really damn good. I don't remember if I saw this one, ever. Which, I saw it on YouTube. I'm kind of curious to watch it now with who you've got in there. It sounds quite good on paper. Hell of a, I mean, a lot, a hell of a amount of talent. I mean, yeah, all that TNA crew coming in here. You got AJ Styles. I mean, you got a lot, lot going on in this match. Let's see if it's still on YouTube as I yard again. It happens. When I read a lot, I get, I start yawning. Uh, yes, it's up. Um, 
there's one up that's 42 minutes and 28 seconds in full. Then there's one that's broke down apart, which that's a fan cam. But uh, yeah, there's one that's up that's 42 minutes. So should be pretty much the whole thing that aired, I would think. So you want to look it up, folks? It's on YouTube. CMLL versus TNA Grand Prix 2008. All right. Now, also on the show, Mystico having arrived back up that day on an 18-hour flight from Beijing for Olympic broadcast preparations. Ben Perito, after a Tiger driver. The Linda they play the tournament works like this. They have two weeks of theoretical matches, two winners face off. Winners of the match, they face the defending champion from last year to determine who gets the trophy. They traded falls. Third falls report is the best fall the two have ever had in this major singles match against each other, which covers a lot of ground. First, El Terrible, Damian C.C.C., Io de Tejano, and Mr. Aguila, Los Perros de Monk in the ringside. Then Shocker, Toscaros Jr., and Eta Garza came out and even the score. Mystico used the Mystica, but Perito escaped. Perito tried the Mystico, Mystico, which got tremendous heat. And then Mystico used a Tiger driver to score the pinfall. After the match, Perito said he was so impressed with Mystico that he asked him to join Los Perros de Monk. Mystico turned him down and instead asked Perito if he would do a Mascara Cocha Caballero match. And then Perito turned him down. Thursday year, Mystico's won a trophy. He won 2006, beat 2005 champion Atlantis, and then he beat tournament winner Mr. Aguila in 2007 before beating Perito here. Yeah, I mean, these two, you just you just can't go wrong. Not at all. Just cannot go wrong with these two guys against each other. One of the great feuds of the 2000s and basically rebuilt that promotion in a way. Because they had that hot run near the 2000s. They kind of hit a wall in 2003. And then got hot again when Garza and Perito jumped and Michiko became a, a thing in 2004. And it's still riding the waves here. Pretty much, yeah. All right, so we got some more shows to talk about here. July 20th, for Nicole Seo. Sensei and Sombra de Pato over Atiero Supercult. Metallico, Jimmy Jimmy Neutron, and Tigre Blanco of Arcana de la Muerte, Loco Max and Nitro. Bam Bam, Mascarillo Scarada, and Pequeño Olimpico over Mini Mr. Aguila, Pequeño de MSSS, and Pequeño Halloween. Alex Kozloff, Gray Shadow. Bix, you want to tell about who Gray Shadow was? <sighs> Gray Shadow? This is easy. An American? Yeah. Rocky Romero? Yes. And Borodo Jr. over Black Warrior, Olimpico, and Sangre Azteca. And then at the Garza of Macarcolion and Shoker of Evi Metal, Yudis Macanegro Casas. The 55th anniversary of wrestling at Arena Playboy was on July 21st. You also had 5,500 fans, so a triple main event. Bodisman beats Centella de Oro in the Caballero Coach Caballero match. Similar trios champions at the Garza of La Mascara and the Fantasma. Santos Escobar. Get the titles beating Evi Metal, Negro Casas, and Mr. Niebla in a good match. Let's have a rematch next week. Plus, Tatuan the Jr., Shulker, and Los Ombro beat Perito El Terrible and Yilda Tejano by DQ when Perito unmasked Wagner. And then we go to Remexico on July 22nd, Tuesday show. Sensei and Terreno over Cimental and Psycho. Mascarilla Dorada, Pequeño Olimpico, and Uzbo Dragacito over Pequeño Damian Cesar Pequeño Halloween, and Pequeño Warrior. Axel, Maximo, and Stuka Jr. over Arcana de Muerte, Euphoria, and Nosferatu. Great Shadow, Vallente, Volodio Jr. over Olimpico, Rebecca Nero, Sangre de Azteca by disqualification. And El Tagarza, Ia de Fantasma, and La Mascara over El Metal, Misterioso 2, and Mr. Niebla. Axel with one X is not Nieto del Santo, right? 
that's him. Oh, that is him? Or uh, what yeah. was his other name? Plateado? That's him. That's the same guy. Oh, okay. I thought it was AXXEL. Nah, it was, well, either or. I don't remember him working mainline CMLL at all. Mm-hmm. He was there. <laughs> he was there. I think they were beefing with Santo at this time in a way. Oh, which who's is your funny because Oh, go ahead. Because they're doing the, the Nieto de Plata, the Lenda de Plata thing. Yeah, and okay, Lucha Wiki has it with one X as the main name. Yes. Okay, so his name history. Goldman, Sagrado, Rocker One in IWRG, El Plateado. Uh, at some point it says he used El Hijo del Santo, too? Uh, that sounds wrong. Uh, Nieto del Santo, Axel El Nieto del Santo, and Axel. Yeah. So, I, 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 what do you make of the beef with him and Neo Del Santo, his uncle, as far as both that Neo Del Santo wanted to use the name for his own son and uh, that he just didn't think Axel was good enough in the ring to inherit the mantle? Um, I think that both of them had uh, both of them had their issues. Santo's an ass. Axel had his issues too. So, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, there's no, not all, as far as people that know everything and know them, there's not a whole lot of love on both sides. So, you know, it's just like, it is what it is. But Santo, I mean, Santo, he's a turd, you know? So there's that. Yeah. Is but Santa- he, has a, he has a, he has a point though. Yeah. But so is Axel. So is the is Yo Del Santo's son who wrestled the Santo Junior with a different costume? Surprisingly, is he still wrestling? <sighs> he ain't in Mexico. I tell you that. I mean, you you would have thought that guy. Would, I mean, by now would have be a top star in the country. But nope, he doesn't even have a cage match profile. So that's a no. Yeah, I mean, he's just a. I mean, he went to he worked Japan. Well, he, he his initial training, or some of it, was in the Noah Dojo, right? Yeah, Axel's his cousin. You know, he worked he worked a few years with him. I mean, he's, he became Tempestad. So that'll tell you something right there. But um, yeah, he's too, with multiple Tempestads, too, so... Well, yeah, I mean, too ba- it's too bad, especially since... I guess his dad saw in him that he could become good enough, but... Yeah. All right, uh, Mishiko says he wants to learn martial arts when he goes to China to come to the Olympics. And his new goal is to become like Mil Mascaras, who is the Mexican who is considered the country's all-time biggest worldwide star. In a sense, you can make the argument that because W's worldwide television, that Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero actually surpassed Mil Mascaras when it comes to worldwide fame. But Mexico, Mascaras is credited with independently getting over in more different companies and having more tenure as an international star. Mexico City now wants to follow in the footsteps of Mascaras and being a wrestler based in Mexico who travels the world as a major star, knowing he's going to Europe in October and looking to break into the U.S. market as well. You know, if the Mystico boom was 10 or so years later, he could have just done that and stuck around without going to WWE. Yeah. He would have been in demand on U.S. Indies, getting big payoffs. Probably would have been a special attraction in New Japan. Go ahead. The move at the time for him was to go to WWE. 
Yes. Thing is, though, is he had an ego, a big ego, massive ego, and that wasn't going to work. That wasn't going to work there. He had to be humbled. Hmm. Which is funny because, I mean, he's he's one of Triple H's first signings. Do you remember who the other one was? I mean... The first two, uh, which led to Triple H initially getting well, his bad record. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's not his fault. Any All of that stuff that happened. I mean, it's ridiculous that that should be considered negative. But... I don't know. It... I don't think either were bad picks, but it did get him that bad reputation for a while that his first big projects were, you know, things that fizzled out. I just things and people or, or, whose runs fizzled out for for different reasons. Yes, but yeah. All right, they're doing two tours of Spain this year with August tour from August fourteenth to twenty second. The first date at twenty thousand seat Bullring in Valencia, and they're sending twenty two wrestling tour mostly mid level guys with those cutters. Junior, Evan Mathal, La Mascara, Felino, Olimpico is the headliners. The promoters in Spain are putting eight, up $800,000 for the tour run by Lider Mundial in Eventos, which is associated with Mexican singer-actress Dolce, or Dolce, whatever. Uh, the second tour will be in October, November, but it'll be a big money tour since they're Cinemisco, Perito, and Wagner. Yeah, I remember when they started going to Spain for a little bit. Did some shows. Nothing. Kind of New Japan, Italy, in a way, how that went, so... There's that. IWRG. A couple shows here. Arena Capon on July 20th. Desteo in Aragon over Commando Gama and Judas Torredor. Crazy Star and Enigmatica over La Fugitiva and La Tormenta. Black Terry, 911 Fiero over Coco Verde, Coco Chips, and Coco Lourdes. Negro Navarro, Septiembre El Terrista, Terrista and Veneno over Setaro, Ciclon Gonzalez, and Super Astro. And then Multifaciteco, Redis Jr., and Supercolo over Iodo Solitario, Iodo Cien Caras, and Mascara Añados Mil. Not a uh, great sounding show here. Yeah. Um, how about being the second guy to uh, do a heel gimmick based on the terrorists uh, who attacked the Munich Olympics? Yes. <laughs> Who all? Who did also wrestle with Septiem and Bray Negro too? Of course. Yes. Yes. So there's that. All right. The Thursday show was uh, the Rita Ring on July 24th, won by Scorpio Junior. Now here's who all competed in that tournament for the Rita Ring Torneo for a Rumble type deal. Jamelo Fantastico, number one. Chibaba, Cocolores, Starboy, Now One, Piero, Freelance, Cerebro Negro, Arlequin, Chigoche, Phoenix, not the Phoenix, now, Atasma de la Opera, Calvagardi Jr., Sigon Negro, Araman, Goliador, AK-47, Io de Solitario, Trauma 2, Io de Perro, IWRG version, Gemelo Fantastico Dos, Dr. Cerebro, Capitan Muerte, Multifaciteco, Ultraman Jr., Pascarera, Tinebus Jr., Zumbi Zumbi Zumbidoski, Zavito, and Io de Ciencaras. Well, that's a potpourri of names right there, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of potential there for quality match, I guess. So is this a Cybernetico or Royal Rumble? or? It's a Royal Rumble type match, yeah. Okay. Hmm. 
Now, did those have over-the-top rope eliminations or only pinfall or submission? Both, I think. Okay. Okay, so I'm curious what that looked like. But eh, a lot of good talent in there. Some some interesting names, too, but a lot of good workers. Yeah. And Tijuana, Shulker, El Terrible, Yuda Tejano, and Marco Leon was all suspended for a year by the commission because they did sponsor a match where all pulled down the trunks of the other, which the commission does not allow. Can't show any asses in Tijuana picks. Oh, you mean other than the ones? Other than the other than the ones in the live sex shows. Ass. <laughs> you can have donkey porn in Tijuana, but you can't have uh, bare men's asses in the ring. Yes. Oh, you know who uh, IWRG Phoenix was? You'd probably remember the, the modified name a little better. It was also he was also a Ave Phoenix. Ave Phoenix, yes. That's right. Yeah. I remember Ave Phoenix. Yeah, once I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I remember him. So, how about that? Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the, they're literally, the disambiguation page on Lucha Wiki is multiple luchadors have used the name Phoenix. And I think on yes. Ray Phoenix's page, it says, this is the Phoenix of AAA and Lucha Underground. Many other luchadors have used this name. <laughs> so, just for the numbers, we've got Ray Phoenix, Phoenix of Zapalpa. Or excuse me, Zalapa. Shibaba. Shibaba. Is that how you say that? No, Shalapa. This is X A L A P A is where this is. Oh. Yalapa. Yalapa, yes. Uh Cornavaca, Acapulco, and then believed to be inactive from Tijuana, Puebla, IWRG, and Durango. A lot of them. Yes. I'm sure there are more we don't know about. Probably so. Now more are there more are Phoenixes or uh Hurricane Ramirez Juniors though? Uh it's probably a tight race. All right, so now let's go to the indie scene here, and we start with Velocity Pro Wrestling. They showed they uh, ran at New Alhambra Arena on July 20 in Philadelphia for 300 fans. Our opening match: Chris Hero over Hello Wicked, Aramis over Super Hentai, the best around: Bruce Maxwell and TJ Cannon over the new Hollywood Blondes, Joseph Brooks and LK. All Money is Legal, K Muddy and K Pusha over Chris Answer and Phil Boucher. In an ICW, ICWA, Texas County Television title match, Larry Sweeney retained over Shima Zion. A four way, Azriel over Claudio Casanoli, Delirious, and Joy Matthews. A handicap match, the Nigerian Nightmares, Maifu and Saifu over Angel Gonzalez. And then All Money is Legal, K Murder and K Pusha over Balls so Honey and Axel Rotten in your main event. This is definitely a show. Yes. And, uh, for those who might have missed this period, uh, New Alhambra Arena is the ECW Arena slash 2300 Arena slash Fighting yes. Hall. Yes. Um, guessing Hero had a double shot. Well, lots of Chikara guys. No, but I mean that he's working the opener. Possibly. And, well, are any of the car guys on past the... Well, okay, Sweeney's on past the early part of the show, and so is Claudio. Um... I'm curious, do we have any other hero results for this day? Well, there's a lot of indie results that I put in here. I know. I'm curious. Well, there's wrestling data now, though. So this is the 20th, right? Yeah. Okay, let's see. I mean, in the meantime, as I look that up, though, and it's a pretty standard Northeast indie show for this time frame. I don't know if there's that yeah. much to say about it. Okay, wait, so July... July 08 for Chris Hero. 
not a lot of results here, and at least on Wrestling Data, that's the only one they have for the 20th. All right. Well, let's go to Ring of Honor, where they had a couple big shows during our wait. July 25th, they made their debut in Toronto, which got great reviews and won the company's hottest crowds for the first time in Canada, drawing 1,200 fans. Announcing November 8th return in a new arena in Markham, which would be coupled with a Montreal debut that weekend. Chris Hero beat Ruckus in a solid opener with a kick to the face, with Larry Sweeney doing an anti-Canada rant to start the show. Delirious beat Kenny Omega, who did well. Delirious gave him most of the match. Omega was compared to Brian Pillman or Jerry Lynn when it comes to look, size, and style. Sure. <laughs> Sarah Del Rey squashed Jennifer Blake because they're trying to remake Del Rey as more of an overpowering brawler than a technical woman wrestler. She kept beating on Blake until Daisy Hayes made the save. Which led to Larry Sweeney bringing out Go Shiyazaki, who went to a draw with Eric Stevens, who's getting back in the game again. Fans were asked for five more minutes, so Sweeney says Shiyazaki was only being paid for 15 minutes. Let me go ahead and say this now, Tony Khan, if you're listening. Hire Eric Stevens for Ring of Honor. He should be there. Yes. Anthony Henry, Lance, too, but that's a different story. Lance Storm came out and said Ring of Honor wasn't about the money. It was about giving fans the best show. <laughs> well, maybe both. Uh, Hero and Shiozaki then jumped Storm and Stevens, but Storm's rookie hero and put Sweeney in a half crab. The crowd treated Storm like he was a major superstar. Well, it is Canada. Brian Danielson beat Claudio Castanoli in 21-23 with a backslide at the reverse in Castanoli's uppercut forearm. Both escaped from the other's usual finishers, and Danielson thanked the Toronto fans when it was over. They did more with Rhett Titus, Delirious, and Daisy Hayes here. Titus came out, as did Hayes, but Delirious attacked Hayes, and Delirious came out. But Delirious wouldn't hit Del Rey while Sweeney kept egging Delirious on about hitting her. However, Delirious protected Hayes while Del Rey beat on him. In the match of the night, Naomichi Marafuji pinned Roderick Strong in 17 minutes with the Shirnoi. Then Nigel McGinnis kept the Ring of Honor title, beating Kevin Steen in 3059 with a lariat. Crowd was into it, particularly at the end. Steen, who's from Montreal, played the role of Canadian star going for the world title, complete with coming out to O Canada. At times, they lost the crowd but had them big at the end. And the final was Jay Briscoe and Austin Aries against Jimmy Jacobs and Tyler Black. No DQ. It ended with Necro Butcher interfering. Then Mark Briscoe came in. Since Mark is still not 100%, they got him out by putting him through a table. Then Jacobs told Necro to hit Aries with a piece of the table, and Aries told him not to follow Jacobs' orders. Necro didn't know what to do, so he just left. This put it back in the original tag match, and Jay pinned Black with a Jay Driller. Crowd's pretty tired by the end because this one went 21 minutes. And the show went three and a half hours. All right. So Gabe Sapolsky told the torch this, and uh, that needs to go down. Thank you. Um, that the companies are going to run Canada for a long time. We want to run shows in Canada for a long, long time. Just due to circumstances didn't happen until now, but thankfully it has happened. He said the door is now wide open and we plan to have Canada as a regular place that we run. There's a new video, video wire available or which videos like feature highlights of the, Aries Jacobs match at the most most recent Chicago event. Sapolsky believes that the July DVD, 25th DVD taping in Canada was one of the best shows run by Ring of Honor in 2008. He felt this was one of the best shows talked about in the year, and that's covered a lot of ground. He said the Canadian fans really made it a special show, as they were off the charts and just so into everything. Every person on our crew had a blast performing in front of them and the atmosphere they created. Now, Ring of Honor President Kerry Silken said Toronto would become a regular stop on the Ring of Honor tour schedule. After they claim 1,500 attendance at a debut, tickets are already on sale from the right. We always want them to come to Toronto just for the logistics of doing it, finding the right building, and making a good business decision to do it. 
We had to have the right components. Silk and Toll Slam Wrestling prior to the show. Those components came together this year. We got fantastic reaction from the wrestling fans of Toronto. We're going to have New York City type crowd tonight with respect to the numbers. We're really happy and grateful and appreciative. Surprised it took them this long to get Toronto, but once they come in, they're there. And Toronto becomes one of their main stops. I mean, it for the rest of the run. Probably the best or consistent best drawing city of the Sinclair era, right? Yes. Off the Buffalo TV? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. So I was not watching ROH or that much indie wrestling at this point. I don't know about you. No. So I don't have a lot of specific so, thoughts here. Um, yeah, I don't think I ever saw any Stevens's ROH stuff. The thing reading this to me is Larry Sweeney. Mm-hmm. You know, God. Yeah. If only, if only you know, if only he could have found the piece that he needed while still alive, yeah. and could show his talents on a major, major scale. But he's got a lot of people today that. You know, are major players in wrestling now that uh, do things to, to pay tribute to him. So there is that, but it's yes. a shame. Yes. Um, we forget about the Go Shiyazaki ROH excursion. I feel like. Yes. That's kind of interesting. And then Mar- to see yeah, over here. You know. Yeah, they they've got pretty loaded cards at this time. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, and then uh, Jimmy Rollins and Necro Rage of the Fall, right? Yes. Which, I think we covered the formation of Age of the Fall on here once, right? I thought we did something regarding them, yes. Yeah, we didn't do a whole lot of 2000, late 2000 shows, so I know we did something. Yes, although then Tyler Black becomes kind of this big sign of the issues with late Gave ROH an early post gave ROH with waiting way too long to put the title on him. Yeah. That one the only show before that weekend, a week before the next preview aired, Ring of Honor take the following pay-per-view on July twenty sixth in Detroit before seven fifty fans for a show that will debut on pay-per-view around September twenty sixth. Ring of Honor continues to maintain or grow slightly as it hits the six and a half year mark. Detroit show is said to be better than respect is earned, which debuts on pay-per-view on August first, and has a follow up Sunday showing at six PM Eastern. The last September pay-per-view open with Jacobs in the ring with Mohawk. He said he wouldn't be defending the titles as Mark Briscoe injured. There was no legitimate contenders for him. And, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mark and Jay came out like this is the open the Raw or something. Mark said he's ready to go and won the title match right there. Jacobs and Black said they weren't accepting that challenge, which led to Mark and Jay beating Mitch Franklin and Silas Young in the last three minutes with a doomsday device on Franklin. And for those who don't know, Mitch Franklin is Grizzly Redwood. Yes. Eric Stevens won a four-way with Shane Hagedorn, Ruckus, and Delirious. Stevens pinned Hagedorn with a pump and a doctor bomb, which set Stevens up for a future title shot. We need to remember to call him Indie Wrestling Hall of Famer, Ruckus, by the way. Yes. Austin Aries did a promo and challenged Jimmy Jacobs to come out. Jacobs did, but quickly bailed. As he was leaving, a member of the Age of the Fall entourage, maybe Alice in Wonderland, Wonderland gave I. Aries a low blow. Then Jake brought out Jacobs, and Bl- Jacobs came out with Black, and they beat down Aries, and Jacobs choked him out. A bunch of undercard guys came out. Jacobs and Black left. As Jacobs was about to cut a promo, Kevin Steen came out, and he and Generico won the title shot. At that point, Necro Butcher hit Steen with a bike rack over and over again. A bike rack. Ugh. Also, Allison Wonderland, I had to look that up. Also known as Jezebel James. I think I remember that name a little better. Yes. 
So there you go. I've, I've, God, it's been a long time since I've heard that name. Jezebel James. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, Kevin Steenpan, Necro Butcher. I mentioned Necro Driver through a chair and got the pin with a package pile driver. Nigel McGinnis beat Claudio Castanoli to keep the Ring of Honor title. Castanoli got a series of near falls that teased title change using the Chono kick. Giant swing, suplex, German suplex, followed by a Ricola bomb for anyone close to near fall and a backslide until McGinnis hit the jawbreaker Larry for the pin. There was a vibe in the building where nobody expected Castanoli to win the title. Part of the crowd started chanting for Nigel, but he started yelling at them. He said that he, he doesn't like to say nice things about his opponent, but he said Castanoli proved himself in the match and demanded Castanoli shake his hand. Castle went to TC Wood, but then walked out getting a mixed reaction. Hmm. Sasha unpinned Kenny Omega with a split leg of moonsault. Don't expect this to be on pay-per-view. Huh. Roger Strong and Namichi Marafuji beat Goshi Ozaki's hero. It started with Sweeney offering Marafuji money to join Sweet and Sour Inc. Marafuji turned him down. And Sweeney said his guys were leaving, but as they left, Lance Storm came out and chased him back into the ring. Shizaki and Marafuji was the highlight of the match. After Austin near falls, Strong pinned hero with a roll-up. He was in attack Storm after the match. Storm came back, put Sweeney in a half crab, but Storm was laid out by Hero and Shiozaki. That's quite the sentence. Yes, and then we have Brian dancing over Tyler Black. Dancing with the arm forever, doing a variety of moves designed to hurt the arm. Big spot was Black doing a moonsault top rope to the floor. Dancing got Black on account of mutilation, but Black made the ropes. After tons near false submissions, Black powerbomb dancing to the turnbuckles and the ring broke. Both started selling in the crowd. Heat really picked up with this is awesome chance. Danielson used one elbow after another on the ground until the ref jumped in UFC style to stop the match. I'm curious if that spot was planned or not, because especially when you think about it, like, especially if you want to do an injury angle or something, doing the buckle bomb and having the ropes break off is a hell of a spot if you can gimmick it up right. Yeah. Um, and the, the finish, I believe, would be what now is being called, at least in AEW, the hammer and anvil elbows. Yes. Yes. Or First, people called them the UFC elbows. Then, on the ROH message board, for some reason, people got confused and started calling them the USB elbows. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know how that got to hammer and anvil, but I, I, I missed uh, pointing and laughing at people calling them USB elbows. Aries and Jacobs brought all over the building to get the crew a chance to fix the ring. With both men on ladders, Necro came out. He seemed confused as to who the hell, so he knocked both ladders over, and Aries and Jacob both flew off and went through tables. Necro then walked off. By this time, the ring was back together again. Sansa bought a rope. The pay-per-view taping ended, ended up at, ended at about this point because they had an honor rumble, which was a Royal Rumble with the winner getting a title shot on August 1st in Manassas, Virginia. The show was running long, so guys were coming out in less than one minute. Bobby Dempsey, Kyle Durd, Jay Briscoe threw out Durd, Stevens, Castanoli, Ernie Osiris, Butcher, and then Luke Williams of the Bushwhackers was in. Of course he was. He did a comedy bit from the Rumble years ago where Butcher threw out Luke as soon as he got in. Mark Briscoe and Ruckus came in, but Mark was still hurt and went out with Necker over top. Rhett Titus, Sarah Del Rey, Alex Payne, and Delirious was in. Then Nigel McGinnis, who said he was going to win, so nobody got a title shot. Came down Nigel on Ruckus. They had teased spot where both were going over the same time, but both got back in. Nigel went to the jaw jack, jaw breaking Larry, but Ruckus moved out of the way, threw Nigel over to the, the rope to get the win and a title shot. Nobody saw that one coming, and the crowd was more confused than anything. <laughs> what, why, they don't think that Claude Morrow Jr. is a deserving title challenger? <laughs> I mean, uh, Ruckus is definitely not, not one of the favorites, let's put it that way. 
if you guys are favorites for the match. Stop yawning. You'll make me start yawning. I can't help it. Okay. When I do a lot of reading, I yawn. <laughs> and, but I'm tired anyway, so there's that too. All right, Torch. Gay supposedly said he looks forward to putting together the footage from the July 26th preview taping as he believes the company filmed another very good show that offered something different in every match. Told Torch this. I think this will be an excellent preview, and I can't wait to start editing it, he said. I think it'll be a fun show from start to bottom, and every match will offer something different. There'll be a lot of highlights all throughout it. What was the point of Wade's preceding sentence when it when it just reiterated everything that was going to be in the quote? Uh, 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 yeah, he did that twice. We gave here. No idea. Anyway, let's move on from Ring of Honor. Ricky Steamboat's son, Richie, had his first independent match this past weekend. He's a trainer with George South, Ricky's current agent for WWE. I'm curious now who were High Spot's interns at this time. <laughs> Well, I'm sure we'll find out in a couple of months when when Bahari listens to the show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, O'Connor will listen sooner. Corey Mackles Memphis Wrestling is returning for yet another incarnation on the My Network affiliate, WPXX Channel 50, in the city starting on August 9th. Jerry Lawler on Memphis Sport Magazine mentioned the move, saying the station would move wrestling back to its traditional time slot on Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. because the station doesn't have a studio. They said they were talking with Southland Park about taping there. Jimmy Hart's no longer involved, though. At this point, it's more clinging to the ghost with Lawler almost 59 years old. The thing is that Memphis, for almost everyone, remains the best ratings market for wrestling, as TNA does a minimum double, and sometimes more than triple its national average in the city. But as Slamversary showed, that also at this point doesn't translate into ticket sales. Even the tapes of years old wrestling on the CW affiliate that had run until recently this year was pulling mid-twos. Oh, the reruns of Andy Griffin and Sanford and Son, a TV show from the 60s and 70s, since the show was replaced, since the show was replaced, are now handily beating those numbers. <laughs> Folks, you'd be surprised at some of the numbers that some of these TV shows would do mm-hmm. on some of these stations. I mean, Ted Turner, when he lists his things that made TBS, Andy Griffin is one of them, for that reason. Andy Griffith, Wrestling and Braves. The economics of the Memphis situation is because the issue of wrestling to a monster range. TV stations have always allowed to promotion the use of studios for Saturday morning tapings that pay for production and pay the promotion enough to keep going at a small-time level. That deal allowed Jerry Jarrett to survive longer. Also, because Jarrett paid the talent very little than all the other <laughs> regional companies. But the last two stations ended up dropping the tape, tapings because they weren't good enough on the bottom line. Well, you know, I mean, studio tapings at this point in time, I mean... Yeah, I know Lawler wants to do them because it's that aesthetic look and everything, but times have changed. Yeah, I don't really remember much of anything about this version either. And NWA made it work because they found a spot that was, I mean, it was a studio, but it was a soundstage at the same time when they did it, you know, came, when they started taping uh, with Corgan's NWA. At, at, uh, the, Atlanta, at the public it, television it, thing. Yeah, yeah, our PBS station, yes. All right, the Memphis Wrestle promotion that starts back on TV ran a show July 26th at AutoZone Park in Memphis using Jerry, Joey Mercury, The Barbarian, Coco Beware, Pat Tanaka, Kit Cash, Jerry Lawler, Andrew Tess Martin, and Buff Bagel as the headliners. So the thought is they may be the names used once the group starts up. They ended with Lawler challenging Bagwell to a match. Oh, boy. All right, here's the thing I want to talk about the, the most for this entire show. It's that time. <laughs> 
Former ECW headliner James the Sandman Fullington was arrested after going berserk at the 75th birthday party for 70s wrestling legend Captain Lou Albano on July 20th at La Letourne Restaurant in Yonkers. At press time, he was still being held in the Westchester County Jail in Valhalla, New York, for psychiatric observation after being denied bail, pending a court date midweek. Fullington was charged with two felonies, second-degree assault, and third-degree criminal mischief, as well as two misdemeanors, second-degree reckless endangerment, and resisting arrest. Okay, you know what? Before we keep going with Dave, I think it's time to check in with the Fox 5 10 o'clock news, isn't it? Yes. It's 10 o'clock. You know where your children are? James Cromwell. They're not a Starbucks. Right now on Fox 5 News at 10. Caught on camera, Captain Lou's birthday bash, and it turned into a brawl. It's a Fox 5 exclusive, and it's first at 10. Good evening, I'm Rosanna Scotto. And I'm Ernie Anastas. Well, that birthday brawl led to this, the famous wrestler, <laughs> the Sandman, getting a mugshot. Tonight, you well, get to one see just what went down. Fox 5's Andrea Day is here right now with the video you will see only on Fox 5. Andrea. Yeah, Rosanna and Ernie, it's like WrestleMania gone wild, and it seems to be fueled by loads of booze. It's real-life WrestleMania, a booze-filled party that ends with the Sandman bloodied and cuffed. But here's how it all starts. All right, everybody here is thinking, you know what, this guy's drunk. And that's Jim the Sandman Fullington before things get crazy. He's making a toast to his friend, wrestling icon Captain Lou Albano, at his 75th birthday bash. And he even admits he's had a few too many. Hey, that and it just happens to get worse when the wrestler can barely get a word out. Next thing you know, he's standing on top of a banquet table. You know what? I'm going to get on this table right now to make sure... To make sure, no, we're not going anywhere right now. And from then on, it's all downhill. You can see people trying to hold the Sandman back, but guests say he's about to go berserk, charging after another guy. What kind of phrasing is that? Charging after another guy. <laughs> not another guest, another guy. It's right after this when guests say the owner of the restaurant pulls out a beer bottle and hauls it at Fullington. Now it turns into a bloody mess. (laughs) Next thing you know, a SWAT team is called in to get this brawl under control, and the Sandman's taken away in cuffs. And detectives say they found the Sandman flinging glasses at other people at the party, including detectives. He wound up in a jail cell charged with assault. Wow, it's a pretty wild scene. Wild stuff. Huh? Andrea, thank, thank you, thank Andrea. You much, yeah. All right, breaking at 10 tonight. Lead story on the Fox 5 10 o'clock news. Yes. <laughs> I guess we go back to Dave for now before we go to the uh, web-exclusive Fox 5 footage. Yes. All right, so according to two people at the birthday party, attended by about 150 people, including wrestlers Gary Wolf, John Ratner, Boss Mahoney, Tom Sullivan, Johnny Valiant, who left right before that got too ugly, Tim Roberts, Tim Arson, Puerto Rico, the short-lived ECW zombie, and Don Marie at about 5 p.m. 
Fullington, 45, who appeared to be drunk by that time, began acting rude to everyone, most a little bit of staff at the restaurant, and the family of Albano. He got into an argument that threatened to get violent after calling Lou Albano's 40-year-old son, Lou Jr., a bitch. Fullington also was reportedly cursing loudly for several hours before the incident got violent at a party, which could have women and children who are visibly uncomfortable with his behavior. It was the nastiest and most disgusting incident I've ever been in tennis for, said one person at the party. Lou did not deserve to be disrespected in this manner. Okay, from the verbiage, I guarantee you that's not liable. <laughs> there were others who put some of the blame on the restaurant's bartender, who's continuing to serve Fullington drinks long after it was clear he was drunk. Cammy Albano, Lou's niece, said she asked restaurant owner Ralph T.J. Tarone at about 4.30 p.m. to stop serving alcohol to Fullington, as well as several others at the party who were clearly already drunk, and Tyrone ignored her request, or Tyrone, whatever. I also went to the bartender and asked anyone who was drinking hard liquor to be cut off, said Cammy Albano in a New York Post article. They ignored our wishes. Local talk show host Joe Franklin was also at the party, talking about Albano's children, which doubled as the boot release party for Albano's autobiography, often imitated but never duplicated. Franklin hardly left the party before the incident, as did Albano. So at least, at least Franklin and Albano wasn't there. But wow, Albano hardly left at that time. Yeah, I That's forgot wild. that part. So Sandman went wild, punching a light fixture, which broke. Got into an argument with Taroni and Russian employees. Taroni threw a beer bottle about three feet away from Sandman's face, luckily striking him in the forehead instead of near, near the eye, where Fullington has so much scar tissue from his bloody wrestling matches, as well as constant smashing of beer cans. Fullington's forehead opened up badly, with one witness say he bled more than he ever had in any pro wrestling match and said the bleeding was worse than the famed Eric Coolis incident in ECW folklore. I don't know about all that. Enraged, Sandman began throwing glasses from the table all over the place and Taroni and restaurant employees. Several of the wrestlers, including Wolf and Roberts, took him outside and tried to calm him down, but he wasn't listening. As they tried to hold him outside, he broke free, ran back to the restaurant at Taroni. He grabbed one glass after another and started throwing them all over the place, mostly people working at the restaurant and Taroni. According to police report, five Yonkers police responded at 8.48 p.m. and tried to stop the 6'4", wrestler, who they spotted still throwing glasses at restaurant employees. They told them to calm down and stop. Fulton responded by throwing glasses at the police officers, cutting the hands and arms of two of them. Good, good Lord. Jessica Odella, Frank McDonald, although both, both didn't miss any time at work. Officers pulled their guns on him, and he finally stopped. He was in place under arrest. Because of how badly he was bleeding, he was sent to the hospital in the ambulance for t- being taken to county jail to be booked. By the time they got him out of the place, the entire restaurant was filled with broken glass. Fullington was being held without bond at press time, pending a look at his criminal record. He spent time in jail in the past, as a record included both DUI and reckless driving charges in Pennsylvania. The fight was both of their faults, Fullington Taroni, and TJ should have been arrested too, said Cami Albano. All right, well, let's look at the uh, other footage here before we move on to what happens. Everybody here is thinking, you know what? This guy's drunk. You're right. But I'll tell you a little story. When I was about five years old, 1968, 69, you know how some kids are four years old, five years old, they want to be a cop. They want to be a fireman. 
uh, there wouldn't be any counting what the dad is. You know what I mean? They, they want to do this. They want to do that. But you know what? None of them followed. None of them followed their heart. The captain followed his heart. Yeah. Yeah. He followed his heart. Yo. All right, put it this way. He appears to be pointing at Lou, so I'm guessing this is before Lou leaves, and then the fight is after Lou leaves. Uh, th yeah, I think that what we have here, Lou is there for this, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I won't ask for hands up, but how many people here hate the job they're doing? <laughs> yeah, what? It's 80%. Right, now, let me call for the for the people that hate their job, let me see your arms up. That hate your job. You know what? You think Captain Lou ever hated it, begging his business? What? Well, maybe when Vince was trying to pay him thirty-four thousand for a pay-per-view, and, and Captain thought he should have been making two hundred fifty. Hey, that shit happened. You know what I mean? Shit happens. So they're showing with the video they put up on their own website that the that shit happened quote was taken completely out of context. Yes. Because in the TV story, it was used as him saying he was drinking. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Especially since they put it up themselves. Yeah. But you know, I've been so lucky that in the last year, last year, year and a half, I met Cammy, and last weekend, me and Lou spent maybe 10 to 12 hours sitting next to each other at a convention. Any more comments? It's interesting because at this point he's still pretty cogent. He's just drunk. You know what I mean? He gets drunker and drunker, and that's I mean because there's a difference in time between this and right. This yeah, we should have mentioned that earlier. In the news story, they go from it being bright daylight to it being at night. Mm-hmm. So. Should I just skip ahead to see how... Yeah, let me see if we uh, have any of the other stuff, or if this is all just the... Okay, let's let's skip to when it gets darker. see much here. Oh, here we go. Hey, Sandman, it's Captain Lou's day. <laughs> He's not even there anymore. Stop! No, 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 no,
Who's holding him back? You can tell he's a worker from the hair. I think that's, I think that's Zombie. Either Zombie or Gary Wolf. Yo, Sandman, let him fix you up. You got to cut. Someone has a shirt off. That's got to be the owner of the restaurant. Which I agree with Cami Albano. He should have been arrested, too. Because yeah. he instigated that word. He instigated it more and more. I mean, you can tell that the videographer they hired, who I'm guessing is who is shooting all this, you can tell that like he's turning his camera off and then realize something's happening. It's probably in everyone's best interest for him to record. Yeah. But all those starts and stops there, it comes off like they had kind of diffused hack a bit and the restaurant owner kept instigating. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. He's letting everyone escort him out. And then each time we come back, it's Sandman freaking out because the other guy did something. I mean, and if Captain Lou's gone already, then why are they still having a party? Wrestlers, Chris. Yeah, Marks. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't so, think we need any of the other clips from what's on, from what it looks nah, like. Right? Yeah. I think, I think we got enough. All right, Sandman was finally released on $10,000 bond on July 24th after spending another day in jail due to them running his records and finding two guilty pleas for robbery in Pennsylvania during the 80s. Bullington told Judge Barbara Zimbelli on July 24th he needed to get out of jail because his girlfriend's about to give birth. He did work on July 26th, Philadelphia, pinning Jake Roberts for Pro Wrestling Unplugged. And that group's first show says Todd Gordon at the promotion. Oh, boy. So he needed to get he needed to get out of jail so his girlfriend could get burped, but he's wrestling two days later. Ain't that something? It's wrestling. Now, absolutely. In a surprise, Fluent's story became mildly big news in Japan this past week. It was a bigger story in Japan than the, Quint, than the Quentin Jackson story, even though Jackson's far more famous than Sandman in Japan. That's a whole nother deal. I don't even want to get into it. The Quentin Jackson thing. Sandman was to go to Japan for Guitar Kanemura's new group, but he's being replaced by Raven. Well, just to quickly to explain the context, I can explain this very quickly. Uh, Rampage basically went on a rampage after going on a bender where, what was it? He was like not eating and only ingesting energy drinks for days or something like that. Where he just drove around LA in his huge custom like almost a monster truck vehicle that had his face on it. Yeah. And basically was gotten out of the country very quickly. Have you ever wondered why, uh, besides, I guess, getting him away maybe from bad influences, why Rampage all of a sudden started training in England? It was because of the fallout from this. But yeah, all I can say after going through all this is thank God Sandman got clean. Yeah. And he's Absolutely. he's been clean for I think it's close to a decade now, right? Yeah, good for him. You know, he seems to be good doing great. Him. You know, you don't hear about him getting in trouble. You know, I mean, you know, there was the one thing where he was kind of an asshole to Jordan Grace, but that was being an asshole. That wasn't being drunk or on meth or anything. 
Yeah, and <laughs> she has a way of getting people that be assholes to her, I guess. That's a way of putting it. So Jesus, I'm not, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> I'm just saying she has a way of getting people to be assholes to her. They take, like, they, they, I mean, take that for what it is. It, you know, she does it on her own or take it the wrong way or whatever. You know, I mean, it's, th- she finds herself in, in some issues at times for that way. Yes. All right. Sabu's been calling around looking to get back in the ring. It was a few months ago where he was telling people he wouldn't be able to ever bump again. But now he's saying with a few months of rest, he feels better, although he still has to limit what he does. And Sabu is still wrestling, I think, today. But very toned down. Yes. Last time I saw him, like, a, I guess three years ago, he was able to do enough that it, he still felt like Sabu, though. Yeah. At least when I, the last time I saw him live. Brooke Hogan made more gossip news this past week. VH1 released clips her show there on July 27th ahead of time for publicity. And when interviewing a prospective new female roommate, she made this comment. You know what? I'm not actually that much into voting. I think it's kind of crazy that a woman is running because I think women deal with a lot of emotions and menopause and PMS and stuff. Like, I'm so moody all the time. I know I couldn't be able to run a country because I'd be crying one day and the other people the next day. Everyone picked up on it to make fun of her for being an airhead, but it's all part of the game. Like the planted posing in Playboy story that publicists do to keep their people in gossip news. Dave means on Brooke knows best. Obviously, there's a line scripted for her. In real life, Brooke Hogan probably disavowed her sign claims her father had physically and verbally abused her mother. She had some time back signed a court affidavit backing up Linda's claims against Hulk. She now says, I did it under significant pressure from my mother and asked the document not be filed in court. Since that time, she had a falling out with her mother, and she's back living with her father now that Brooke knows best is done filming for the season. A referee said the document was signed months ago. At the time, she was upset with her father over dating her best friend. Brooke said the allegations are false. It said using kids as pawns and divorce is awful. Every day my mother resorts to this kind of behavior. It makes it that much harder for us to ha- ever have a relationship again. And the range for the July 20th show remains strong, although down. Major primetime show did a 1.3. Other two airings, late night or afternoon, that same day, both did 1.0s. Combine with other replays during the week, and more people will see this show than Raw once again. Ah, uh, the Hogans. You know, she was like, she kind of went, you know, below the radar off the grid in a way for a few years. You know, she would post on social media, but you really never saw much of her. And she's made a return in in recent year or so. Yes, including one of the all-time great Twitter exchanges (laughs) where she brought up unionizing wrestlers and then someone... What was it? She did an interview or was it a tweet about how wrestlers should unionize? I think it was a tweet. It was, right? a, it was an interview because it was on video. Oh, it was an interview convention. and she posted it or was tagged in it? Tagged, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no, no. She It wasn't a thread. It was that later that day she was like, uh, like I forget exactly what she said, but she was like, oh, no. Yeah. She, she found out about her how her dad uh, was a bit of a union buster. Yeah. Um interesting knowing what we know now you know because we're about a year removed from when the sex tapes would have happened uh, i'm guessing she also knew about uh, her father disapproving of her dating a black man probably when you think about the timing of when their schism was and all that yeah but she uh, you know she her and her mother had a lot of problems, and I don't, I don't know if they're still having the day. But, I uh, think they do. 
She's definitely, you know, more with Hulk than Linda. Yes. Oh, okay. I found the thing. It was she did a convention, an interview at a convention, where she talks about yeah, it's oh, convention. Oh, that's what it was. It was she, uh, and she found out. I think to give, giving the interview, and then maybe she tweeted mm-hmm. after it. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I'm curious to watch that again. Obviously not right now, but she seems like she's become a much well more well, excuse me much more well adjusted human being over the, the last. Well, she's not being whored so. out. I wouldn't use that phrasing, but okay. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the, the the phrasing of. I mean, she was Hulk and Linda were, especially Hulk was they trying were stage to make, parents. Yeah, exactly. And that's what basically what that was. Mm. It's whoring out because that's what it is. You try. I mean, good lord. I mean, it ain't just in that type of thing that you see it in sports. With with some of these you know parents whoring at their kids and in youth sports and stuff like that and it's just yeah stage parents. I'm not sure if we should be talking about whoring in kids giving the company that uh, the next person keeps. <laughs> the debut of Matt Morgan as the Beast <laughs> on the July 21st episode of American Gladiators at a 3.0 on the Fast Nationals and a preliminary estimate on of 5.08 million viewers, which is in the range of what the show had been doing this season. Well, Bix, you are the American Gladiators expert of this show, so uh, what are your thoughts on And the Matt Morgan expert as well, so what are your thoughts on this? Um, I really didn't like the Hogan, Layla Ali, American Gladiators revival. Um, when the American Gladiators Pluto TV channel was still around, now, now American Gladiators is part of a Pluto TV channel that includes other similar shows like Ninja Warrior and stuff, I believe. I'd always just turn it off when they got to showing the revival. It just didn't get any of what made the show good. You know, hopefully the WWE American Gladiators thing has some of that. I think it might have more of the original people involved. I'm not sure. And, you know, when they they were hyping it, they were talking more about the original. So we'll see. But I, I could never get into the revival at all. It just... It, it was like they tried to combine the American and the British shows and didn't really understand how to take the best out of them. So, yeah. not good. And uh, trying to think. So, who else of relevance was on American? this version of American Gladiators? Mike O'Hearn, Gosh. right? Medacious husband. Yes. Uh, Gina Carano. Wasn't there? Oh. <sighs> The the British guys were on the British revival, right? So, I guess uh, so. Nick Aldis and wasn't someone else? Wasn't Rob Terry maybe also on it? Or I think so. Yeah. So there you go. Well, let's close out with total nonstop action. Large part of the reason Bob Ryder is replacing Bill Barons and booking talent to outside promotions is because TNA is trying to get everyone working out of the Nashville office, which has recently expanded. Barons is based out of Atlanta. And as I'm willing to move, Rich Baker, the company's live event promoter, is based in Stafford. He worked for years under Ed Cohen in WF. They were told he's good enough at his job and they don't have anyone in Nashville who can replace him. So he, he most likely will be forced into making a decision to move or leave. Hmm. When does uh, Raphael Morphy replace him? No idea. All right, let's go to Figure Four Weekly. It has been at least discussed that Steam will go heel. 
Seems like a, seriously, like it's like a double swerve. They're trying to claim on TV that Sting has joined Kurt Angle in the heels by the fact that, as a viewer, you don't believe it because there's no evidence whatsoever. But in the end, it would be true, and the heels are telling the truth all along. How weird is that? One of the proposed scenarios is similar to the old New Blood Millionaires Club angle from, yes, the 90s. Well, no, the 2000. With Stanley and the old guys against a Joe Left faction of young guys. Earlier this year, there was talk of doing a Ric Flair-like send-off for Sting with his contract as far as in December. But that can't possibly be the plan if he's going heel. Otherwise, they've really lost their minds. Are we just going to assume that Brian is one of those people who thinks that 2000 is actually the last year of the 90s? <laughs> but, okay, well, it's not the last year of the 90s. It's the last year of the decade. Well, uh, okay. Here's the thing. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. I mean, it's, let's just explain what it is. Can, well, the, it's the well, last year of the decade. It's the last it's year the, of the uh, – if you say that each decade beginning with – you know, one, you know, with, you know, going from when we count it, you know, uh, AD, yes. But it's, um, what was I going to say? It's people not understanding that 80s, 90s, etc. is an arbitrary designation based on what the tens digit is. Well, it's the 90s because it's the 90s. 90 exactly. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. There are people who take the there's no year zero thing to mean that 2000 is the last year of the 90s, but that's not what that no. means. No, but you, what you what you can do with that, though, mm-hmm. what you can do is you can say, like, culturally. Yes, yes, but, yes. Yes, like the whole Mad Men thing where, you know, the 60s weren't the 60s until blah, blah, blah. Yes. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But this, this is, becomes the main event mafia. So there you go. All right, uh, TNA has no financial – this bad day. TNA has no financial stake in the development of their video game for Midway. Interesting also is there's no blood in the game except some blood drops in the ring. Things don't look good for Midway as Los Angeles development house that was producing the TNA game has been shut down. With a majority of employees, including everyone working on TNA game being given a chance to stay with the company but moved to the San Diego office. The public reason given was the move makes it easier for TNA's team to work with the San Diego office. This is said to not affect the release date of the game, scheduled for late this year. Midway is counting on big numbers from the game, which many question. Their belief is not only they would get the TNA television audience, but people from the pro wrestling genre who are looking for something new as opposed to WWE's product. That's where they may be overshooting. Because for years, people look at the big dog, WWE and USC, and think that if we can just get 10% of their fans crossover, we'll be healthy. But in the real world, that doesn't happen. I don't even remember this game. I remember it happening, but I don't remember anything about it. I've never played it. Um, Wikipedia says it sold one and a half million units, but financial issues at Midway prevented the planned development and release of a sequel. Shocking that a wrestling company would end up would be using a video game company that's having financial issues. <laughs> Shocking. Let's see. THQ. <sighs> Acclaim. Jax, I think we can extend to with THQ. Well, they didn't have financial issues. They were just crooked. So, yes, THQ, Acclaim. I feel like I'm forgetting some other obvious ones. But, I mean, those were the big ones for a while. So, yeah. And now this happens with Midway. And now it's, and now it's looking like, uh, I mean, I know they, it's not really the same company. You know, the, the buzz that's out there is that the AEW game is going to be published by THQ Nordic. Which holds some of the old THQ assets. Well, that'll be something with it. 
All right, let's go back to figure four and Brian on Impact. <clears throat> Impact opened with Joe and Kevin Nash coming to the ring through the crowd. The announcers flat out said this symbolized his relationship with the people. For those wondering, Joe and Nash are inexplicably friends again. Joe City won a cage match with Booker at the pay-per-view with no referees, no rules. If there's no referee, how do they determine who wins? Booker came out in his awesome fucking robe with his title belt in hand. Wait, Joe's title? Wait, wait, wait. wait I just realized something. Wait, is Russo in the company at the time? When is he not? So shouldn't Brian <laughs> know? Unofficially, you know, when is he not? So shouldn't Brian know then that if there's no referee, it could just be New York rules count you on pinfalls? <laughs> Maybe. Wait, Joe's title. I can only imagine what first-time viewers are thinking right now. If, if, in fact, there are any new viewers, which there weren't. He said Joe attacked him last week in an ambulance, and that just went to show how, how scared Joe was. Booker said he used to be a drum major in high school, so he felt they should add more instruments to the party. Guitars? Trombone? No, he was talking tables, ladders, and chairs in the cage. Talk about your overkill. Be afraid of the dark, Joe, Booker said. Be afraid of the dark. Don West immediately determined that this must have something to do with Sting. What? They interviewed Christian, AJ, and Rhino about the six-man elimination tables match later. AJ was wondering, what was up with Sting? If he's really going to show up in Angle's corner. Christian said this wasn't about wrestling or winning or losing anymore. It was about who was going to end whose livelihood first. And no matter who was on the other side of the ring, including Sting, that person was dead meat. Although uh, Brian had a typo and it was deaf meat. (laughs) Deaf meat, yes. Consequences Creed versus Johnny Devine versus Jimmy Ray versus Eric Young. Of course, Creed's Xavier Woods. No idea what the point of this match was. You know the drill. They did a bunch of moves. Creed wiped out every wiped out Rock and Ray with a flip dive over the top. There were some cool spots at the end. Everyone had a finish, and someone else broke it up. Then Creed won a cradle with a cradle. Of course, he got the win, and then it was beaten up by the other guys. If you want someone else to get over, why not let that guy win instead? Abyss randomly made a save in his stupid new sparkly white outfit. Don West explained that Abyss came out when people were in dire need and severe trouble. The story is he's constantly thinking about doing other things like hitting dudes with chairs, and then it changes his mind. He's a new man. Jesus Christ. Just reading forward to Brian really overdid the caps for emphasis on some of this stuff. Speaking of which. It was time for the debut of Karen's Angle. Tilda first, Yes. Her first guest was Kaz. You should have heard the music they played during this segment. Is this Unsolved Mysteries? They know that he started out in TNA very early on. And in 2005, he decided to leave the company. Kaz then said this. I quickly learned a lot of the ugliness that goes on in this business, a lot of the politics. And that's side of this business that from then until this day, I despise. It's Frank Kazarian, by the way. And yes, he was in WWF. And wasn't he, he said, just called Kaz at this point? Yes. He said wrestling was all he ever wanted to do, all he loved. And he didn't have the passion anymore. All the passion was gone. I didn't enjoy going to work anymore. I sat there with my jaw agape thinking, Jesus Christ, he's on TNA, buried TNA. What the fuck? (laughs) I had to watch this twice before I figured out when he was talking about hating wrestling was when he was talking about his WWE run. But they never mentioned WWE. (laughs) I was watching with Vince, and he was sure Cass had been talking about TNA as well. So I presume 95% of the fans thought the same thing. And they didn't announce Monday that Cass was leaving the company and was going to talk about it this week. 
God, this company drives me crazy. <laughs> also, I just realized, he's Kaz. Isn't this the uh, point where his most famous tag team partner is known simply as Daniels? <laughs> yes. For reasons that have never been explained. TNA, everybody. Next, we get Goldberg versus Corey Chavis. Oh, sorry, that's Matt Morgan. They plugged Morgan's debut on American Gladiators. He debuted Sunday. They plugged it after the debut. Awesome. Anyway, these people can't even do Goldberg right. Corey Chavis actually got offense in. This is ridiculous. Morgan took forever to beat him. Then Don West said Chavis had just joined Morgan's Mile High Club. They fucked in the bathroom? I don't need to see that. <laughs> Corey Chavis, of course, being Rain Man in, in Wildside. But... Yes, I'm sure you're glad you got to say that in reverse for once instead of Rain Man, of course, Corey Chavis. How about them plugging the debut after the debut aired? TNA, everybody. TNA, everybody. <laughs> Next, we got the about the 50th UFC commercial in the last 40 minutes. Yes, I. It, whenever I would flip to TNA, you can best well believe that there were UFC commercials in every fucking break. Well, you know, rightfully so. Mercy Machine Guns did a promo backstage about beer money. It was actually hilarious. You'd have never known these guys had such an understated sense of humor. I have only seen them in TNA. Super Eric, Curry Man, and the Fish Man had a meeting outside. These segments are ridiculously bad and not even funny bad. Even better, Prince Justice Brotherhood is apparently an inside joke since Abyss used to wrestle as Prince Justice. Is that really That's that correct. inside a joke? It is for that crew, yes. Um, Fish Man, I presume, is some Shark Boy thing. Yes. Yes. All right, next we get Machine Guns against Beer Money. This strap match for really no good reason on TV. Another great, great way to ensure they can't have as good a match as usual. There's some fun spots and people are into it. Even with the straps, it would be almost impossible for these teams to have a bad match. Jackie could interfere to set up the heat. Jackie Moore, actually. Yeah. So the machine guns sold for a while, and then they made their comeback, and so this became awesome. They actually formed a star on the canvas doing a double row the boat spot. You should have seen Storm and Rude selling. Then Jackie hit the ring and fell to the middle of the star and got stuck like a turtle on her back. This was the funniest thing I have seen in ages. And just like that, I love TNA again. Of course, they had to fuck up all the fun with a ref bump and a sort of bullshit leading to a fuck finish by Beer Money. Still, this rules. Beer Money whipped the crap out of uh, the good guys afterwards until LAX made the save. They made the save for machine guns faster than they did for Hector Guerrero last week. Amazing. Velvet Sky versus Taylor Wilde for the knockout's title. Yeah! No sooner should I type that than Taylor wrote her from, wrote her up from behind the bell and won in five seconds. No, motherfucker! Velvet got a promo afterwards saying this wasn't fair and she wasn't ready. Taylor, even though she snuck up on the heel and surprised her with a pen, acted stunned that Velvet would complain. Velvet then said she won the rematch and added, and I quote, I dare you. What are you, Scared? So Taylor got back in, and after the high spot, she pinned her again with a small package. This was two pins in 25 seconds. So now Angelina grabbed the mic and said, this was bull crap, and that this shouldn't have happened. Angelina then offered $5,000 of her own money for another match. Taylor's facials are awful. She accepted. We got a third match. It's going fine until Taylor's comeback. Velvet needs to turn babyface because her selling for comebacks are awful. Taylor went for a cover, so Angelina broke up for the DQ. Are you telling me she just cost herself $5,000? They beat Taylor up and put the bag on her head. I love that gimmick. So then ODB, who's still over despite being a complete jobber, and Gail Kim made the save. Mm. 
<laughs> so, uh, as far as uh, American, well, North American, because she's Canadian, women uh, kind of screwed by timing as far as women's wrestling and all that. Chantel Taylor has to be up there, right? Yeah, but she's back on social media, on Instagram. You know, I know, she's, she's been teasing a comeback a little bit. Um, yeah, but she's also doing like the Jay Chunk thing. So, is she doing the sneakers gimmick or just the OnlyFans? No, she's doing like the OnlyFans stuff. Okay. Basically. So but, she's uh, found a market for that, at least. I mean, she could work. She had charisma. She had a good look. WWE signed her with the idea that she'd be a cruiserweight in a mask and a padded bodysuit who would win the cruiserweight title and then unmask and just didn't do anything with her and that was basically the end of her in wrestling. Yeah, pretty much. And you know, of course she was also the one who uh, infamously was working at Sunglass Hut during the week while knockout champion and quit the job because someone recognized her. Yes. Yeah. Um... What it's just the, the booking and everything here too? What the? Were you surprised? I mean, no. are you surprised me? No. Okay. No. All right, let's continue. They had a video segment for Abdul Bashir, who's the former Davari. He's your classic foreign heel. Okay. I just saw. Com- go oh, ahead. What? Go, go ahead. I was gonna read the next thing. Go ahead. Oh. Um. Do you recall what his entrance music was like? No. So I'm going to click uh, this clip on YouTube that is titled Clip of Sheikh Abdul Bashir's Absolutely Not Racist TNA Theme. Okay. Cornette rules. Both Creed and Bashir qualify. It's now a three-way. Ladies and gentlemen, No Surrender continues with a three-way X-Division Championship match. Hey, it's Starcast David Pinter. Yes, his entrance music began with a plane crashing into a building. <laughs> TNA, everybody. Of course. Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, do we blame Dale Oliver for that? Oh, I scrolled down, actually. Yes. At least according to one of the YouTube uploads of his theme, we do blame Dale Oliver for this. How about that? Well, here's hoping he was just doing what he was told. Now I'm curious who would have told him that, though. I just saw a commercial for the Tank Kimbo DVD versus Kimbo DVD. <laughs> Tank Abbott, Kimbo Slice, yes. Mm-hmm. Sanjay Dutt was in the hospital with his guruites. Bao was there, saying she rushed there as soon as she heard. He was claiming a head injury, courtesy of Jay Lethal's supposed to chair shot last week. Bao, you didn't see the replay, did you? He asked. She responded, you know I hate violence. Yeah, she's a ring girl? This was so wacky, and they're killing all these characters, and they don't even know it. So Cal Val, by the way. Yes, yes. It was basically London Val. She lives in, I think, London now. I've been there for quite a few years now. But anyway. Good good for her. Kurt Angle and Team 3D against Christian Rhino and AJ in an elimination match. Tables match. We don't even really have good reason for this match, except for rematch from the pay-per-view that the heels won. They brought all over the building and people chanted, this is awesome. First man eliminated was Devon. You think I'm making this up? No, the babyfaces got a numbers advantage. So angled the heel, then beat up all three babyfaces with a chair. So I guess a TLC match. Or a TC match, not just a T match. 
it gets better. Rhino was eliminated next, but he was eliminated during the break. And it happened when, like a fucking fool, he put himself through a table. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, two things here. One, this is a tape show, so what the fuck? Um, <laughs> the other is that that's not how table matches work. <laughs> you can't eliminate. Oh, my God. You have to be propelled through a table. That's TNA, literally everybody. always been the rules. <laughs> Everywhere. Not like, tunneled on stuff action, Bex. No, like literally, have you ever heard of a tables match no. anywhere else that could end where that would be counted? Okay. No. Good. It's also why for such a gimmicky thing, it's also why the Cody Big Show thing worked so well. Because Cody did technically propel him through a table. Yes. Devon helped Bubba put Christian to a table to eliminate him. This is no DQ match. Why don't they eliminate guys just keep wrestling? <laughs> He's not anyway. wrong. Anyway, it came down the curtain, Bub against AJ. Somehow, Johnny Devine got involved. He was put through a table. So, shouldn't that kind of get someone to five table match? Yeah, because everybody's got to go to a table. And Johnny Devine goes to a table. He's not even in the match. Bubba got sent to a table outside, leaving Angle and AJ together. Well, AJ why, why did he put five tables match in quotes? Did anyone actually call it that? I guess it. I guess since there's five ta- there's five guys that's going through tables, one left standing. Nah, but it's an elimination match. I don't, it's Brian. I don't know if I should assume he got anything right. Let's continue. Bubba got sent through a table outside, leaving Angle and AJ together. AJ put him on a table and went on top, but Frank Trigg came out and AJ with a stick. We got more TNA nonsense as the ref had to be bumped before the Trigg interference, but of course he was standing there looking right at Divine's interference and didn't give a fuck. It's all this little shit that makes it impossible to ever care about this show. So anyway, the ref woke up after this interference and AJ won. No sting, by the way. Amazing. Great. Booker and Joe came up with a contract signing. Booker explained that it was a TLC match in a cage. Why the fuck would you need a ladder in a cage match? I hate this promotion. Booker told Nash to hit the bricks because this had nothing to do with him. Joe said Nash would bail Charmel head to the back as well. Booker asked Joe if, if Joe was scared of his wife, which led to some fans chanting, You're scared. Hell of a baby face, that Joe. Booker gave her a big kiss and sent her off. Instead of Joe and Nash wanting to do the same thing, they could go ahead. Joe said no. He heard Charmel was an awful kisser. And now she had to explain to us that Joe won the joke off. Booker signed and then offered a contract to Joe. Suddenly the lights went out. Sting's music played. And when they came back on, Joe was laid out and Booker was standing there with Sting's bath. Announcers were freaking out about what Sting had done. Yes. There's no other explanation for what happened here. Like, I don't know. It was a ruse by Booker. I have no idea how a normal person can enjoy this program. <laughs> well, the ratings barely fluctuated each week, so I don't know if there were normal well, people. That... Well, yes. Well, go ahead. The Impact did their best numbers in months with a 1.11 rating and 1.5 million viewers. The show did a .71 in males 1834, .95 in males 35 to 49, so the latter number is where they gained the new viewers. Uh, so what? They went from a 1.10 to a 1.11? Because <laughs> really, the joke in the spike era, though, was always that they pretty much all did a 1-1 every week. Amazing. <sighs> TNA, everybody. All right, when Jim Mitchell was released last month, he simply was told creative had no place for his character. In interview with ProWrestling.net, Mitchell said Dixie Carter called him personally twice after his release. 
that was very complimentary to his work. You say let to give, go back if the opportunity is there. Well, I think he does go back all, a couple of times, so there's that. Yes, in different regimes and different forms too. He's been in been part of the undead realm stuff in recent years. Yeah. Oh, okay. I've actually found a ratings chart. Okay, so this was the twenty fourth show. Yes. So if we're rounded to the tens, the previous week was a one point one. Week before about... that, one point oh, one point oh, point nine. We we have something denoted as a one point oh three on June nineteenth. Point nine, point nine, point nine. One out. You get the idea. And then I'm curious when the actual streaks of one ones. Okay, that seems to come fairly soon after this. Late later in '08 is when we when the whole one one pattern really starts to pick up. It seems. Yeah. All right. Uh, TNA announced that Cass had requested his release and would be leaving the promotion. They claimed this past weekend was his final shows. He would announce why he was leaving on the Karen Angle segment on the July 24th Impact show. This reads to me like a wrestling angle, Dave says. His Luton Street game was a planned storyline for him, so him leaving over losses sure sound like a part of it. Wait, so where was he saying he hadn't been happy in the first... Uh, whatever. I, it's TNA, Biggs. Savio Vega's been talked with about becoming an agent with Scott Demore leaving. The company agents are Jim Cornette, Glenn Gaberti, and Pat Kenny, with Kenny handling most of the house shows. Vega's being talked about as a request for Scott Demore. Vega would be tight with Dutch Mantel in particular because all the years Dutch worked in Puerto Rico. People rave about Cornette, but the problem is he's only there for, mostly for TVs and stuff in Orlando as he won't go on the road. Also, in their pay-per-views in a different city in Orlando, which is most of the time now, he won't go to the pay-per-views because he refuses to fly. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's talk about the TNA house shows here. Fayetteville, North Carolina, on July 25th, drew 1800. Nice showing. Even though Cass was reported as having left the promotion on the website, he still wrestled on the tour, beating X Division champion Petey Williams in a non-title match. Can't everybody? <laughs> Rhino versus Jimmy Rave, which saw Lance Rock interfere, turned into a tag match with Rhino and Super Eric over Rock and Rave. Taylor Wildpin also called him keep knockout's title. LAX beat Beer Money. Kurt Angle came out and apologized for not being able to wrestle. Saying he had a neck injury. He gave the same speech where he tells people he told Vincent Man to kiss his ass and the TNA. We'll be kicking WWE's ass in a few years. Good luck with that. Christian Cage pinned Tomko in the semi-man event, and Abyss replaced Angle, wrestling Joe for the title on top. Joe won after Abyss missed a chair shot, and Joe used a super kick of the chair to Abyss's face. Now, July 26th in Florence, South Carolina drew 2,000 fans, with Joe beating Christian with a Joe to keep the title. Joe didn't even bring the belt with him. To give TV continuity, because TV Angle's Booker stole the belt. So there you go. How about that? But Joe doesn't want to back to the pay-per-view. Abyss beat Tomko. Angle did the same promo the night before. LAX over Rock and Rave. When te- while Taylor Wild Pen Kong with a roll up. Storm Pen Young after blowing beer in his face. Post match saw Super Eric come run the ring to a Dead Valley driver with both Storm and Jackie on his shoulders. Even though Cavs was announced leaving the promotion on the website, he still did, like I said, work shows. But he lost to Williams on this show in the Canadian Destroyer. Now let's talk about Kurt Angle. To promote last weekend show at Florence, Kurt Angle told the Morning News that TNA has much more talent than WWE does. We got much more talented wrestlers since I've been here. This probably progressed 200%, he said. It's not me, though. The folks who start TNA have really built it up. WWE still makes over $100 million a year, but eventually we'll get there. Now we ha- they have a real competitor. <laughs> Angle also detailed his approach to win to wrestle his age and with his history of health problems. I have to say myself, he said, I don't wrestle every three or four months like I used to. At TNA, I wrestled 52 weeks a year. 
When I wrestle, I don't wrestle for six to eight minutes. I wrestle for 20 to 30 minutes. In pro wrestling, the bumps you take make it so demanding on your body. I got to be careful how I train. Angle is also asked about competing in MMA. He says first priority is for TNA. And he's afraid of the, dry, the day of the dangers of MMA. In mixed martial arts, the danger is always there. If he puts me in the submission hold and I'm too proud to tap out, he snaps my arm, I'm out for a year or two. Angle said if I were to do it, the money would have to be unbelievable. Because if I get injured and I'm out, I need to provide for my family. But the money I get in mixed martial arts does not exceed the money I make at TNA. It's not worth it. Any thoughts on the Kurt Angle interview here, Bix? Uh, at least as this era goes, I guess it's relatively lucid for a Kurt Angle interview. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah, could definitely have been worse. Although, snap my arm and I'm out a year or two. <laughs> well, he's a giant dream, I guess. Real competitor. They make over $100 million a year, but... Mm-hmm. All right, now we got a Matt Morgan interview, Bix, for your uh, pleasure here. And we go to the torch. Matt Morgan said he can identify one of the differences between WWE and TNA in his eyes. Dixie Carter went to the bat for me on American Gladiators. She hired a lawyer I couldn't afford, and this guy went and got my contract redone so I could do Gladiators and wrestling, and both sides could be happy with the agreement. Morgan said in an interview with UGO.com, Ugo, and it worked perfectly. In a situation, if I was still in WWE, I don't think I would have happened. Other notable quotes from the interview on WWE's backstage atmosphere. Backstage with them is a walk-on eggshell type situation. Not everyone might feel that way, like the other guys who know how the machine works. I get that respect factor about how you should be very honored to work there. I get that. But at the same time, how am I supposed to go in the ring and get myself over, let alone my opponent, when I'm that nervous? You're paranoid and walk on the next shows because you're worried about someone stabbing you in the back all day. Well, that was the mentality in that era for sure. It's not that way anymore. No, I you don't have saying, to worry about the other talent that much. No. No, you don't. On TNA's atmosphere, it's night and day different. As soon as I got there, I got what they were trying to do. It sounds hokey, but it's really a big family atmosphere. Everybody watches everybody's matches. So did everyone in WWE. I have to say, everyone come up to you from the ticket guys to the bookers to the Kurt Angles and the Stings, especially Nash 2. Those guys will never stop helping me. So a promo or my entrance, anything you can fathom in the business, they try to teach and coach me without being overbearing about it. Nash will pull me aside and say, why don't you try this? Kurt will text me back and forth little idiosyncrasies that might help my character. And little things like this. You can't put a price on. And that's why, in my opinion, it's the happiest locker room in the world. Nobody's sitting there sweating their job all the time for all the wrong reasons. You know why it's the happiest locker room in the world? Because those guys can pay good money to do nothing. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Hmm. They really aren't. Uh, by the way, uh, I was digging around a little bit. Uh, that Midway San Diego story we were, uh, excuse me, studio we were talking about earlier, they close a year after this. I'm shocked. Yes, and then uh, a month later, they're talk. The San Diego Union Tribute talks about how they're basically bankrupt and found a story for. Excuse me, found a buyer for that studio. Oh, they were outright. Excuse me, they were outright bankrupt. There we go. Staying with a torch. Larry Bisco said the wrestling business would be better off if people listen to his ideas. There are things in the wrestling business I like to do. He told Jim Barcelona in an interview for the Miami Herald. It'd be much better off if, I, if some of these organizations would listen to me in terms of how to do their wrestling show and their business. It'd be fun to help the business out from behind the scenes. We'll see what happens. So Bisco critiques the TNA for the off-the-wall storylines that no one cares about and an effort to be like WWE. A lot of these young guys are great athletes, could do some great stuff, but instead of letting them become these athletic guys, they have them do these silly, stupid skits, Zabisco said. 
They're all doing skits. Everyone's in love with someone else's wife, and no one believes it or cares. Hopefully, they'll wise up. So this talk about the rest of his career, and Bruno San Martino, shockingly, of course, as well. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of surprising, in a way, that Larry didn't possibly get a chance to be a creative guy in the business that much. I mean, he did do some stuff at TNA. But it's surprising that WCW never really gave him a chance to be creative, you know? Especially for someone who's hanging around as an announcer, yeah. And it's tight with Bischoff. Yeah. That's weird. Very weird. At the Guerrero, so he lost contact with Vicky Guerrero to death Fetty nearly three years ago. Vicky's not, Vicky Guerrero is not Vicky Guerrero anymore. Hector said in an interview with Jim Barcelona and Miami Herald. She's Vicky Lara. We know why she kept the family name, but she's not reached out to us. She's loved by us and wish her the best. We just wish she would love us back and return, return to gesture communication. Hector talked about his Christian faith, how it's carried him through his rest career, through his current opportunity with TNA. He also commented on LAX. They're a great, great tag team, he said. You have the complete combination of heart, spirit, and eagerness to win. All they needed was a different look to help themselves so they could achieve what they could achieve. And that, by the grace of God, is what I was given the opportunity to do. Yeah, there was some big-time heat between the Guerreros and Vicky for a while there after Eddie's death. Well, okay, there were a few things, right? There was, and this was before his death, but there was, I think, moving to Phoenix, right, was one. Yes, yes. Um, the WWE stuff was another, and the different layers of it, too. Like when, was Mondo the one who wanted to do, like, the charity golf tournament or whatever? I think you're right. Yeah. And that WWE was refusing to help out, which, at least at the time, was explained in The Observer as uh, people in WWE feeling like that only they were allowed to support the Guerreros. Yeah. There is a lot of baggage there that people don't remember or know about anymore. Yeah, it's also one of those deals where they kind of thought that Vicky was pulling Eddie away from the family and this and the other, so... Yeah, a mess. All right. Let's talk about the angles as we That's close cool. the show. Wow. Kurt and Karen filmed the TV pilot for a reality show called The Real Angle about their home lives that's being shopped around. The idea is that Karen is trying to force Kurt to become a father, family man, and human being, while Kurt can't handle anything but working and training. In the pilot, Karen comes off as the normal one, as Kurt, and Kurt is someone who can't babysit his kids for 15 minutes or go anywhere with his family without getting on his cell phone including sneaking out of his daughter's dance class. He talks about having a pill problem. Claims he was taking 65 extra strength Vicodin daily and said that Vincent Mann wouldn't give him time off. He described being in WWE as making a deal with the devil and claimed he had, get this, 60 million fans worldwide. If he did, you'd think TNA could beat 25,000 buys pretty regularly. He claimed doctors forced him on steroids and then it came out as Sports Illustrated. This is a new one. He claimed he took so many pills that he OD'd in front of his daughter, who panicked when she couldn't revive him. When he woke up and realized what he'd done, he never took another pill, but Vince wouldn't give him time off when he asked for it. That's also not how overdoses work, speaking of which, Dave says. For whatever it's worth, nobody in WWE buys that story, even though Kurt always tells it. At that point, Karen left him, which was true, and claimed she wouldn't come back unless he quit WWE. So he quit WWE. And now it's a new life with TNA. Still, they showed him do, doing training in a cage, claiming he's going to fight Randy Couture. They also showed him flying from Pittsburgh to Orlando in first class while Karen had to sit and coach. Seriously, if I tried that one, I'd be divorced so fast it wouldn't even be funny. 
and Kurt at 10 a.m. was drinking one beer after another, chewing tobacco until he passed out with his mouth open, and tobacco in his mouth while Karen started telling him he was about to become an alcoholic. And that's just the first episode of the season. Who the hell thought that part was a good idea? Jesus. Uh. <laughs> wow. You know this is up. It is? The whole thing? Or a trailer? Or what? It's a, it's a ten minute thing. Oh, a ten minute presentation? Yeah. On YouTube? or? Yeah, it's on YouTube. It says from the 2010. That, that could be true. wrong. Well, obviously it's wrong. Okay, I'm, I, I found it. Obviously, we're not playing the whole thing. No, but let's see People what we don't got. Realize how hard it is. My dream was to win an Olympic gold medal. That's something that I dreamed of since I was five years old. Karen is the best thing that's ever happened. I went into pro wrestling on six WWE titles. He has about sixty million fans worldwide. When I signed what? with WWE, I signed a deal with the devil. Shoulder pain, dislocated shoulders, knee surgeries. The doctor required me to go on a steroid to see my name in Sports Illustrated. And it's like, oh my God, I, I can't believe this is happening. The girl that I cheated with for two and a half years, she threatened to kill Karen. I was taking 65 extra strength Viking in a day. Oh yeah, I forgot to point that out when you were reading that. If he was taking that specifically and not another opiate, he wouldn't have a liver anymore from the Tylenol that's in there. <laughs> <sighs> I was playing Russian roulette. My worst fear came true, and we were living it. My daughter trying to wake Kurt up and couldn't get him to wake up and telling him she didn't want him to die. I woke up, and she said, Daddy, don't die. Don't Please wake up. And uh, that was the last time I, I, I took the pills. So they're not saying here that it was an overdose. They're saying that he passed out on the pills and she couldn't wake him up. All right. Right. All right. So should I skip ahead a little bit? Yeah, because the plane stuff's coming up. The which stuff? The plane. Oh, yeah. yeah keep going. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Okay. Keep going. Oh, oh okay. Keep going. Keep going. I see. That's right. You're watching. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, here All right. Go. go back. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, this is great uh, from what I've seen it. Okay. Okay. Karen and I probably wouldn't be as close as we are because Karen travels with me. Kiss my babies. Did I get upgraded? Uh, let me take a look. I got first class. No, you didn't get first class. Oh. You're number one. Oh. Oh, I know that you're not going to sit in the back. Uh, I hope yes, not. Yes, she is. <laughs> Watch this shit. I'm sitting back here in coach. It's 10 o'clock in the morning, and Kurt's sitting in first class. And drinking. Excuse me. Can I get one more? He thinks he's okay. I know he's not okay. It's like um, 10 o'clock. Yeah. And you're drinking? I'm fine, Karen. I'm fine. Please don't make a big deal. Don't make a big deal. You know what's great after four beers? A dip. <laughs> and now go look at him. When you, when you walk past, please go look at him and look what's in his mouth. He's disgusting. He's an embarrassment. No, an embarrassment to himself. Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. You're turning into a drunk. You're going to become an alcoholic. No. Yeah, you will. You're an addict. If you are addicted to one thing, you're going to be addicted to another. 
all these autographs, they're signing pictures, taking with Relative, especially to hearing him talk these days, and just how often he sounded like this in that era. I mean, it's not exaggeration to say that for years he was basically Kerry Von Erich, and that it seems like we only saw him loaded. Yes, basically his whole TNA run. I mean, if, when you hear him give interviews and stuff these days, he's a different person. Yes. I haven't listened to the podcast, but I assume it's similar. Yes. You know? So, <sighs> and, you know, for him, and weirdly for Jeff, too. Like, you know, I say weirdly because of the interpersonal situation. Both of them, it seems like, just finally going to rehab once did it. You know, both of them have this prolonged sobriety since then from the first trip to rehab. Yeah. Which, yeah, good for them. Yeah. Well, good for us. This is over with. Uh, <laughs> honestly, yes. this show didn't end up that long runtime-wise compared to no, some of our longest. But No, it didn't because we didn't play a lot of clips. Well, we didn't need to, but... No, we did But anyway... That's it for the 2000s, folks, for, for a little bit. Next week on Between the Sheets, let's go back to the 90s, shall we? Yay. And we're going back to 1992. 30 years. Which also will play into the Patreon a little bit. Um, we start with the World Wrestling Federation, where we have uh, more indications that the WBF is no more. Sad to say. So we'll talk about that. We also have a... Uh, on the, the uh, build to SummerSlam, we have a jump from WCW to WWF, but someone you may not expect. We have some interesting stuff on promos, and oh, Big you'll love this. Randy Savage on Arsenio Hall, talking about his match with the Ultimate Warrior at SummerSlam. So we have that. Oh, is this the one, <laughs> is this one where he says he well, stopped taking steroids because they gave him PMS? We'll talk about that as we do the show. Um, we have some news on wrestling radio shows. We got a lot of stuff on Global to talk about. We got some USWA clips, including a crazy rumor about Jerry Lawler that had to be debunked on the news by Dave Brown. We got news on uh, the Atlanta wrestling block. Ricky Morton making his return to, to uh, a Smoky Mountain. Well, not return to Smoky Mountain. Making kind of a debut in Smoky Mountain in a way on a promo. We got Lucha News to talk about. Results going on. AAA starting to get hot and heavy with their promotion. We got uh, Japan where we got some FNW show, Wing Show doing good business. New Japan doing interesting stuff. All Japan closing out tour. So we'll talk about that. And World Championship Wrestling. Mike Mooneyham with a big column on the morale problems in WCW. So we'll talk about that. Jim Ross has some interesting statements to make. We got uh, stuff from TV. But the big thing in our week, 30 years, folks. 30 years. Ron Simmons wins the World Heavyweight title in Baltimore. And Jake the Snake Roberts makes his WCW debut all in the same night. All that and more next week on Between the Sheets. No guest as we're trying to get the show done so we can get the Patreon show done. Yes, and... Scrolling through the notes a little bit and also going by what you said, 
I believe some of this stuff is also from one of the first observers I ever had. Well, there you go. So, yes. So we'll have uh, some stuff on that. So there you go. Next week, between the sheets, I couldn't believe that we hadn't done Simmons' title win before, but we have it. We did the week before. We haven't mm-hmm. done that week. So there you go. All right, picks. Thanks as always for being the rock of the show. We thank Danny Kukler for uh, requesting this week. And it's Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Between the Sheets, Patreon, special edition number 69. Ha, ha, ha. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, it's time for round three of Titan Gate, the 92 version, not the 2022 version. Although, I've already had people on Twitter telling me that they're they're wanting to request this week in 10 years for the, sh- the, the, the main show, so... Oh, that's something I look forward to. But anyway, uh, here we are. It's time to delve back in time 30 years to uh, talk about stuff that is ringing hollow even more today. The uh, post-wrestling and WrestleNomics endorsed uh, Titan Gate series, we should say, too, especially after. Absolutely. Yes, we all definitely want to uh, thank John and Way and Brandon for uh, doing that and uh, an honor for them to put us over like that. We appreciate that. And yeah, so hopefully we gain some new patrons from that. And, uh, for those of you new patrons, make sure you listen to some of the old stuff that we've done too. There's a lot of great stuff on, on these shows and tell your friends about it. Let's spread that word. Patreon.com slash 20 sheets, get it out there. But anyway, so let's, uh, quit dilly dallying and let's get started. Shall we? But if that was bizarre, what was going on behind the scenes and putting together the store was far more bizarre. This probably best explains John Stone's despair in putting it together. Who's John Stone? I think the, the whichever current affair reporter was anchoring the segment. Let me see if it's Inclu- at the beginning here. Okay, well, you find that while I read. John Stone's despair in putting together the close of comments that's hard to tell the good guys from oh, the John villain. John Stone, not John Stone. John Johnston, there we go. Both in and out of the ring. A new personality came forward, claiming his name was Paul Baumgartner. 
and be a former pro wrestler to now can be told producer Brutskowski. Baumgartner is apparently a small-time independent promoter in Ohio reality. According to Skolsky, he claimed to have a videotape showing something in fairness to the person he claims it is of. We shouldn't elaborate on because I don't believe for a second he has such a video. But if he had what he claimed, it would have been up a story that now can be told was going to do a follow-up pro wrestling segment based on climaxing the show with that video. In a later conversation, Bob Gartner claimed to have been good friends with Rita Chatterton, the woman who has gone on two television shows to talk about an incident involving a man directly. Baumgartner supposedly told Skolsky that he didn't know for certain, but that he believed Chatterton's claim. He later claimed that there were parties trying to get him to change his story to discredit Chatterton. Just a few days later, McMahon's attorney, Jerry McDevitt, comes forward to a current affair with a man named Bill Gardner, who they claim was coming forward to say Chatterton told him he was making up her story. A current affair interviewed the man in what was supposedly his home in Ohio, who claimed to have been a former wrestler with WF and then Vincent Man Sr., using the name The Wolfman. There was a WWF wrestler in the late 60s and early 70s who used the ring name The Wolfman, but that was Willie Farkas. And Dave knows that, has no idea if that was the same person. He told him he was coming forward because he knew Chatterton was making up her story because she had told him personally. He also said Chatterton would never go to court in her claim because he would be there to testify for McMahon against her. He went on to say that he was coming forward because McMahon was such a great man and had done so much good for the wrestling business and done so much work for charity and was being unfairly accused. Chatterton's attorney, Robert Wolf, said that Chatterton had never heard nor remembers even meeting a Bill Gardner or a Paul Baumgartner or the Wolfman, let alone what he claims he told her. Wolf theorized something strange based on a conversation he had a few days earlier with Skolsky, who told him that an ex-wrestler named Paul Baumgartner had claimed to her that someone was attempting to get him to discredit Chatterton. This is crazy. As it turns out, Gardner and Baumgartner, according to Skolsky, are the same person. His phone was disconnected the next day, and a current affairs investigating him found out the house he claimed was his, that the interviewed him in wasn't his. They contacted McDevitt, who denied the man's involvement in this, and said that Gardner had to disconnect his phone because he claimed he was being inundated with harassing phone messages from Chatterton. The current affairs said they were going to show clips of their interview with Chatterton and with Gardner on the piece, and also uncover what they learned about Gardner. However, that segment of the story was edited out because the piece had to be shortened because of a late edition piece to the show that evening covering the riots in Los Angeles. Damn you. Damn you, riots. In addition, Lee Cole, the older brother Tom Cole, the former and current WF Marine boy whose claims of being sexually abused between the ages of 13 and 19 by three members of WF's management, led to this story garnering so much media attention, asked the current affair if he could be interviewed for the piece. He claimed he wanted to set the record straight in an interview where he would tell them a story negative to WF about the settlement and talk about the terms of the agreement made between his brother and the WF. However, Cole, just before he was scheduled to leave for the interview, allegedly asked for $2,500 to do the interview and was turned down. Okay. Dave, bring, Dave brings us something here in this whole thing that we've now hit that time that I think with it happening totally changes the media covering this story and other stories like this in particular. The LA riots. Mm-hmm. When you ha- when you have something like that, a major story that is going on like that was at that time, then stories like this would either be buried to you know a peripheral spot on the on a show, or just not covered basically at all. Mm-hmm. It's left. It's it's you know it, it's basically the um uh. It's the Chandra Levy to 9-11 type thing. Remember that? 
which the, also ended up being bad for Con Gary Condit because it Gary Condit, yeah, because it fell out of view by the time it turned out he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, the whole Gary Condit Chandra Levy thing, yes, which was a major story in this country, and then nine eleven hits and that knocks it out completely. Mm -hmm. So the Rodney King riots totally changes, you know, a lot of the media's trajectory on covering stories like this. They're going to spend most of their time covering that. Now, but go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, about Gardner, Baumgartner, whatever the fuck his name is. Okay. Reading this, as you're going through all this, the gears in my head are turning. This is all conjecture on my part, but... So, three and a half years later, when we hear about Marty Bergman, what do we hear? That he would go to media as both a friendly who was going to help them get dirt on WWF. And at other times, he was pretending, you know, to be... He was, you know, pretending to be, you know, either his brother or confuse people with his brother, who was, you know, the legendary uh, 60 Minutes producer, uh, Lowell Bergman or whatever, in a way... And he was being sneakier in a different way to get information about WWF, or, or he'd be claiming to be on the WWF side or whatever. Boy, does this feel like it has Marty Bergman's fingerprints all over it. Mm-hmm. It's almost exact. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. And also... But McDevitt put, the, put him in touch with Current Affair. Uh-huh. But also, there's no reason to think that Laura Brevetti's in the mix yet either. Which makes you wonder <laughs> if it's... Not Marty Bergman so much as... McDevitt? I wouldn't go far as to say that, but I get what you're... It, that it would be coming from that side and wouldn't that kind of plan would not necessarily be his idea in and of itself, I guess was what I was trying to say. Um, but, you know, I have and I've posted, you know, the FBI docs that at least were released under Freedom of Information Act to me about Bergman. There's nothing about this, but I guess it's not really obstruction of justice or anything at this time, so they wouldn't be looking into it. Um, huh. And I guess we should we should note, too, because no one knows this at the time, the first subpoena that Titan got making them aware of the grand jury was the day of WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. So they, they know when most people don't that shit is on in a way that in a way that is a very big deal. Yes. What a weird... So, I wonder who this... Who do you think this was? Who knows? Hmm. But that's why... That's something I... I don't think I've ever heard of this story talked about since it happened. It's first I've really heard of it. I remember most of the other stuff from around the Scandal like shows, and I don't remember this. Like, you know, even in going back over coverage, I did not remember this whole thing. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Wow. <laughs> wow. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.